Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. All right, so the time has finally come for our WrestleMania 15 slash Monday Night Raw mega episode. And for this one, I had to once again enlist a special guest. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the fourth time, he is the host of the New Blood Rising Podcast, none other than the man himself, Mr. William Rankin. And William, would you care to refresh the Raw Attitude Podcast fans on New Blood Rising and any of the other various projects you've been involved in? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the New Blood Rising Podcast is a timeline-based wrestling podcast. When we started back in 2015, because of the name of the pod, it was based around Vince Russo era WCW. And we took that through the end, the uh, the painful end in 2001 of WCW. <laughs> and then we just kept going from there. We, the natural segue was to Invasion Era, WWF. And then we did we, we went a completely different direction for Season 3. We did ECW. For Season 4, we actually went and did all the Undertaker's WrestleMania matches. Now, we pick him specifically because if you listen throughout the first few seasons, we have quite a few Undertaker jokes. He becomes kind of a reoccurring character on the podcast in many forms for us. And now, currently, we've gone a little bit further back in time. We're doing From Sting to Hogan. Season 5 is starting with the Great American Bash in 1990, and then we're going to conclude with Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair at Bash at the Beach, uh, 96. I'm not sorry, 94. Well, 96, we know what that story is. But Bash of the Beast, yeah, 94. So it's a fun, interesting era watching WCW revolve around one guy, and then clearly it is switching to revolve around another guy by the end of it. So that's a lot of what we do. We're going to be doing something kind of fun soon that um, we're, we'll be releasing on Twitter. It's a little bit different because I'll tell you – when you're recording with three guys and life finds a way to happen, sometimes you don't get to record as much as you want, and that's fine. It gives us time to kind of find some other cool openings or whatnot. So we've got some other wrestling-related stuff that's going to be coming out real soon. So that'll be something I'll just kind of tease for the time being, and we'll have some more information on social media coming out soon. But that's basically our pod. But we love the Raw Attitude pod because I love it because it's the antithesis of ours. It's one guy having to go through this entire thing on his own, for better or worse. So it's good to be back here, man. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to have you back. And as I've been saying, ever since for, for quite a while, I've been saying how much I love the New Blood Rising pod. And you were one of the, I think as I've said on this show before, you were one of the early advocates uh, of this podcast when you were you know, on the New Blood pod, you gave me a shout out. And I was like, oh, that's really cool because this is a show I'm listening to. And you just gave a mention to, to my show. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty I fucking mean, awesome. I mean, dude, you're out here so, writing these scripts and doing this. I mean, this isn't easy stuff. I mean, like the, the dedication it takes to break down 
every one of those raws. And I mean, these raws are insane. You know, yeah. 98.99 raw. Like, I mean, 2000 seem is pretty tame in a lot of ways compared to just sort of the erratic nature of these of these raws. So, I mean, kudos to you, sir. I mean, like to to be going like so now this will be your second mania, right? This is mania number two for you, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Because my overall thesis for this, just to tease it, is this is probably the coolest storyline build up to a mania that I think WWF's had. They'll have it again, I think, many years from now, but this is one of the best. Like, the builds into this main event is fantastic. Yeah, it's funny you mention that, because I also single out not just the main event, but also, uh, funny enough, the, the build-up to the Hell in a Cell match, which, you know, the the quality of that match, <laughs> your your mileage may vary, but I thought the build-up to that was also very strong, too. So they they did a lot right going in, as opposed to, you know, how well they execute. I suppose that we will discuss that in a little bit, but yeah, that's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because that was also something I had in my notes. What do you say, man? You ready to do this? I think so. I think so. Before we jump into WrestleMania though, I mean, I feel like perhaps we need to have a celebration of sorts. I mean, the WWF talent have worked so hard over the past year, completely turning around the Monday night wars and producing quality entertainment. I mean, they should be entitled to a party, shouldn't they? I think they should. And and with that in mind, I present to you the WrestleMania Rage Party, which I believe gets its name from the fact that the tagline for WrestleMania 15 is, of course, the Ragin' Climax. And if you've heard of this show, the WrestleMania Rage Party, I suppose good for you. And if you haven't, uh, I suppose you're in for a treat. Now, William, as I said going into this, when we were going back and forth on Twitter, I told you you were under no obligation whatsoever to watch this show, so I'll just kind of take you through it. And as you said, you've watched it uh, in the past, but you didn't watch it for this show because I did not want to uh, necessarily subject you to it. But what do you say we go through it, and I'll give you some of the finer points. Let's do it. Excellent. So it is Saturday, March 27th, 1999, and we are... I think pre-taped from the Philadelphia Convention Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, instantly my hometown. To give you a quick visualization here, this is not your standard arena setup. It's more like a like a concert venue with a stage at the front and people are kind of like standing wall to wall with no seats. But of course, because this is a WWF event in 1999, the place is fucking Hacked. I mean, they were just on fire right around this time, needless to say. And amusingly, it looks like they're recycling a couple of props from past pay-per-views, including a giant poster of The Rock holding the title from The Rock Bottom pay-per-view, and the skull at the entranceway from the Survivor Series. So, sure, why not? Just had him lying around, I guess, and needed to get some mileage out of him. So the show opens with the entire corporation being introduced by Doc Hendricks, and they hang out in a sort of balcony area of the convention center. And the big show, by the way, all decked out in FUBU, which makes him look like a complete asshole. And from there, we kick into our first musical act of the evening, the world's most soulful Scientologist, Isaac Hayes. And William, you just know South Park is at its height right now, because Isaac Hayes is channeling his character Chef and singing a classic tune called chocolate salty balls stick it all in a bowl baby and stir it with a wooden spoon mix in a cup of flour and you'll be in heaven soon say everybody ever seen my balls that big and salty and brown if you ever need a quick pick me up just stick my balls in your mouth Suck on my tongue, it's on the ball. Take it around, suck up. 
That's a cute little song, huh? Now, I have to say, when Isaac Hayes is doing his thing, we actually get a quick shot of Vince and Shane dancing in the balcony, and it's pretty fucking hilarious. So Shane's dancing like a complete idiot, which I think is intentional, but to be honest, I'm not totally sure. So that was probably the highlight of the entire show for me. But regarding the song, I actually have a fun fact for you here, William. On the New Blood Rising podcast, when you cover the WCW shows, you've typically been mentioning what the number one movies and songs were for that particular week, right? Correct. So this song, Chocolate Salty Balls, went to number one on the UK and Irish charts in January of 1999. It was number one for one week in the UK, but it topped the charts for four weeks in Ireland. So yes, across the pond, Chocolate Salty Balls was a massive fucking hit, which I find pretty amusing. Do you, do you remember the Chocolate Salty Balls song, William? I mean, yeah, I mean, but I, I mean, it's crazy because like that hits, and then like they're about to get Academy Award nominated for another song for their movie that right. comes out this same summer. It's wild year for South Park. Yeah, and, and hey, they later go on to do Book of Mormon. I mean, the guy they do have obviously musical talent. The guys who create the show, because I mean, you know, they're they're doing something right. But yeah, that's actually a good point because I think is it Blame Canada that gets the Oscar nomination? Yes, Uncle Fucker did not uh, sneak in there. <laughs> Well, that, that was my personal favorite. It got snubbed, obviously. <laughs> uh, that's 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 taken me back. I haven't watched that movie in a while. Uh, William, actually, perhaps you'll like this. I actually just bought a book recently that was, um, I think the title of it is like Best Year Ever uh, at the Movie. It's like yeah. it's basically talking about how 1999. Yeah, I, I actually just got that book last week. I read, oh, covered, covered dude, because like, I, I just listened to the pod with that guy, uh, that author being interviewed. And I loved that it's it's a, it's more about the culture around the movies and the t- like it's really kind of this whole 1999 time capsule almost i'm real that's awesome exactly. i definitely want to get that yeah big recommendation it, obviously it's not going like hugely in depth because it's basically covering like you know up like 20 or so movies from 1999 so it's going into like each one of them like a brief little not a brief snippet but like you know like 10 15 pages on each one but uh yeah I, I definitely recommend picking it up if you if you haven't already i i should know the actual title but it's basically like 1999 best year ever oh it's like you're, you're pretty much there it's best movie year ever all with the periods after each word yeah but, but really really fun book definitely a fun book so yeah if you're a movie buff i'd say check it out but anyway so from there from chocolate salty balls the camera then starts to pan around the other corporation members with vince wondering aloud to shane where the stooges are and sure enough we then cut to the lobby of the building where Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe are trying to get in, but they have no tickets, so they are subsequently rebuffed. Now, on this show, we get quite a few segments with the Stooges in them, so instead of just recapping each one, I'm just going to quickly summarize their antics for you here and basically save us a lot of time. So Patterson and Briscoe can't get in the building, so they try various methods of sneaking in, including dressing as two of the Godfather's hoes, and because this is apparently 1935, they also dress in one of those old-timey two-man horse costumes. I thought those were only in cartoons, personally. Now, by the way, though, security guy, the security guy at the front lets them in in the horse costume, but as soon as they remove it and show their faces the security guy throws them right back out of the building, which I have to admit, that baffled even me. So, like, are we supposed to interpret from that that the security guy wanted a horse to enter, but he didn't want Patterson and Briscoe to enter? Is that what we're supposed to infer from that? I'm just going to assume so. <laughs> but eventually, the Stooges sneak in by simply wearing suit coats that have been left around on a coat rack, but when they walk up to Vince in the building, he tells them to go 
right back out into the parking lot and fetch a briefcase from his limousine, and unfortunately when they do that, the limo turns out to be locked, which sets off the car alarm, causing both Stooges to be arrested by a nearby police officer. So there you go, William. Now you're all caught up on this riveting show-long storyline, but I did enjoy the horse costume. It's, I mean, this is right out of... They've done this. They did this with Bobby Heenan on Raw in, like, like 93 or whatever. Oh, yeah. It's the same thing. That's it's right. him trying to get back in the building. Right, where he's the, the rabbi or whatever it was. Right. That's a good point. I hadn't even made that parallel, actually. It's a long tradition of, of people sneaking into WWE events. So, from there, we then cut to Sable's dressing room, where, of all people, Dweezil and Ahmet Zappa barge in to disgrace their father's legacy. Oh, sorry, I mean to hype their new show, Happy Hour, which Sable reluctantly agrees to appear on. And for those scoring at home, Happy Hour lasts a whopping three months before it ends up being canceled. So, no, they were not able to siphon off some of those other WWF viewers. And after commercial break and a Stooges segment, we go to Michael Cole, who is now trying to interview Sable while she is literally just dancing in the balcony all by herself, which just kind of looks sad. I mean, really, no one wants to dance with the Playboy cover girl. Maybe she just comes across as unapproachable. It Clearly, it must be the grind. And then we go down to the floor, where Shane McMahon and the Mean Street Posse are with Deborah, and Shane tells her that she has, and I'm quoting here, thoroughbred thighs and bodacious tatas, and then he and the posse crowd around her while she dances. And this left me wondering, was Stone Cold dating Deborah at this point? Because if he is, I can't imagine he would be happy by this whole scene, but oh well. And from there, it's promo time once again, as mankind emerges to address the crowd. And tonight, Foley comes out, essentially he's just dressed as Cactus Jack, he's not wearing the mankind mask, he's wearing a red flannel shirt, and also remember, we're in Philadelphia, where he is pretty much a god, thanks to his time in ECW. So, let's just say that it comes across as a bit strange to me, that he essentially uses his promo time to do a goofy stand-up comedy routine. Some of you can tell or not, but I'm having a little trouble getting around with my leg. Unfortunately, the biggest show of the year in mankind has to come down with a knee injury. So I guess you know what I'm saying when I tell you that. Limping ain't easy. Anyway, I walked into a bar. I had Mr. Sacco on my hand. The bartender says, may I help you? And Mr. Sacco said, yeah, can you get this guy's hand out of my ass? And I know we're here to have fun, but let's not forget what's important. I'd like to dedicate this match to my uncle, who was simply trying to make a living, dragging a net behind his boat. Unfortunately, the boat got left out at sea, and I haven't seen my uncle yet. So I guess what you could say is, shrimping ain't easy! <laughs> but this is, it's a historical city. I'm glad to be here. I visited Independence Hall. I saw the original Declaration of Independence, and then I went into a very small museum. I walked up three flights of steps, and in the very back was a very rare display containing a videotape 
of Al Snow's last decent match. <laughs> I know you gave The Rock a hell of a hand out here, but I, but I for one, no, no, it's time I speak my damn mind. I for one am sick of The Rock talking about my monkey ass. First off, I happen to have a nice ass. Second off, everybody knows that the monkey is a member of the primate family, making it automatically a subspecies of the chimpanzee. And everybody knows, and I mean everybody knows, that chimpin ain't easy. So hey, tomorrow's the big one. On behalf of all the WWF superstars and Al Snow, I've got two words for ya. Oh. Mm, beat me. <laughs> Have a nice day. Now, I just want to say, to anyone who gave Mick Foley a positive reaction to that promo, you're the reason why he felt compelled to go on a comedy tour after he retired, and that blood is on your hands. So we then go back into the building, where Shane McMahon brings out Big Punisher to perform his song, Still Not a Player. And in case you're not familiar with Big Pun, he is indeed quite big. Morbidly obese, in fact. He ends up dying from a heart attack actually less than a year after this performance, which isn't too much of a surprise, considering the fact that his weight gets up to 700 pounds. And frankly, based on that, I'm shocked that Vince didn't actually try to sign him after the WrestleMania Rage Party. But with that being said, though, William, I actually did love his CD, Capital Punishment, back in the day when I was in high school. Got a lot of rotations in my CD player during study hall, I can tell you that much. But I might be alone in that assessment. Oh yeah, sorry, God. No, I was gonna say, I, in terms of this podcast, I think you are longest. I've not, I've definitely not heard. I've not gotten my fill of big pun. Well, you know, I would just say Google him to see that he was, you know, literally a seven hundred pound rapper, and <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty much all you need to Can know. You imagine if he did the run in on the the brawl for all match. <laughs> oh my God! Uh, well, I think the word "run" in "run in" would be very loose. <laughs> Because they do, you're talking, they show them in the crowd before the brawl for all, right? I think they do. Yeah, they, they actually point them out and say, oh, are we going to do some business here? No. I'd like to see him in the brawl for all, quite frankly. First of all, it's him getting in the ring. How do we do that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> getting in a wrestling ring is not easy. Like, it actually is not that easy, like, when you haven't, like, done it a lot. I remember the first time I got into one, I was like, oh, whoa, wait a second. Do I do the whole... The one leg in or do I do the, you know, the, I'm going to kind of do my body parallel with one leg sticking out. You know, what are you going to do? Well, hey, Batista had that same difficulty at WrestleMania 35 just recently. (laughs) So (laughs) poor, but the worst is when a guy thinks he can go over the top rope, but he can't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I always liked that the undertaker just punted on it and was like, you know what? Fuck it. Middle rope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to play it safe here because I'm about, you know, 65 years old at this point. <laughs> Whatever. I don't even know. It's probably 50, you got to be at least 50-something. I don't know. Uh, somewhere in the range. AARP's around the – it's in the picture. That's right. Yes, exactly. He's got the magazine coming to him. 
And after an ad break, so Big Pun and his crew, they basically do one more song, and then it's time for another promo, this time from D-Generation X. So DX makes their entrance by riding down an escalator as though they were about to announce their candidacy for the presidency, and then they walk through the crowd to get to the stage. So nothing new here at all. Hunter says, let's get ready to suck it. Road Dog does the ladies and gentlemen spiel. Mr. Ass says he has two words for us. However... The camera does have to cut away at one point because Triple H is mooning the crowd, so that was nice. Your future owner of the company, ladies and gentlemen. And then we go to the stage where Val Venus, in his usual attire with no shirt on and a towel around his waist, introduces us to the next band, who he claims to have a lot in common with, the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Gross. And they then proceed to do their song, Zoot Suit Riot, while I can't help but remember that there was a time when people actually thought that swing music was going to make a comeback. That was a, that was a fun 20 minutes. Although I will say, I, I do kind of like that song, Zoot Suit Riot. Clearly, oh, dude, I think I'm dude, just easy to listen impress. Listen all the time on Lithium. On Lithium, this is always coming in there. Like, like once every few hours, Zoot Suit Riot comes on. Like, oh, man, right on. Yeah, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm not alone on that one. That's good, okay. At first, I thought you were saying to listen to the song while I was on the drug lithium. I was like, oh, okay, that might be one way of making that sound good. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> yeah. Rage party. <laughs> yes. I, I, actually, on that note, I have to think, you know, Big Pun and the Cherry Pop and Daddies, this has to be the only venue they ever played together, I would assume, right? The WrestleMania Rage Party was probably the only they, stage. They, they just seem to do a medley at the end. Everybody who's a performer just gets together and they just do a medley. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, big pun with his like rapid fire raps followed by a bunch of guys in like their, their mid forties being like a whipped up jitterbug and brown eyed man. Like what the fuck is going on here? Um like I'm trying to think of the fans in attendance too, like because I don't know how much crossover there is at the time between the WWF and hip hop. I imagine probably not a lot between the WWF and swing music. Probably not a lot. It's so weird, man. Like they're sometimes right on the nose of it. Like they do Motley they get Motley Crew. Okay. Fits. Mm-hmm. Totally fits. They get Kid Rock, which I think is this is no, is it that's two thousand, I think, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, those two right there, absolutely. Knocks it out of the park. Both tie in well. But then like you sneak in these guys, and it's like what? Like <laughs> what were we thinking? Yeah. Very fair question. But actually, the best part, though, is that the very end, so the, the Cherry Pop and Dice, they finish their song, they finish Zoot Suit Riot, and then the lead singer says he's going to bring out some special guests, and that leads to an appearance by the Ministry of Darkness. So tonight, yes, on this night, the Ministry of Darkness were called special guests by the leader of the Cherry Pop, the lead singer of the Cherry Pop and Daddies. So, great little tie-in there. And when they emerge, actually, this is a fun fact for you, William, this marks the official debut of the new Ministry of Darkness theme song. So, as recently as last week's episode of Raw, they entered to, you know, the Undertaker's usual theme, the one he entered to for years. But tonight, we get that remixed one that begins with Taker, you know, speaking that sort of foreign language. So, Yes, Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll take your word that that's what he actually says. I don't even know. It's Char- if, if you listen enough of, of New Blood, you'll you'll hear Charlie and I go through and do this. Yes. We used to joke about this. He's just, he's just speaking nonsense. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he is. But anyway, so Taker has a mic, and he says that tomorrow night, once he destroys the big boss man inside of Hell in a Cell, there will be no one standing in his way of getting to her. And in an interesting turn of phrase, he says he will lead her by the hand, and quote, until nothing do us part, as though he was planning some sort of wedding. Huh, I wonder if that'll ever get a payoff. 
and then to cap things off, Taker thrusts his arms forward, and across the room we saw that his symbol has once again been set on fire. So they've certainly been getting a lot of mileage out of that flaming Undertaker symbol lately, but damn it, I do think it looks pretty damn awesome. Although sadly, I have to admit, when he did this, I couldn't help but think of the band Great White during this segment, because oh. those fans... Yeah, I mean, the fans in the building, it's, they're literally wall-to-wall with a flaming symbol dangling overhead. So hopefully the fire code was up to snuff on this night. But I was That's like, oh, man. Only a, what is that, only like a few years after this? I think it's about four years from this. It was like 2003, yeah. Wow. Good times. Well, Good, th- call. Thankfully, Good call out. Yeah, thankfully everyone survived on this night, though. But after a commercial break, we go back into the building where we wrap things up with a promo from Stone Cold Steve Austin. He claims that if Vince thought he was trouble when he had the belt before, things are going to be even worse when he wins the belt back tomorrow night. And I think the show was actually running a bit long at this point because when Austin is speaking, he references the fact that a stagehand is telling him to wrap up. So he quickly says, that's the bottom line because Stone Cold says so. And we're out. And that was the WrestleMania Rage Party. So, William, does that sound like a show you'd like to go back and watch? I mean, no, but I mean, like, I have to look at it through the lens of the time. This, of course, of course, this would have been a thing to watch, you know, leading up to WrestleMania. Absolutely. But in hindsight, it's completely missable. Yes, absolutely. It's actually, in terms of music, it's a nice little time capsule because you're like, okay, Chocolate Salty Balls, The Swing Revival, you know, Big Pun was popular for maybe 20 seconds. So it's it's a nice little, it's very like late 98, early 99 if you want to look at it from like a time capsule perspective. But uh, I obviously do not recommend that you watch it because you can maybe just look for like the, uh, if you can find a gif of Shane McMahon dancing like an asshole in the balcony, do that. But aside from that, that's that's pretty much all you need to know. So with that being said, let's move on to One Night Later and dive into Sunday Night Heat. So we open the show with a recap of the Stone Cold Steve Austin Rock feud, which will obviously culminate in tonight's main event WWF Championship match. Very much looking forward to it, I have to say. From there, we segue into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And yes, don't worry, I will indeed be sure to list some of the noteworthy signs in the audience when we get into WrestleMania 15 itself, but for now... Just going to jump right into heat. So we officially kick off the show with Vince McMahon and the big show Paul White walking to the ring. And I can't tell if they had nuclear heat or if there was an audio difficulty, but you could barely hear what Tony Chimmel was saying when he introduced the two of them. I think it may have actually been crowd heat because when Vince grabs a mic, he is immediately greeted with that deafening asshole chant, which we actually haven't heard in a while, so that was nice. So Vince begins by saying there's a new stipulation in tonight's WWF Championship match. There will be no disqualifications. Now remember, the Big Show is facing Mankind tonight for the right to become the special guest referee in that match. So if Paul White wins, the no-DQ stipulation would certainly be a huge advantage for The Rock. And speaking of which, the Big Show then takes the mic, and amusingly, he is greeted with giant sucks chants. I guess those Philly fans clearly want to remind him of where he came from. And so the Big Show then proceeds to speak for three and a half straight minutes. And honestly, I can't remember him ever talking for this long. He probably said more words in this promo than he did in his entire WCW tenure. And in this case, I would say it's not necessarily a good thing. But essentially, he tells Mick Foley's mother that her son will never look the same, and he tells Stone Cold Steve Austin that he's not afraid of rattlesnakes, so there you go. He also claims he's going to sit down right by the entrance to the arena and wait for Steve Austin to arrive, 
which draws some confused looks from Vince. And Mr. McMahon then puts the capper on the segment by saying that there is no chance in hell of Stone Cold winning the WWF title tonight. So, William, what did you think of our opening Sunday Night Heat promo? I mean, you've hit the nail on the head the last few weeks, man. Like, this this Paul, it's, it, what is this Paul White thing, or giant thing, or <laughs> big show thing? <laughs> what is this thing with mankind? Like, it's it's been all over the place. It's... I mean, Vince literally looks confused in the ring, as confused as you've as you pointed out. This storyline has been, and it's just sort of like, all right, man. And what's funny is here's what's really funny. They they throw the no DQ on here. Park this and remember this when you do WrestleMania X seven yes. years from now, because the same exact thing happens. And Jim Ross just acts like, what? Yeah. What? What? What are they doing? It's like. They, dude, he, he did this a few years ago. Like, don't act surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, why build up a no-DQ storyline in advance? Just just spring that on them the day of, obviously. Right. Like, it is... And it, I mean, like, springing it on heat, it's not bad. Why? Because it's your last chance to sell tickets. It's your, Or not tickets. You know what I mean. Sell buys. Get people to buy the show. So that makes sense, in a way. But it's whenever they spring this stuff, like, on the pay-per-view itself, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, on the note of X7, if I remember correctly, I think it, we literally find out it's no DQ when they're making the announcement and both guys are coming to the ring, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that is incredibly bizarre. But it's funny you mentioned that, too, because I actually have some notes in the Rock Mankind match that I thought there were some parallels between this match and the one they have at X7. But uh, we can get to that then. But, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting how they, they, don't, it's, they don't copy the same match, but there are definitely some beats that are the same. Uh, for that match that comes up two years from now. So, yeah, learning from history, I suppose. And so, after commercial break, which includes Mankind's Chef Boyardee ad, by the way, we go backstage where Vince McMahon is with Pat Patterson and, holy shit, a fresh-faced 22-year-old Stephanie McMahon. So Vince tells Patterson to keep an eye on Stephanie, and yes, that would be the same Pat Patterson who couldn't even find his way into the building last night at the Rage Party. Vince is placing him in charge of caring for his daughter, so okay then. And from there, Vince then walks over to the Big Show, who is indeed, as promised, sitting in a chair by the building's entrance, waiting for Stone Cold to arrive. And we then realize why Vince was giving Paul White those confused looks during his promo. He likes the Big Show's intensity but he can't destroy Austin before WrestleMania because the show needs to have a main event. Vince McMahon, always the promoter. So we then go into the arena for our first match of the evening. Ivory, who is accompanied by D'Lo Brown, versus Jacqueline, who is accompanied by a cigar-smoking Terry Runnels, so maybe we should just call her Marlena tonight. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating, Ivory's ring gear basically looks like she's wearing a purple bra and panties. Not a complaint, necessarily, just saying that it was a different time. And speaking of which, uh, how about a few seconds into the match when we get a loud chant of show your tits, hashtag women's revolution. So anyway, the match is quite short. And to be honest, Ivory's offense looks pretty rough. Sloppy leg drops, sloppy power slam, it's, it's not great. But then, out of nowhere, the match just ends when Jackie kicks Ivory in the stomach, then nails her with a back suplex, and that is surprisingly enough to score the one, the two, and the three after a grueling one minute and 23 seconds. And immediately after the match ends, Terry runs into the ring and proceeds to burn Ivory's face with her lit cigar, ouch, 
and Jackie continues beating on her. But then, of all people, Tori runs down to the ring to chase away PMS. Now, keep in mind, Tori has been feuding with Sable for weeks, and she's facing her tonight at WrestleMania. She has no beef with Terry or Jackie, but hey, sure, let's just muddy the waters even more. Why not? So, William, what do you think of our opening match and the subsequent facial disfigurement? I mean, the disfigurement's really all that, that I that, that really bears mentioning from this. It's like, I mean, we just, I had forgotten about this, but when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. There, this is what we, this is what we tuned in for on Sunday Night Heat to see a, see one girl burn another's with a, a cigar. Yes. Jesus. Yeah, that was, you're totally right. The, the, the match is absolutely nothing. The whole thing is the spot at the end where Terry, you know, puts her quote unquote lit cigar into, into Ivory's face. Which I don't think even really gets much of like a payoff. I, I figured this would be like an angle they could actually drag out for multiple weeks, but I actually just started watching, you know, the the Raw from the night after, and she's not even wearing the bandage the night after on Raw, from what I remember. So it's kind of like this is just a heat angle. It kind of segues into the actual pay per view itself, but uh, really we're we're just in it for the the sort of like you know the Vince Russo ten second payoff of the cigar burn, and then that's it. There's there's nothing else to it really. Shocking, I know. But yeah, so I would agree with you. Pretty much just the cigar. That's all That's all there is here. And after commercial break, we go back into the arena where Tony Chimmel introduces the members of the Mean Street Posse who are now seated at ringside. And William, I have to say, at one point when he's reading off the names of the Posse members, he says one that is completely indistinguishable to me. It almost sounds like he says Sohowitz. So take a listen and see if you can make this out at home. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our special guest here this evening from Greenwich, Connecticut, Rodney, Billy P, Willie Green, Sohowitz, and Pete Gass, the Mean Street Pussy. Well, Kevin, I guess it pays to know one of the co-owners of the WWF, Shane McMahon's buddies, are in the front row here for WrestleMania. So, yes, if you're scoring at home, that would indeed be five members of the posse at ringside, thanks to their new friend, Sohowitz. So I guess we'll see if they make their presence felt tonight. And from there, it is now time for an appearance from D-Generation X. And earlier tonight, Kevin Kelly made the claim that tonight could be, quote, the biggest night in DX history, and all four men certainly appear to be ready, as each one of them has a match tonight. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play their promo for you here. Each member talks about his upcoming match, and, well, if you're not familiar with how the events of WrestleMania 15 go down, you'll know later on why I'm including a unified DX promo here. So let's take a listen. Let's get straight to business. Kane, tonight if you want to come out here and play with matches, then you think back to last week. Because I think I proved to you, once and for all, Kane, who's got the biggest flame. Kane, tonight, whether it's throwing punches or whether it's throwing fire, it doesn't make a damn to me, boy. Because tonight you're going to get in my battlefield. And I guarantee you this, you are going to go down in a blaze of glory. The old saying goes, when you play with fire, you might get burned. Who will find out, Triple H or Kane? Now, I will make this short and sweet. You see, in my match, I got a nut, 
a slut and Shamrock with his head up his butt. You see, it's almost like a Steve Gutenberg vehicle, except it's not three men and a baby, it's three men and that D-O-double-G. You gentlemen, I welcome you to my doghouse, and here we do it doggy style. You know, dog, you think you got problems. <laughs> I got a triple threat match tonight with Mr. Rogers and a goof who talks to a head. You know, fellas, don't take this personal, but I'm fixing to unload a whole lot of badass on ya. That'll be hardcore style, triple threat. It's gonna be long, it's gonna be hard, and it's gonna get nasty. Damn, Billy, you are nasty, man. Now let's get serious here. Shane McMahon, you may be the boss of Sun Boy, but tonight you will pay some dues that you have never paid in your entire life. The Main Street Posse, Shane McMahon's buddies. And they and seem I'll tell different. you one more thing, Shane. I'm through talking about things. Tonight, your ass is grass, and I'm gonna smoke it! DX, ready to rock and roll at WrestleMania! I think what we're trying to say is if you're not down with that, we got two words for you! So there you have it, D-Generation X is ready and raring to go for WrestleMania, and perhaps it will indeed be a big night for them. So, William, what do you think of DX's promo here? Anything eventful that you noticed? Uh, I mean, of course it's going to be ironic by by the time we get to the main event. I actually, like, the other one that happens during Mania is even funnier to me because it's yes. Xbox match, but he doesn't even get to talk, really, <laughs> in the promo. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to play that one, too, when we get there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's bittersweet when you know it's coming, but, you know. Anytime you've got a stable and everybody, like, and, and you have to do, right, everybody gets a piece of the action, you always wonder, like, I like to watch the look on the face of the guy who isn't talking yet, because they're like, oh my god, oh my god, it's my, it, I'm coming up, I'm coming <laughs> up, I'm coming up, I'm coming up. And then, just to see if they, <laughs> to see what they come out of the blocks with, because I'm telling you, a lot of those guys who come in later... You can tell they're thinking about something the whole time. The other guys talk like, okay, this is going to be funny. This is a good bit. This is a good bit. And then they just shit their pants. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's always my favorite to watch. In DX, I would assume X-Pac would be that guy who's like, oh, God, I got to talk. Oh, God, I got to talk. Please, no. Yeah, because, like, he, you notice, like, he comes at, like, and a lot of wrestlers do this. Like, you can tell when they throw out that first line, they've been thinking about this all day. And because wrestling, as we know, like a lot of these guys will get to the building like really early during the day. They're walking around backstage, I'm sure, coming up with ideas, talking to themselves, trying to find, you know, what's what's it going to be tonight? What's it going to be? And then they, they grab onto this thing and they're like, oh, yeah, that's good. And they may maybe they workshop it a little bit. They go around like, hey, hey, Val, what do you think about this? Let's make some noise. Or <laughs> what do you yeah. think about this? I don't know, man. 
So that stuff always intrigues me when it comes to, to promos. Or even better, I've got this killer line, your ass is grass and I'm going to smoke it. <laughs> Knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. So from there, Kevin Kelly informs us that if we send in our cable bills, we will receive a copy of The Undertaker's new comic book. And holy shit, talk about things I had forgotten existed. Now, will we receive the issue where he ties up Santa Claus and puts him in bondage? No, sorry, that's the, that was the Ultimate Warriors comic book. My mistake. That was the Ultimate Warriors comic book. But, William, do you happen to remember Taker's comic book by any chance? Because I definitely do not. I vaguely remember wrestling comic books. I remember the early 90s Undertaker one where, like, the big boss man has his surveillance van outside <laughs> the funeral parlor. And then all hell breaks loose inside the parlor and they start going at it. Dude, the Undertaker's comic from back in the day, if I'm not mistaken, like the way they would play is like the Undertaker, like we see the Undertaker wrestling a guy, but the Undertaker sees like a demon that he has to like beat and send back to hell. That was one of the, that was one of the Undertaker comics back in the day. I don't remember this one, but that one always made me laugh. And of course the awesome one is like, he just, just goes around beating people up. That That's really all he is. His was. Well, you know, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe apparently coming to an end now with Endgame, I mean, they're go- they're going to be looking for new source material to turn into movies. So, you know, maybe that Undertaker comic book can be the next. Uh, it can be the WWE Cinematic Universe coming soon. Well, we can only hope so. Yeah, I'll I'll be there opening night. No, I probably won't. But after a commercial break, we then go backstage where Lucas from WWF.com is getting ready to interview your WWF champion, The Rock. And I have to say, this Lucas guy cracks me up. It kind of looks like they just took a random high school kid out of class and said, go interview some wrestlers in the most passionless way imaginable. So yes, Lucas has negative charisma, but The Rock is able to compensate with his infinite charisma. And you know what? Let's take a listen to what the Great One has to say. Well, Rock, later tonight at WrestleMania 15, you've got the biggest match of your career. And you've got to be feeling very confident now that there is no doubt the big show Paul White is with the corporation. (laughs) You're damn right. I'll tell you what. Stone Cold Steve Austin, you wish Paul White was on your side. You wish that Paul White was not on the Rock side. But I'll tell you what. You come out here. Hold the mic up, Jabroni, for the Rock side. It's a taste out of your mouth. You come out here and you spit your little talk about how The Rock comes out and spits his little nursery rhymes. I'll tell you what, the great one has a little nursery rhyme for you, Stone Cold, that goes like this. Mary had a little lamb. I'll tell you what, piss on the lamb, piss on Mary, and piss on you. The Rock is going to go out there tonight and do what he does best. And let's lay the smack down on your Rudy Pooh. Ah, hey, don't do it. Don't do it because the rock guarantees to prove to you, you, this goof holding the camera, this chick gawking at the rock, he will prove to the millions and millions of the rock's fans exactly why the rock is the great one, exactly why the rock is the chosen one, and exactly why the rock is, without a shadow of a doubt, the best damn WWF champ there ever was if you smell hey uh-uh Philly this ain't sing along with the champ if you smell what the rock is cooking now, funny enough, William, I actually do remember this promo from uh, before actually watching the show just for that line where the rock was like 
piss on the lamb, piss on Mary, and piss on you. That's like the the one thing I remembered, but I didn't realize it was from this show, but uh, I did remember that line for just, I don't even know why, 20 years later, that's still stuck in my head. Did did you enjoy the uh, the Rocks promo here? What's fun about, like, when you hear, like, this promo, like, you can see how close he is. He's so close to -hmm. becoming the Rock. You know what I mean? Like he's that's what makes this this run of the rock really fun is to watch him putting the pieces together and figuring out these bits because if I'm not mistaken, I remember hearing about the rock would be the guy who'd be like he'd be like fly fishing or he'd just be fishing period and he'd be coming up with these lines over and over again. He would just be having these things pop in and everything. It that's what's fun to watch with it. It's just the little things, making the connections and like, you know, throwing this out there. Like, you know, th- granted his nursery rhymes are not going to eclipse is probably not going to make it into his top five, you know, pro or catchphrases of all time. But it was like, man, that guy really, he was really starting to hit the stride here big time. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, on my end, this, I, I, this is something I should remember, but I don't, I don't remember. And this is a spoiler alert for the coming weeks. <laughs> the, I know the rock does turn face within the next month or two, but I don't remember how he does it. So this is actually going to be like a little interesting experiment for me too because I don't remember if there's like any one inciting incident that turns him or if it's well, something you know that just kind of gradually I will, happens. I won't give it away either, but I'm you. It definitely coincides with a major event that's about to happen. Oh, okay. Because yeah, I mean once once that thing happens, like it, it's it's this shift in everything. It feels like excellent. Well, I'll definitely be on the lookout for that then. Get get me excited over here for what's going what's about to happen because I assume it's pretty good stuff, right? Are are you being serious? <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, it's it's one of those things that like when you see, it, you're like, well, I knew this was coming. I just didn't know maybe right now, but yeah, it. And what's it? What's going to be crazy is when you see it, and then you you need to walk yourself back through this show and a few shows past, and you're like, what the f- what was the plan here? <laughs> Oh, so you're saying it's not that good of a moment then? It's an infamous moment. I mean, it oh, is wow. infamous for, and and it is frequently memed like to this day because it it, it just has one of the best line deliveries of all time. Holy but shit! But that I, that I, event will start moving the rock out of where he is now. Wow, I'm I'm legitimately surprised I don't remember this. So, all right, excellent. I'm kind of like tempted to fast forward through the next couple of Raws here to find that, but I won't. I will not. You'll find. I mean, you will. I. I think you know what it is. I think you just need to like. If just take a, if if you think about it, you know you know this thing is coming. It's just a matter of time. You may not know it's coming this quickly, but it's about to happen within the next. I guess it's not going to be. It's not going to happen um, before Backlash, but mm. it'll definitely happen after Backlash. Cool. All right. Good stuff, good stuff. So we then head back into the arena where your WWF Tag Team Champions, Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, are heading to ringside along with Deborah, and they'll be doing commentary for our next match, which is a 21-man battle royal with a very unique stipulation. Instead of there being a single winner, the last two men in the ring will actually be forced to form a tag team, and then later on they'll face Jeff and Owen for the tag team titles. Now I have to ask William, what did you think of that stipulation? It's fun. I mean, you can see, like, this is where you get the gears turning toward eventually having, like, an Andre the Giant battle royal, a women's battle royal, a WrestleMania. 
Mm-hmm. Like you can see where they were, they were, they were always trying to like work in there. You know, how can we work in something special, something a little bit weird, like having a battle royal? Let's throw a twist on it here at the end. When you, whenever you see a battle royal that like has some kind of stip like this, and I don't think we get too many of these over the years, but if you tell me that the last two guys are going to end up facing the tag champions, I pretty much have a a, a beat on the fact that they're not going to be guys who like each other or have ever teamed before, probably. <laughs> Right. Yes, I have to say I do. I do kind of like this stipulation. I don't necessarily like how it plays out tonight, but I do like the concept of like here are your final two guys. You know, now they're going to be forced to form a tag team. Although in a battle royal, I mean, what do you do if two guys get eliminated at the same time and there's only one guy left? I, I don't know, but we'll get into it in just a second. That doesn't happen on this night, but yeah, it's uh, it is a stipulation I enjoy. I wish they do it more often. But just for the record, so here are the 21 participants in this battle royal. So we have The Godfather, Steve Blackman, D'Lo Brown, Test, Darren Drozdov, Viscera, Midian, Farouk, Bradshaw, Brian Christopher, Scott Taylor, Skull, 8-Ball, Tiger Ali Singh, Gilberg, Rocco Rock, Johnny Grunge, The Hardy Boys making their WrestleMania and Raw Attitude podcast debut, and the returning Hawk and Animal. And just like last year's WrestleMania, the Legion of Doom are reuniting to compete in a battle royal. It worked out well for them at WrestleMania 14 because they won a tag team battle royal at that event. This year, uh, not so much. So Public Enemy are the last ones to be introduced, and as soon as the battle royal begins, all of the other wrestlers gang up on them and immediately dump them out of the ring. So yet again, we're continuing that quote-unquote angle that none of the other WWF superstars want Public Enemy in the company. And as I've mentioned in a previous episode, when it comes to people not wanting Public Enemy in the WWF, very soon, they get their wish. And continuing on, at one point, one of the DOA members proceeds to dump out Gilberg, which amusingly draws huge boos from the Philadelphia fans. Pretty funny stuff there. And speaking of getting unceremoniously eliminated by a member of DOA, just seconds later, Animal gets tossed out by either Skull or 8-Ball. Now, let's, let's just think about that for a second here. This is the first match LOD has been in for months, and Animal gets tossed out by a member of one of the jobbiest of jobber teams. And then, to make matters worse, shortly after that, Bradshaw just picks up Hawk and dumps him out. So, I mean, Christ Almighty, LOD were just made to look like straight-up bitches tonight. Very strange booking. And further on in the match, folks, I know this is going to shock you, but Jeff Hardy takes a very unsafe-looking bump as Brian Christopher basically backdrops him over the top rope, causing Jeff to land on his back on the arena floor. Spoiler alert, this is not the only dangerous bump Jeff Hardy will ever take at a WrestleMania. Uh, Stay tuned for next year. And so eventually, our final four came down to D'Lo Brown... Test, The Godfather, and Darren Drozdov. So let's go ahead and pick it up from there. So now we're down to four men. D'Lo, Test, Droz, and Godfather. The final four here, folks, as D'Lo has now isolated Test, Godfather, hammering away on Droz. This fatigue is settling in right now. These guys are tired. They've been going 20 minutes. Double J and I are fresh and ready to go. Folks, there are only two oh, men left. There are two men left. D'Lo, Brown, and Test will meet Jeff Jarrett and Fatigue from the Battle Royal have now had a hurt cut on him, and they're tagging 
to unify it in about 15 minutes, folks. Take on the tag team champions. I got to like Jeff Jarrett Owen Hart's chances in this one. So as you heard there, the Godfather and Draws were both brawling near the ropes, and essentially they just kind of eliminated each other going over the top rope at the same time, which means that of all people, D'Lo Brown and Test are your winners, and they will now face Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart at WrestleMania 15. However, there's no time for them to celebrate their victory because as soon as they win, Jeff and Owen get up from their commentary positions and jump D'Lo and Test from behind in an attempt to gain a competitive advantage heading into the match. Honestly, probably a smart move. So, William, what do you think of the Battle Royal and the random mishmash team of D'Lo, Brown, and Test? Um, when I saw the last two, I was like, oh, okay. All right, well, we'll see what happens. Because, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, in all honesty, it's just sort of like, oh, my God, like you've got one face with three heels... I mean, it's like, man, I mean, it's, it was hard to get really excited. Like you were really hoping for, you know, if it wasn't a team like LOD, it was going to be, I don't know. It was going to be, it's nothing against D'Lo. It's just sort of like, man, once the chest protector came off, it felt like it was kind of the end for D'Lo. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was kind of yeah. the end for old D'Lo. So <laughs> I don't know, man. It, yeah. Battle Royals are always fun. Quintessential wrestling. Best stuff ever. And this... This was fine. It was something fun to sneak on heat for everyone, so really uh, no harm, no foul. Yeah, it, I was kind of surprised that it came down to D'Lo and Test, because again, yeah, that's a very random team, but it seems like usually when you get these sort of like mismatched partners, they, you know, how could they possibly get along? But they always do seem to manage to get along. So will they be able to win the tag team titles tonight? Based on past history, when you see those teams like Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin and Dude Love, it seems like they always make it work. So I say that bodes well for D'Lo and Tess tonight, but I, I suppose we'll find out in a little bit. And after a commercial break, we then get a recap of the feud between The Undertaker and Vince McMahon over the past six or so weeks. And I have to say, William, looking back on this now, pretty fucking great feud so far. The teddy bear, the burning symbol on Vince's lawn, Taker dressing as Kane. It's all been really great stuff. Uh, let's just say that, you know, the feud leads us to a match that probably is not befitting of the feud up to this point, but we'll, we'll touch on that in a little bit. So that montage leads us back into the arena, where Big Boss Man is now walking to the ring. And in case the listeners need a reminder, Boss Man will be facing The Undertaker tonight in only the third ever Hell in a Cell match on pay-per-view, with the previous two having been absolute classics. Quick side note here, William, I don't know if you're like me in this regard, but I could watch the Boss Man twirl his nightstick all day. It just never fails to entertain me for some reason. I mean, I just, I, I miss early 90s early 90s boss man when he would just sprint mm. to the ring he'd slide in and be doing that all at the same time it was like oh my god it was it's it's crazy this guy was like the number two face arguably yeah. he was the number two face right i mean maybe not and it, maybe two is too high maybe three because a warrior behind hogan but it's like i mean that's what's so crazy when i watch wrestlemania 15 is just the fact that it's like jesus these two guys wrestled at wrestlemania 7 that's wild. Yeah, that, that's true. I didn't even thought of that. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, you're right. In terms of like probably around like SummerSlam 1990 when Bossman was like the guest referee in the Hogan earthquake match, I think he had just turned face a couple of months prior. People really loved, you know, that, that sort of like powdered blue prison guard Bossman back then. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
And he's honestly on a pretty – he's still got a lot of momentum going for him. He just debuted – re-debuted, I should say, back in October. And here we are in March, and he's still being booked pretty strong. He's got a hardcore title reign under his belt. He's got a tag title reign under his belt. And obviously he's being booked to face The Undertaker, who is, you know, what, the, probably the top heel in the company right now, uh, if you don't count Vince, I suppose. So, he's yeah, he's still getting – he's getting a really good rub right now so far. So anyway, Michael Cole was in the ring with the boss man, with the cell ominously hanging overhead, and boss man says that he spent more time in a cell than Undertaker has spent time on this earth, to which I say, uh, I thought your gimmick was that you were a prison guard, so you're not really in a cell. I mean, you're guarding the criminals who are inside the cells, you know, like nails. So, I mean, you're, you're not really spending the time in the cell. Whatever. Nitpicking. Anywho. Uh, no time to split hairs because the lights quickly go out and the Undertaker proceeds to warn the boss man about about tonight's match, after which a red hue lights the ring and we can see the brood inside. The lights then go back out and once again, when they come back on, the brood have given the boss man a bloodbath. I mean, yikes, that's that's pretty rough. Without question, that is definitely the worst thing the brood will do to the big boss man tonight, that's for sure. So Bossman heads off backstage, yelling about how all they've done is piss him off, and that is how we wrap up this segment. So, William, what did you think of the Bossman's promo, Taker's interruption, and the subsequent bloodbath? I think he was yelling probably because he only brought one outfit to the show. He's like, fuck! I gotta get this washed now! Yeah. What do I do now? Yeah, I always enjoy I always enjoy the blood baths myself. I I think it's a, a nice little nice little fun thing for the brood. Dude, too. dude, the one the one on Raw is the best. The one on Raw is the absolute best. For for tomorrow night's episode of Raw? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. I haven't even gotten to it yet. I've just gotten to like the, the start of the uh the women's tag match. So when I get to that I will well, I'm definitely gonna keep an eye out now. Excellent. Again, we're on Sunday night heat here. It's just more set up for you know, the Hell in a Cell match, trying to trying to get a few more buys from your local cable company. But, yeah, perfectly fine place setting. And the, the bloodbath, I think, is also a nice little touch there to, to maybe get a few more fingers on dials calling the local cable company with about... At this point, you probably only have like 10 minutes till the show starts, so you better dial quickly. So after one final commercial break, we get a montage of the Stone Cold Rock feud featuring some of the moments from the past few months, including Paul White debuting by coming up through the ring, Stone Cold pinning Paul White cleanly on last week's episode of Raw, and of course, the beer bath. This then segues us back live to the big show, who is still waiting for Austin near the arena entrance. Instead, however, Mankind enters, wearing his homemade referee shirt. So Foley asks Big Show if the shirt makes him look fat, and Show tells him to get lost. So Mankind starts to walk away, but then he kind of like mutters something under his breath, and Big Show asks him what he just said. So Mankind tells Paul White that what he just muttered under his breath was, and I quote, Queers are deaf. So Mick Foley, of all people, going for a cheap gay joke. I have to admit, I did not see that coming. So, of course, this further enrages the Big Show, touching off a brawl between the two men. And meanwhile, in the background, Stone Cold Steve Austin does indeed enter the building, but Big Show is too preoccupied fighting with mankind to notice. And that was how Sunday Night Heat came to a close. I mean, if you hadn't already called your local cable company to order the show, clearly Mick Foley calling Paul White a queer will definitely get you to pick up the phone. I mean, there's your lead in right there. So, William, what did you think of that rather bizarre ending here? 
I, I thought he'd just call him just a big fat fuck. <laughs> that well, you know, that would have made more sense. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that um, uh, definitely not the line I was expecting from Mick Foley. <laughs> no, whoa, it's a little aggressive, Mick. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was 1999, so I guess everybody had to get in a cheap gay joke at some point. But, man, I, I had to, like, turn up the volume. Like, I kind of, like, rewound my little network. I pushed the little, like, back 10 seconds button. I was like, what did he just say? Like, turned up the volume on my headphones. I was like, yeah, he, he really did just say that. Okay. Why not? I, I assumed we would get more of, like, an appearance by Stone Cold there, but literally all we get on Heat is him kind of just, like, sneaking in the back door during a big show Mankind brawl. So, great contribution there. Great use of uh, of Stone Cold, but... I suppose now we know he's in the building, so now officially the pay-per-view can start. And also, one more quick note before we wrap up Sunday Night Heat here. This episode scored a 4.7 rating, which is obviously a ridiculously strong number. In case you need a sake of uh, comparison here, last week's Nitro put up a 3.95, so even the WWF's secondary show at this point is just absolutely crushing WCW in the ratings. That's where we're at now in 1999. But now, with all that being said, William, are you ready to get into WrestleMania 15? Absolutely, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. Time. No beginning, no end. An infinite procession that humbles our mortality. But there are moments in life that transcend our fate. Memories crafted by gods among men that defy time to forget them. These are the moments that echo through the ages. Always heard, never to grow old. Born of will, christened with blood. They are testament to the strong, the mighty, the eminent. Deities who defy their to forge an indelible imprint in the annals of time. Like the mythic gods of ancient Greece, they may thrill us, inspire us, at times make us angry, but they will never let us forget them. Tonight is their night, their battle, their moment of ultimate sacrifice. This is their theater, their altar, their chance for divinity. Welcome to WrestleMania, the showcase of the immortals. It is Sunday, March 28th, 1999, and we are live from the First Union Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of a whopping 20,276 fans. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include a ridiculous 25 episodes of Raw, 18 episodes of SmackDown, and a whole bunch of pay-per-views, including the legendarily terrible King of the Ring 95, In Your House Mind Games, Unforgiven 2000, and three different Royal Rumbles, 2004, 2015, and most recently, 2018. So we officially kick off the show with Philadelphia's own Boys to Men singing America the Beautiful. Very nicely done, in my opinion. Certainly an upgrade from when the Chris Warren band sang it one year ago. Let's just say that. And also, I love the fact that Boys to Men give like a, a very soulful, you know, delicate performance of the song. And then as soon as it's over, 
they just light off a shitload of pyro in the ring behind them. Kind of like, all right, now that all that beautiful harmonizing is over, let's get to the explosions, bitches. Struck me as just a funny contrast there. And from there, we get that Freddy Blassie voiceover intro that I just played for you a moment ago. This seems to be a recurring thing they tried out for Attitude Era pay-per-views, where Blassie would do like an overwrought voiceover talking about time having no beginning or end, and wrestlers forging an indelible imprint, being gods among men, etc., etc. Did you enjoy uh, Freddy Blassie's opening narration here, William? Always. 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 Nice. I feel like, actually, it definitely can't just be us, because he was... I feel like he probably did these all the way into 2001 at least, right? He was, he was doing this for years. They use him all the time. The one that always sticks out to me is the is the you've already encountered it. It's the it was kind of like one of the first Attitude Era ones. Like I never I never walked the top rope. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> now I watch them. <laughs> yes, that's a classic. They they used to trot that out like on pretty much every episode of Raw. They do that little like uh, that video there. Yeah. The, I, I don't even know what they called it, but it was kind of, it's not like a then now forever, but it's basically a then now forever where it's yeah, like, you know, exactly. Yeah. This is, this is how it used to be. This is how it is now. Blah, 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 whatever. And by the way, regarding that intro video, I just had to note that every clip they showed was for a wrestler who was currently active, except for the fact that they randomly threw in some Andre, the giant footage for some reason. So maybe that's because he's big shows dad. I don't know. Still counts in WCW anyway. So after that video concludes, we do indeed go back into the arena for some more pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Now, some of the many noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include Sable, fuck me. Good job getting that by security. (laughs) I have to poop. Pork is kosher. Has WWF plugged the next pay-per-view yet? I toss salad. Gabby has nice boobs. I called out sick today. <laughs> Vince is hard on Shane. Austin lost to Savio Vega in a Caribbean strap match. That's my favorite. Yes. That's the one. <laughs> Take him down a peg. Who Who is he to main event WrestleMania 15? Because <laughs> he lost to fucking Savio Vega. Uh, that was great. That was a great one, too. Uh, CompuCom sucks, and by the way, their Glassdoor reviews agree with that statement. (laughs) (laughs) Had to look that up. (laughs) Kane is my dentist. Oh my god, Raw killed Nitro, you bastards. Sable's older than dirt, so apparently (laughs) 31 years old is elderly, I guess. I bet Austin wins. Saggy nipples. For some, sure, why not? The Brood Puts Me in the Mood, Foley 316, <laughs> Foley 316 says, Got Life Insurance, which is particularly topical given that recent John Oliver piece on last week tonight. And finally, a drawing of the handicapped parking sign with the stick figure in a wheelchair with the phrase, Reserved for JR on it, which just seems kind of <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> He's not even handicapped, but uh, whatever. <laughs> So, my favorite, Henry, my favorite is that, that Stone Cold sign because this happens to everybody when they start off with a sign. You can tell they start off with the big letters and they realize, oh no, I'm running out of space. <laughs> yes. And the letters get so small. Yep. <laughs> I actually, for that one, I took a screen grab of it and put it on the the Twitter page, the Raw Attitude uh, Twitter page, and I had trouble finding like a good angle of it because, like you said, it does kind of get a little bit smaller. So I was like, "Oh man, I'm, t- I'm, I'm having trouble finding part where you can actually read the whole thing." 
Like, I think he's really reaching, especially when it comes to the word Caribbean. But, yeah. <laughs> but the, 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 the important thing, the important thing is that the thought was there, clearly. But did I miss any, by the way? Were there any that I uh, that you noticed? No, man. You, you that that was that was enough to do this special guest coming on here is just to hear you go through the sign. That's my favorite part. Oh, good. There's especially with a Philadelphia crowd. You know they're going to bring it with the uh, the offensive signs. <laughs> and so, same as old as dirt. Yeah, she's thirty one. She's thirty one years old at this point. And she and she also is literally like the Playboy cover girl. And somebody's like, "Oh, she's old. I'm gonna put that on a sign. Take her down a peg." <laughs> Anywho, so in case you were wondering, by the way, Kevin Kelly has now left the commentary table. So Michael Cole is now the one joining Jerry the King Lawler, as has been the custom for Monday Night Raw over the past three months. And so, after they welcome us to the show, we then kick right into our first match of the evening, and it is a triple threat match for the WWF Hardcore Championship. Champion, Badass Billy Gunn versus Al Snow, accompanied by Head, versus Hardcore Holly. The Hardcore title also, by the way, making its WrestleMania debut. Random thought here, it probably doesn't bode well for your show when the very first wrestler who parts the curtain is Al Snow. Just saying. Just saying. But it is Philly. So That's true. Yeah. He was he was an ECW legend, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you that clip with the heads that they're all throwing in the ring. I mean, that was huge. True, that's true. It definitely made it look like a very uh, like a party atmosphere in ECW every time he came out, and they were just you know thrusting the the mannequin heads back and forth in the crowd. So before the match begins, Mister Ass gets on the mic and says that he knows Philadelphia is ready for a little hardcore. But before he can say anything else, Al Snow jumps him from behind, and the timekeeper rings the bell. So I think we can actually thank Al Snow for saving us from a Billy Gunn promo there. I will give credit where it's due, though. I gotta say, even in a garbage match like this, Billy Gunn is kind of bumping his ass off, no pun intended. At one point, he gets clotheslined by Holly and does one of those, like, inside-out bumps in midair. And then when Al Snow later whips him into the ring steps, he kind of does, like, a full somersault when he collides with the stairs. So clearly, Billy Gunn, he's got his working boots on tonight, even in a hardcore match. And before long, of course, we go under the ring and start pulling out the weapons. Al Snow is the first man to grab one, and his weapon of choice is a hockey stick, which immediately causes the Philly fans to chant, Let's go Flyers. And then, when Al later pulls out a broom, Jerry Lawler gets a great line in when he says, quote, Al Snow's got a broom. What, do they have curling in this building, too? Pretty funny stuff. I thought that was pretty good. So the finish of the match was actually pretty abrupt. So Mr. Ass clobbered Hardcore Ollie in the head with a steel chair, and he then hip-tossed Al Snow through a nearby table, which Al had stood up against one of the turnbuckles. So Billy then put the chair on the canvas and hit Al with the fame-asser, driving him face-first into the chair, and from there, Billy Gunn picked up the one, the two, but not the three, because Hardcore Holly grabbed the chair and nailed Billy in the back with it. And from there, Holly simply covered Al Snow himself, and yes, that was indeed enough to steal the pinfall, meaning your winner and the new WWF Hardcore Champion is Hardcore Holly. So yes, as is the risk in triple threat matches, the champion lost his title without ever being pinned. Alas. 
Fun fact for a year, though, William, Hardcore Holly is now the first man to win the Hardcore title on multiple occasions, so I suppose giving himself that nickname might have actually been a good choice after all, but what did you think of our opening Hardcore title match here? Really two things. One is I kind of couple this with the IC match because this is all screwed up. The wrong guys are in the matches, and yeah. it, to get the you can look at um, Hardcore Holly's book. He touches on it, too. Like It didn't make any sense to him either why it wasn't Road Dog in there, but whatever. At first, I was confused. I was like, man, they are not going outside the ring and doing all this. And then I scratched that note off after I watched the main event. So that's that's oh. why I was like, huh, okay. That's why this, this hardcore match is a little bit tame compared to, you know, let's finish a match in the river like we have in previous shows. Right. And the other thing I'll say is this finish is a quintessential no mercy finish where it's like, if you're doing a triple threat and no mercy, and your buddy gets the has a special, just wait, get out of the way, let him take out the other guy, and then just trash him as he's making the pin, and then steal it. Very Always nice. perfect. Very nice. Or if you're like me and no mercy, and you have like a handicap match, just keep picking up the stairs and throwing them at a guy from afar. <laughs> <laughs> Worked every time. But actually, it's kind of funny too if you listen to the finish of the match because, like, this, again, this is the Philly crowd. You know, Mr. Ass is over by virtue of being in the Outlaws, and Al Snow, like you said, is over by virtue of being in ECW. But when Hardcore Holly picks up the pinfall, there's kind of like a collective—I don't want to say it's like a collective groan from the crowd—but they're kind of like, "Oh, like they, he was like the one guy they didn't want to win." You know what I mean? It was kind of yeah. like, "Oh, okay, hard, yeah, Hardcore Holly, okay." Because I mean, obviously he's changed his gimmick to you know the Hardcore gimmick, but it's still very new. So uh, the Philly fans are kind of like, "Yeah, uh, in terms of like Hardcore ECW, we don't, you know, we don't synonymize if that's even a word. We don't synonymize Hardcore Holly with Hardcore when it comes to you know this ECW fan base. So there is like a, a there is kind of like a collective groan when Hardcore Holly wins the title. So. Basically, in terms of the Philly fans, I think we can say we're, we're 0 for 1 in terms of the crowd enjoying the match so far. But, you know, in terms of my enjoyment of it, I would say, you know, it's like a, it's a down the middle. It's like a, it's a C. It's not terrible, but it's, it's just like a garbage brawl. Nothing too special, but nothing too offensive at the same time. And next up, it is time for the WWF Tag Team Championship match. Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart accompanied by Deborah versus the Battle Royal winning team of Test and D'Lo Brown who are accompanied by Ivory now with a band-aid on her face after Terry's earlier cigar burn. And by the way, Test once again enters wearing his Happy Gilmore inspired wife beater that says, guns don't kill people, I kill people. As a movie buff, did you enjoy seeing that, William? Of course, man. I saw Happy Gilmore in the theaters. I, I know what's up. Damn right. Yes, I, I just can't help every single time I see him wearing that shirt. And by the way, he wears it quite often. Every single time I'm just like, that's Happy Gilmore's boss's shirt. That is Happy's I boss's shirt. Pretty sure we can agree, though, Henry, has not aged the best <laughs> in 2019 to have that shirt. Oh, yes, I would agree. It works well in Happy Gilmore. It doesn't work as well for Test. And speaking of people's outfits, Deborah comes out from backstage wearing what is basically a skimpy top and a thong just barely concealed by a suit coat. I suppose that's why you pay top dollar to order WrestleMania, huh? And amusingly, when she comes out from backstage, they immediately zoom in on a sign in the crowd that says, Deborah 316, an hour. Now I have to ask... Does Kevin Dunn realize that sign is not flattering to Deborah, or is he back there like, oh shit, that fan is literally saying Deborah's a whore. Get a close-up on that sign. I, I mean, either way, that's not encouraging, I would say. 
And before the match begins, as you might expect, because they're reluctant partners who were forced to team up, D'Lo and Tess get in each other's faces and start jawing back and forth. How will they ever manage to get along? And early on in the match, you could tell that this one wasn't going to last long, because it kind of seemed like everyone was trying to hit their signature spots. So Owen put the sharpshooter on Test less than a minute in. Test hit his gut-wrench powerbomb on Owen. D'Lo hit a spine buster. It was clearly, I better get my shit in time. And then, with the challengers in control, Deborah got up on the ring apron, but Ivory pulled her right back down. So with the two women getting in each other's faces, referee Jimmy Corderas became distracted, and meanwhile back in the ring, D'Lo had Jarrett in position for a powerbomb, but before he could hit it, Owen Hart jumped off the top turnbuckle and hit D'Lo with a missile dropkick. Jarrett then rolled through and pinned D'Lo, Corderas turned back around, and yes, he did indeed make the three count, enabling the champs to retain their titles in a match which didn't even last for four minutes. I have to say, given all the talent involved in this one, I definitely would have liked to have seen it go a little bit longer. And once the match is over, we cut to the outside of the ring, where PMS has now shown up on the scene, and Test is preventing Ivory from going after them. The defeated D'Lo Brown then rolls out of the ring and asks Test what his problem is, to which Test responds, and I quote, Your goddamn bitch cost us the match! And as you might expect... (laughs) Yep. And as you might expect, this touches off a brawl between D'Lo and Test until referees arrive on the scene to separate them. And that would be it. So that was what we had all the build-up for. D'Lo and Test win the Battle Royal. They don't like each other. They team up to face the Tag Team Champions. They lose cleanly in under four minutes. And then they still don't like each other. So what exactly was accomplished here? I really feel like the whole angle was just kind of like spinning its wheels. I, I don't know, William. What did you think of this one? I mean, I, I'm not – the reason I'm not going to give it too much is like this This is clearly an undercard bout. Granted, it's a WWF tag team titles. But the thing is like I, I miss an era where undercard matches were like not really long. Like, you know, you, you had – Granted, this is really short, but still, like, a sub-seven-minute match, like, when you when you know you've got a stacked card that's going to have Hell in a Cell, it's going to have a main event with two really, really hot stars, like, I mean, this it doesn't bother me because, like, I know these titles really aren't, they're in the best spot right now, and keeping them on Jeff and, and Owen is definitely the best, just because... They've turned out to be a great team, an underrated team. Like, oh, yeah. They don't, they, probably as a team, they don't get nearly the respect, like, when you could do all-time tag teams. Like, I know some people would say the Usos would, like, they take the Usos over them. Like, nah, man, like, Jared and Owen, like, they had the whole thing going. Like, they're one of those teams, like, from this era that I think sometimes because it's the Attitude Era and it's, like, it's not popular to, to like a lot of the tag teams pre-2000, they get kind of lost they're great, man. They're a great team, and like I know they would have a bunch of these these like like schmozzy kind of finishes and stuff like that. But it was just kind of the charm of it. It was like you have two really great wrestlers. Well, really, I shouldn't say Jeff Jarrett's really great, but you know what I mean. Mayhem, yeah. Mayhem's always got a soft spot in our hearts from season <laughs> one. But um, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say I would I would say Jeff is. I mean, at the very least, he's a solid wrestler for sure. They're a lot more fun of a tag team in retrospect then I think I may have liked him during the time. Because, dude, of course, like, I mean, when you're in high school and, the, and you hear that music, like, all right, it's Deborah time. Like, that's all yeah. you're thinking about when when they're coming out. But now just getting back and watching, like, how they would work, they really had a great thing going. 
It's like it's crazy that in the Attitude Era, they just completely stumbled into like three, three really like I'd say good to really good tag teams: Outlaws, Bossman, and Shamrock. Not the best matches, but a cool tag team. And then these guys, you know. Yeah, you make a really good point because pretty soon, within the next year, we do get sort of like a revival of the tag teams in the WWF. But in this, in terms of like the start of the podcast, you know, that sort of like late 97 to where we are now, Owen and Jarrett are definitely one of the teams I think of, alongside obviously, you know, the New Age Outlaws because they have such a huge place in the division for such a long period of time. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, Owen and Jarrett are, you know, hugely underrated team. Great combination, too. I just... I don't know. I, I just love the combo of those two guys being about the same size, you know, really solid workers. And of course, you throw Deborah into the mix and, you know, that that's definitely enough to get the fans popping right there. In terms yeah. of this match, it, it struck me as I was saying, like, you know, where you, where you put the two guys together, who's like, there's no way these two can get along. You know, they almost condition us to think, oh, well, they're obviously going to win the titles. And then it was like, oh, OK, actually, yeah, they didn't get along. Okay, all right then. So it was just kind of like, it seemed like it was just like a filler match, but yeah, certainly, you know, I, again, I'd like to see a little bit more time, but, you know, it is, like you said, it is a pretty, the, the top part of this card is quite stacked. So, and of course we have to get on to other more important things like what we're about to cover next, oh, yeah. which is, oh my goodness. <sighs> well, I suppose we should just get get into it. So next up, actually, it's not a match, but it is a rather infamous segment, a special, well, I guess it's a boxing match, pitting your 1998 Brawl for All champion, Bart Gunn, against legendary tough man competitor, Butterbean, who enters tonight's fight with a record of 42 wins, one loss, and one draw, with 34 of those victories coming via knockout. Henry, real quick, I'm fun- I think this is technically a Brawl for All match. Which it is. begs the question, like, would you like to see Butterbean do some takedowns? <laughs> yes. You know what's actually funny is I think there's a I think there's a shoot interview out there somewhere where they did say it was a brawl for all match, but they specifically told Bart Gunn, like, you know, don't go for takedowns. I, I don't know if it was like an arrangement. <laughs> like, like I don't know if it was an arrangement they had with Butterbean where he's like, you know, I just want to come in and fight. I don't want to do this takedown shit. But like basically so they basically told Bart Gunn, like, go in there and straight up box with Butterbean, like, don't do the takedowns. Just kick him which, in the balls. That would have been the best. <laughs> <laughs> True. That would have been pretty good. Although, in Bart Gunn's defense, like, all those Brawl for All fights he won, he didn't take anybody down. He knocked everybody out. So That's is... true. You're, you're right. You're right. You're yeah. 100% right. Dude, this promo video is the best. <laughs> yes. What do you mean with, uh, with Bart Gunn's sparring partner saying that, oh, yeah, he's going to knock out Butterbean? Yes. Yes. This aged brilliantly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're, they're obviously, you know, I mean, I guess they can't say anything else, but I mean, I'm sure in the back of their heads, they're like, Ugh, this, uh, I, I don't know about this. So at least they should be thinking that if they're not. So in case any of you who are listening are not familiar with this contest, this is a legitimate actual shoot fight. This is not a worked boxing match like Rowdy Roddy Piper versus Mr. T at WrestleMania 2. This is actually the real deal. And funny enough, it's also kind of easy to forget this, but Butterbean has actually already done a boxing match in the WWF, and that was back at the In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view in December of 97 when he defeated Mark Merrow by disqualification. Now, that fight was definitely a work. Tonight's fight... Definitely not. Just remember that. And in case you doubt that this is a shoot, just just stick around for the ending. That's all I'll have to say. Just stick around for that. 
So the special referee for the match is Vinny Pazienza, a.k.a. the Pazmanian Devil, a professional lightweight boxer who at this point is sporting a record of 44 wins and 7 losses, not too shabby. And in addition to that, in case the fight goes to a decision, wink wink, we have three judges at ringside ready to score the bout, boxing trainer Kevin Rooney, boxer Chuck Wepner, who was allegedly the real-life inspiration for Rocky Balboa, so you can see why they brought him out in Philadelphia, naturally. And your third judge is... Gorilla Monsoon. Now, first of all, let me just say that the fans here give Gorilla a massive standing ovation, which was awesome. However, yeah. I have to note that it is, it's really jarring to see how much weight he's lost here due to oh, his ongoing battle with diabetes. Yeah. It's awful. Like, he, he does not look like he's alive. Like, that's how yeah. bad... He, yeah. Even besides the weight loss, I guess, look, just the look on his face, like, was it the... Was this the best thing to do, is to bring out poor Gorilla for this? Because... You got Vinny Paz in the ring. This was what was so funny. I was like, "There's like, there's like at least two biopics that are in this 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 match." Yeah. You have Vinny Paz from Bleed for This that just came out That's a couple right. years ago. That's and right. Of course, you've got Rocky, or that they the thirty for thirty is really solid on him too. That really digs into mm. to Webner. Webner though is a is a, he's done. He wrestled Andre. Well, he did kind of one of these brawl for all matches with Andre back in the day. Oh, I didn't realize that. They yeah, so like, like um... yeah, like so. You remember that Muhammad Ali and Antonio Anoki did their match? Yeah, that was Vince, a joke. like that. Which I mean, it's that is fascinating just because it's Vince McMahon's like first, like he failed, but like he had the right idea right. of what what people are going to want to buy in the next few years in terms of entertainment. But then they did Chuck Wepner and Andre the Giant, and like it's. I don't think it's extremely noteworthy for anything super spectacular, but yeah, it was just one of those like big time circus gimmick matches. Really, is all it was. But they did that with Andre and Chuck. That's what was really funny. I was hoping they would bring it up too because it does kind of connect to this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly a spec. What we get tonight is also certainly a spectacle for. Oh, oh, this supersedes what Webner and Andre did for <laughs> sure. Oh yes. And, oh, yeah, just quick, quickly touching on Gorilla Monsoon as well. You know, when he was wrestling, he was probably like, you know, I think he was billed as like a 400-pounder. And seeing him here tonight, he's got to be, you know, less than half that. I'd probably say like 160, 170 yeah. maybe. V- yeah. Very frail. And we're only about six months away from him dying of heart failure, which is obviously quite sad because he's, he's pretty much the voice of a lot of our childhoods. You know, that late oh, 90s, my God. Late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. What a presence. Absolutely. Frontal occipital protuberance. That was, that was one. He used to drop that one. He used to drop that one every now and then. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we go from talking about a man who is legendary to talking about a fight which is legendary, again, for all the wrong reasons. So Butterbean enters decked out in tights that resemble the American flag, whereas Bart Gunn and his trainers come out wearing blue and yellow robes, which actually kind of resemble the Swedish flag. So much so that I actually had to look up Bart Gunn to see if he had Swedish ancestry. And this is true. When I typed that into Google search, it actually replied, no one gives a fuck. That's a true story. True story. <laughs> and also in case in case you were wondering, the back of his robe specifies that he is Bart the Hammer Gunn. And let's just say he may want to add an ED at the end of that nickname after this fight. It's like the worst boxing name for him is the Hammer. Like, just yeah. the... <laughs> uh. Stealing Greg Valentine's nickname. I know, Bart the Hammer Gun. Like, your last name is Gun. Why would you put Hammer in there? Right. Like, smarter. Come on, get smarter. Exactly. It could be the shotgun or... There you go. That's easy enough. Just do that. He has a big left. Perfect. You nailed it. There, yeah, that's it. That took me two seconds. 
Much better than the hammer. Yeah. So, anyway, so both men do the customary stare down in the ring as referee Vinny Pazienza goes over the rules, and, well, uh, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play the entire fight for you right here. So let's take a listen to how this ends up going. We're going to be keeping score, folks, in each round. Unofficial results. We've got judges at ringside. Chuck Wetner, Kevin Rooney, Gorilla Monsoon. Here we go, round one, pro for all. Butterbean and Bart Gunn. And Butterbean with a stiff left to start things off. There's a left by Bart Gunn. What do you give the edge to in this one, King? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think without a doubt, probably Butter. Ooh, wow. Okay, so as you heard there, Butterbean knocked Bart Gunn down very quickly. In fact, only about 18 seconds into the fight, and strangely, if you listen to that clip, when Vinny Paz starts counting down Bart, you can hear that he starts counting at four for some reason. He completely skipped the one, two, three part, which to my knowledge is not something that's supposed to happen in boxing, but whatever. So Bart gets back up, and Vinny Paz asks him if he's okay to continue, to which Bart says yes, and man, oh man, I bet he wishes that he hadn't. Because no sooner does Bart Gunn agree to continue the fight than Butterbean fucking annihilates him with a right hand to the jaw, knocking out Bart and officially ending the fight at a whopping 35 seconds. And I mean, this is a vicious right hand. So Butterbean pretty much crumples him, and Bart's head actually hits the bottom rope on his way down, at which point he is then lying motionless on the canvas for about 20 seconds with his arms at his side. I mean, legitimately for a while there, it looks like he's fucking dead. But thankfully, he does sit up shortly after that, and William, I actually have it on good authority, that when his trainer asked him how many fingers he was holding up, Bart responded, Penguin! So, I mean, he was that out of it. He was that out of it. I... I think he may have actually thought he was late for school. It was bad. It was pretty bad. And by the way, you know it's a vicious knockout when they show the slow motion replay of the final punch on the Titantron, and you can hear the fans in the audience let out a collective, oh. So take a listen. I'll actually play that for you here so you can hear what I mean. And here's the second punch that knocked Bart Gunn down. This did it. Dunked down. Oh, that knocked him out. Brother. And then... Talk about forgettable moments in WrestleMania history after they get the spatula and scrape Bart Gunn off the canvas. Of all people, the San Diego Chicken comes out from backstage. Why the San Diego Chicken is here in Philadelphia, 3,000 miles away, I do not know. But my guess would be that they tried to get the Philly Fanatic and he shot them down by derisively gyrating his hips in their faces. But that's just my assumption. So anyway, with Vinny Pazienza now the only man left in the ring, the chicken then starts messing with him, including slapping him on the ass, so Vinny Paz hits him with an uppercut to the beak, knocking him down to the canvas. But strangely, the chicken only sells it for about three seconds before he's right back up on his feet running around the ring. Alas, if only Bart Gunn had such a strong chin. Uh, by the way, more on the chicken a little bit later on. So, William, what did you think of our Brawl for All contest here? 
All right. So, um, I mean, <laughs> first off, like when I saw who the judges were, I was like, oh man, I really want to, <laughs> I really want to see this go to the cards. Cause <laughs> I want to see how Chuck Wepner, who probably doesn't know any of the rules, You're looks right. over at Gorilla Monsoon, who's just, you know, just not there, shrugs his shoulders, doesn't care. Kevin Rooney, whatever he has to say, I would have loved to have seen the conversation about how how are we going to score this. But no, that's not going to happen here. Uh, like you said, when you have to watch this with the promo and everything just to hear his his announcer talk about like how just trying to pump him up, and you can kind of tell his trainers like, yeah, I mean this guy ain't shit, but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna talk him up as best I can. The punch is unbelievable, like. It could not like I don't know what I can only imagine what the reaction was like in the truck like when they were when this thing's going down like those guys must have been like this is a gift from God like <laughs> it really is like I'm sure they knew that you know Butterbean's gonna win this thing but it would be even better if he really just knocked the shit out of him and that punch is unbelievable like this cannot like as embarrassing as like in or as laughable this is this is amazing pay per view right here. Like, this is exactly what you would want. It's short, and it's incredibly memorable. So I think this is awesome. I agree. It, it's it's certainly like a it, like that car crash mentality where you see poor Bart Gunn go in there. And again, yeah, he knocked out, you know, three wrestlers in the brawl for all. It's different when you're fighting a guy who fights professionally, clearly. I mean, exactly. it, that should, it should go without saying, but, like, I don't know how. I, first of all, I give Bart Gunn credit for even stepping into the ring with Butterbean because, again, at this point, he's like, he's 42 wins, one loss in these tough man fights. Granted, I don't know how professional a tough man fight is when compared to a regular boxing match, but you're still going in there against a guy who's a legitimate badass at this point, and Bart Gunn agreed to do it. I also kind of felt a little bad for Bart because, you know, watching the Raws in the lead-up to this, this Brawl for All got, like, very little mention at all on Monday Night Raw. So it, it would I feel like it would be maybe a little bit better if they had hyped it up a little bit more to be like, oh, Bart Gunn, he was a big underdog going in, blah, blah. They basically don't mention it at all, aside from, like, that one episode of Raw where Bart Gunn comes back and Butterbean is, like, in the audience. Other than that, this got, like, no hype whatsoever. So I don't know if that was intentional because they've just been burying Bart for the past, you know, nine months since he won the Brawl for All, or if that was maybe them being like, uh, we're not going to hype this up because our wrestler is going to get killed by this tough man guy. I don't know. But I did feel bad for Bart because he was basically, you know, sacrificed at this altar to to somebody who he pretty much had no chance at beating. But poor poor Bart Gunn. This is, I'm pretty sure this is his very last appearance in the WWF. So I, I said it before, I'll say it again. I really think he deserved better for winning the Brawl for All. Because, I mean, in my opinion, when you have a guy like that, he wins four fights, he gets knockouts in three of them, he looks like an absolute badass, knocking out guys who are bigger than him, like the Godfather and fucking Bradshaw. I, I mean, you mean to tell me you couldn't have done something with this guy over the past nine months? Yeah, I mean, like, I think you're on the right track. Like, the only place I think, though, you could really park him is the Hardcore Division. And the reason I say that is because Bart Gunn was not a really, it was never a great wrestler to begin with, even with the smoking guns. Like, it was a fine tag team. You know, it's a, definitely a product of its time. Um, it worked for that. It worked to a degree for that run. But I mean, like, are you going to, are you going to put this guy in the Intercontinental title run? Probably not. Could you put him in another tag team? Maybe, but that's really not really capitalizing on the brawl for all, really. And then any of those other belts in the any of those other belts in the middle, like you know the European title, you know, not really. 
I just I I feel like they they start off with doing it right. Like when he came out and he and Bob Holly had a bit of a a feud. That would have been something really neat. If you're gonna redo yeah. this show instead of doing the Butterbean thing, it would have been cool to see more of a feud with him and Bob Holly with the backstory, the hardcore title, the brawl for all. I think that would have been something really cool to do with Bart Gunn. Yeah, that's a good call. Basically. You know, doing anything with him would have been nice as opposed to just being like, hey, you won this tournament that makes you look like a badass. Now uh, sit on your ass for the next the next nine months. So I don't know. But, uh, you know, R.I.P. Bart Gunn. You know, you gave us you gave us one quality. You got you got your WrestleMania moment. At least we can say that you know, for better or for worse. So we then move on to our next match, which is Mankind versus the Big Show Paul White, with the winner earning the right to become the special guest referee later tonight in the main event. And strangely, William, I don't know if you noticed this on the WWE Network, but when Big Show comes out from backstage, could you tell that Howard Finkel's audio was clearly overdubbed? Yes. And I, I couldn't tell if it was the... Is it the music that they're doing something with? And that's what is causing, like... I don't know. Like, that's what I'm confused about. I don't know what they would be overdubbing. Yeah, I, so I went back and I found... I, I think he just enters the corporation theme, so that they shouldn't have, like, any sort of issue with that but like when i found the original footage like howard finkel was saying the exact same thing so it wasn't like i know at this time there were like some of the old videos they censored wwf and all that but like you know wwf is all over this show so i don't i don't understand i i, I really don't know what they what the difference was but yeah if you watch this video or rather if you watch this match on the network you'll notice it's very noticeable that finkel like was overdubbed here for whatever reason so if you've been listening to the past oh say you know five or six episodes of this podcast, you'll know that this guest referee storyline has actually been featured heavily on Monday Night Raw since about mid-February. So the big show was initially announced as the guest referee for the main event, but Mankind did all sorts of campaigning and had to actually win several matches in order to even earn the right to compete in this match. So there actually has been a lot of build-up here. Now, how will it all play out? Well, let's get into it. So early on in the match, William, it once again struck me that Big Show is doing moves where he is essentially throwing himself to the ground. In this case, he hits Mankind with a side Russian leg sweep, and I don't mean to keep belaboring this point on the podcast, but it always looks strange to me to see a big man delivering a move like that. I mean, maybe it's just me, but would you agree with that statement, like, when you see a seven-footer doing a move like a side Russian leg sweep, that you're like, eh, why? It's just like seeing a light heavyweight do a choke slam. Yes. It just, it just doesn't work. Don't, don't do it. I forget where I heard this before, but I think it was, there, it might have been like a Kevin Nash shoot interview where like, you know, in late 94 when he beats back on for the title and they're still kind of like working the house show circuit together. So they're working a match together and Bob Backlund calls for Kevin Nash at, you know, as Diesel. He calls for Diesel to give him a sunset flip. So, so Diesel, you know, obliges because Bob Backlund's the veteran and he does a sunset flip on him. And then after the match, like when they go backstage, uh, Kevin Nash basically just gets completely chewed out by The Undertaker, who's like, you made us look fucking stupid out there, blah, blah, blah. So that's just kind of... <laughs> hey, man. Hey, what are you doing there, Nash? Hell are you yeah. doing? That's basically... That's what should have happened here, I feel. I feel like Undertaker should have taken the big show aside and been like, dude, you know, maybe, maybe you know, stick to taking the, the Russian leg sweep out of your arsenal. Just just a quick pro tip there. Well, they do team up a little bit. I mean, it's Maybe that was sort of the, the impetus for all this because we're going to see them together, I think, yeah, pretty soon. Yeah, a couple months, yeah. They, they do form an unholy alliance, we'll say that. So anyway, shortly after that, Mankind pulls out Mr. Sacco, and 
After two failed attempts, he does indeed manage to put Socko into the Big Show's mouth. In fact, he puts it there for a while, weakening Paul White and taking him down to one knee, but then that's where Foley made a crucial mistake. Why? Because instead of standing in front of Big Show and putting Socko in his mouth, Mankind kept Socko in Paul White's mouth and went around his back, which enabled the Big Show to basically pick Mankind up into a piggyback position. And from there, William, since you're the expert on this sort of thing, would you call what happens next a best-of-luck spot? Ding, ding. That is exactly <laughs> what I have in my notes. This nice. is definitely a best-of-luck spot, and the crowd agrees. Yes, they absolutely do. Basically, if, if you're scoring this at home, what happens here is that Big Show has Mankind on his own back in the piggyback position, and then Paul White basically jumps backwards, causing Mick Foley to land back first on the mat, and also, of course, thrusting the Big Show's entire 500-plus pounds onto him. It really is quite brutal-looking. And, William, like you said, uh, very, very similar to that that Butterbean knockout punch, it does get a big O from the Philly crowd. And funniest thing is, dude, this is, Mick Foley's done this with Vader, so he knows what's coming. That's what's awesome here. He's right. like, ah, you know what? I've done this before. I've done it through the ramps. Let's do it. Yeah. So yes, the freshly squashed Mankind then rolls out of the ring, where the Big Show follows him and proceeds to nail him in the stomach and in the back with a steel chair right in front of referee Earl Hebner. However, Hebner doesn't call for the disqualification, so remember that little tidbit for 10 seconds from now. Why? Because Big Show then tosses that chair into the ring, and then for good measure, he throws another chair into the ring as well. He then proceeds to stand up the chairs side by side so that each of their seats are kind of facing one another, and from there, he picks up Mankind and choke slams him right through the two chairs. And of course, because this is the Attitude Era and logic is completely non-existent, Earl Hebner then calls for the bell, and Howard Finkel announces that Mankind has won the match via disqualification. So to recap, Paul White hitting Mankind with two chair shots outside the ring... Not a DQ. Paul White chokeslamming Mankind through two chairs in the ring. That is a disqualification. Certainly can't argue with that train of thought. Good lord. But anyway, the larger point here is that since Mankind has won the match, that means that he has now earned the right to become the special guest referee for the Rock Austin title match later tonight. And once the match concludes, an angry Vince McMahon walks to the ring. And strangely, Vince doesn't grab a mic, but we can hear most of what he's saying to the Big Show. So let's take a listen to what happens next. What are you doing? I don't give a damn about him, but do you realize what you've just done? Paul, do you have any idea? Do you realize what the hell you've just done? You could have cost me, I'm not going to let it happen, but you could have cost me the WWE. I counted on you to be the referee. You've been disqualified. Hey, listen. Don't walk away from me. Uh-oh. Don't make that mistake. Wait a minute. Don't walk away from me. Remember this. I'm Vince McMahon, and you're a nobody. Don't. Oh! Paul White has got the boss. He's got to on the boss. Oh, he came to his senses. Thank God. Yeah, thank God for Mr. McMahon. He is about to be drilled through that mat. Don't be. You, you can't be so damn... You 
So what you heard there was Vince calling the Big Show a nobody, which caused Paul White to grab the chairman by the throat and lift him up for a choke slam. but then he thought better of it and put Vince back down. However, instead of quitting while he was ahead, Mr. McMahon kept belittling him, and then he slapped Big Show right in the face. And in response, Paul White delivered a knockout punch to Vince, and dare I say, some might call that a WMD, the Big Show then walked off backstage yelling, quote, Nobody owns me, as Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe headed down to ringside to tend to their fallen boss. But meanwhile, EMTs also brought out a stretcher for Mick Foley, who was still lying on the canvas, selling some sort of injury from that choke slam through the two chairs. So again, another recap here. When Mick Foley gets thrown off the top of Hell in a Cell, he stands up from a stretcher and wrestles for another 20 minutes, but when he takes one choke slam from Paul White... He's down for the count. All right, then. Okay. And after the Stooges help Vince backstage, he tells them to find him a cell phone because he's going to call the cops and, quote, I want that big son of a bitch arrested for assault, and I want him arrested right now. And that is how we put the capper on this segment. So, William, what did you think of Mankind versus The Big Show and the subsequent shenanigans with Vince McMahon? There's just, they have to keep tacking more and more onto this, you know? Like, it's mm. just, <laughs> we just can't have this thing end, so... It'll build some nice drama for later. The match itself like has a, a couple of those spots that are really wild. The choke slam, the chairs need to be a little bit closer together, not to cause a little bit more harm to Foley, but to really get the, the, the visual down, you needed that. But um, I forgot how convoluted we got even on the show with this whole thing. So that's how I kind of left. It was like, man, there's just a lot of business going on here. Yeah, I also found it fitting that uh, we're only like a month and a half into his tenure, and the big show has already turned face. So really, really setting the tone for what his career in the WWF slash WWE is going to be, I think, early on. The match itself was okay, but now obviously, I mean, the buildup for so long has been this whole guest referee thing, and now it seems a little bit, uh, you know, murky as to what that situation is. So we'll get a little bit more on that later, but needless to say, the big show face turn with the punch to Vince McMahon, pretty, pretty good stuff. I did enjoy, I think the crowd actually enjoyed it too. Uh, seeing Big Show knock out Vince. So, you know, that was that was a little fun capper. And again, that Mankind spot where he basically takes the full force of, of Paul White's weight onto him, absolutely brutal. You, you know, it's WrestleMania, so Mankind was going to find a way to get in, you know, a horrendous spot to hurt himself. So, good stuff. And so from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is a four-corner elimination match for the WWF Intercontinental title champion, the Road Dog Jesse James versus Val Venus versus Ken Shamrock versus Gold Dust, who is accompanied by the Blue Meanie and Ken's sister, Ryan Shamrock. Now, first off, let me just point out that the infamous ECW fan known as Hat Guy can be seen sitting in the second row, and I point this out only because he is mercilessly heckling Ken Shamrock for a good portion of this match. You can see him flipping off Shamrock and actually hear him yell, fuck you a few times. Why is he only heckling Shamrock? I have no idea, but there you go. So anyway, I thought the early few minutes of this match were actually pretty solid, with all four men taking turns in the ring, getting their various moves in, including, of course, 
Road Dog once again busting out his trademark pump handle slam where he pretends to anally rape his opponent. Charming, as always. But then we finally got our first elimination of the match when Shamrock and Val started brawling up the aisle. So referee Tim White started his 10 count, and Shamrock realized what was going on, so he sprinted back to the ring, but he was too late. Both Shamrock and Val were counted out, leaving Road Dog and Goldust as the last two men left in the match. But as you might expect, getting counted out didn't sit too well with Kenny, so he proceeded to give belly-to-belly suplexes to both Road Dog and Goldust before he finally exited and headed backstage. And then, when both men got back to their feet, we had another one of those confusing wrestling spots that always bothers me. So essentially, Goldust prepared to Irish whip Road Dog off the ropes, presumably with the intention of Ryan Shamrock tripping Road Dog. However, Road Dog reversed Goldust's attempt, and instead of actually looking at who was coming, Ryan just stuck out her arm and accidentally tripped Goldust instead. Now, I've, I've seen this spot you know, like multiple times over the years, and it still fails to make any sense whatsoever to me, because if the person outside the ring just uses their friggin' eyes, this spot would never actually happen, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, this is dumb. This is, I mean, this is just stupid. Because usually, like, if you're a, the good managers that do this, they act like they're not looking because they're trying to be inconspicuous or whatever while they do it. She's, like, her. Right. she's turned towards him. So it just <laughs> makes her look stupid. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So anyway, Goldust pauses to yell at Ryan, who has just tripped him, so Road Dog takes that opportunity to charge toward him, but Goldust sees him coming and hits Road Dog with a power slam. However, in a spot I don't think I've ever seen before, Road Dog basically rolls through the power slam, so he ends up on top of Goldust, pinning him for the one, the two, and the three. So your winner, and still the WWF Intercontinental Champion, is the Road Dog Jesse James. And by the way, huge pop from the crowd for Road Dog's win. They do, they love the D-O-double-G, that's for sure. So after the match, both Goldust and the Blue Meanie proceed to yell at Ryan Shamrock, blaming her for costing Goldust the title. Goldust then tells her to get lost, and so it appears that Ryan is single once again. First she was dumped by Val Venus, then her relationship with Billy Gunn just kinda ended, and now Goldust has kicked her to the curb. Poor gal just can't seem to find love. Wild suggestion, though, maybe she should look for someone who isn't a wrestler. Just a thought. Just a thought. But anyway, William, what do you think of our four-corner elimination intercontinental title match? It's fine. I mean, I hate to say that again, but that's just, it's fine. I think that's kind of the problem with this show is that you have a lot of, like, eh type of matches on it, unfortunately. And this one's no different. I mean, Four Corners Elimination is always, like, just troublesome. Just It's not usually very good. Uh, it's usually lends to a lot of, like, kind of BS where it's like, all right, how are we going to take out two guys at once, do a double count out, something like that. Uh, overall, like, I, I definitely felt like I was like, I don't really care who comes out of this. Like, I did not have <laughs> any I, – I never felt one way or the other towards anybody that I was really pulling for in this, unfortunately. Yeah, that's definitely understandable. I mean, the Road Dog is probably the sentimental favorite, but yeah, the other three guys in the match is kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. Val Venus, the, the really hasty sort of heel turn they gave to him, 
kind of cooled him off a little bit, and then Road Dog basically just took the title off him on Raw randomly. So it's kind of like there wasn't a lot of momentum for a lot of the guys in this match. And, you know, Road Dog is just, you know, he's always over by virtue of being, you know, DX and the Outlaws. So, I mean, I guess it was good to see him retain here. But, yeah, it, it wasn't anything too special. Again, it probably, like you said, most of this card is just, you know, a thumbs in the middle, kind of like a solid C, C minus. And, yeah, this match was definitely no exception in that regard. But it, it is kind of funny because I didn't realize the Road Dog actually held the Intercontinental title for this long. I don't know if he ever wins it back when he loses it. Spoiler alert. But I guess that's something we'll we'll all find out together. Very soon. <clears throat> Yeah, <laughs> wink, wink. So from there, we go outside the arena, where the big show is now surrounded by police officers, so clearly Vince McMahon was true to his word. The cops then put Big Show in the back of a car without cuffing him, but then again, I suppose, you know, good luck trying to find some cuffs that would fit his wrists, I suppose. And we then head back into the arena for our next match, Triple H versus Kane. Now, in case you need a quick reminder of some of the more noteworthy parts of this feud... Kane tried to shoot a fireball at Hunter, but he ducked, which resulted in China taking the fire right to her eyeball. And then, to get some payback on Kane for that fireball attempt, last week Triple H awesomely dressed as gold dust and blasted what was basically a fire bazooka right into Kane's face. So yes, this feud certainly has had some quality fire-related moments. So anyway, Kane comes to the ring first, and that proves to be an important detail because, well, a certain someone proceeds to make his presence felt before Kane even gets to the ring. In fact, let's take a listen. Kane and Triple H tonight at WrestleMania 50. Kane, what is this? That's the, that's the chicken. What is he doing? What the hell is the chicken doing? He was out here challenging Vinny. Kane, oh, wait a minute. You know what? That may be Helmsley in another disguise. Maybe Triple H again. Ambushing Kane. He's a- So yes, as you heard there, the San Diego Chicken once again made an appearance, but this time, he jumped Kane from behind. However, the Big Red Machine quickly got the better of him, and he then proceeded to tear off the head of the Chicken costume to reveal that the man underneath was... Pete Rose. Kane then tossed Pete into the ring, and for the second year in a row, he nailed him with a tombstone, just like he did to Pete last year at WrestleMania 14. However, I have to note one crucial difference here. Last year, Kane attacked Pete after he was mercilessly mocking the Boston fans, but I have to point out tonight they're in Philadelphia, and Pete Rose is actually a beloved figure in this city due to his five-year tenure with the Philadelphia Phillies, including helping them to win the World Series in 1980. So I guess that means this year, Pete would, I suppose, be the baby face in this equation. But anyway, with that being said, 
I still love this. And I said this last year when I covered Pete Rose's appearance at last year's Mania, and I'll utter the same four words this time around. This guy gets it. Not only is he taking a tombstone, which is certainly not a move I'd want to receive, but I dare say he's also selling it pretty well, too. So I don't know, William, what do you think of these Pete Rose appearances? Am I overrating them a bit too much? Not at all. No, you nailed it exactly. He gets it. That's all that matters. Between the promo last year, doing this this year, the only thing they needed to do, and this isn't even on him, there needed to be a bit more of a, a dramatic reveal with the mask. Right. Because when it happens, like every, it, the crowd doesn't get it at first. The announcers stumble into it. Like That's the only thing they needed to improve. But otherwise, this is fantastic. Yes, absolutely. And last year, I mean, as I said at WrestleMania 14, Pete also cut a really strong heel promo on that card, too, surprisingly. So he didn't get any mic time this year. But again, taking a tombstone for a non-wrestler when you're like, you know, drop me on my head. Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, it's not something as a non-wrestler someone would probably want to do, I imagine. But hey, Pete Rose, he's, he's up for anything. Oh, by the way, Michael Cole also had a bit of an amusing line about Pete Rose that I wanted to point out. Quote, He once had a 44-game hit streak. How long is he going to keep this up? WrestleMania 30? And all I could think about that was how fitting that Cole is talking about Pete taking his streak to WrestleMania 30. You know, certainly not the only streak we'd be talking about on that night, but, you know, I digress. I suppose that's a separate issue. So anyway, eventually your leader of DX, Triple H, does indeed come out to challenge Kane, but he uses a little bit of trickery. With the DX theme playing, Kane is facing toward the entrance ramp, but Hunter sneaks up on him through the crowd and nails Kane with a low blow. Referee Teddy Long then calls for the bell to start the match, so we are indeed underway. And early on in the match, we get a spot where both men are brawling outside the ring, and Kane proceeds to drop Hunter onto the barricade, and he then punches him into the front row, where Triple H lands on the Mean Street Posse. And I thought for sure the Posse would attack Hunter, since they're so closely aligned with Shane McMahon, who will be facing Hunter's buddy X-Pac later tonight. But no, they don't attack him. Huh, strange. Wonder why. So as you might expect, Kane controlled the majority of the match, and at one point he even attempted to copy his brother by getting a running start and diving over the top rope right onto Triple H. Admittedly, it didn't quite look as graceful as when The Undertaker does it, and Kane actually had to kind of, like, push down the top rope before he jumped, but still, very impressive agility for a guy his size. Continuing on, Triple H managed to seize the momentum by hitting Kane with that face buster, knocking the big red machine to the canvas, but then... China emerged from backstage. Now remember, China had been aligned with Hunter for about two years before she turned on him and joined the corporation back in January, so Triple H certainly looks quite unhappy to see her here. And China immediately proceeds to make her presence felt as she unhooks the top of the steel steps and pushes them into the ring for some reason, which Teddy Long does absolutely nothing about. So Kane picks up the steps, but unfortunately for him, his plan backfires because Hunter kicks them right back into his face. And just as I said earlier tonight during that Big Show Mankind match, why is there no DQ? I guess you probably rationalize maybe that, you know, he was defending himself, so it was okay. I don't know. Whatever. But moving a little bit further on, Kane ends up hitting Triple H with a choke slam, and it appears that China wants to put the finishing touches on Hunter with a steel chair, so let's pick it up from there. Triple H for the ride! Choke slam! Choke slam! And now China with a chair she to wants, accent this! She wants to put the exclamation point, as you said, on it! Let me, she's saying, let me! 
China's saying, let me. Triple H already devastated by the choke slam. And China's going to put on the exclamation. So yes, as you heard there, China entered the ring with a steel chair, ready to destroy Triple H, but instead she took the chair and nailed Kane in the back with it, resulting in a disqualification victory for the Big Red Machine. From there, Triple H grabbed the chair and hit Kane in the back with it, followed by another shot to the head since this is 1999 after all. He then put the chair on the canvas and, sure enough, he planted Kane with a pedigree onto the chair and yes, as is his custom, Kane does indeed proceed to take that pedigree knees first. I'm pretty sure he's never taken a pedigree where he hasn't done that sell. And from there, China jumps into Triple H's arms as D-Generation X's music plays. The ninth wonder of the world has come home to DX, and at this point, there's no question that the group is stronger than ever. A massive feel-good moment for the fans, and I'm certainly looking forward to the fully reunited DX wreaking havoc on the WWF. So, William, what did you think of Triple H versus Kane and China's subsequent return home to D-Generation X? This is such a weird payoff, like, for this feud. And I'm, we're not talking about what happens. We're just talking right at this point. Right. This is a, it's just a weird payoff. Like, I just... I remember when this happened, I saw it, I was like, oh, that's anticlimactic, because there's a lot of business that's been going into this feud that's basically been going on since, what, January, I think? Yes. This has been a long, a long feud, and the bigger arc here this fits into is there's so many guys that are in the wrong matches. They just feel like they're in the wrong matches. Yeah. This just feels like this does not serve either one of them that well. And yeah, man, I mean, like... The, the moment of them getting, you know, back together at the end is great, but, like, usually that entails, like, I mean, it usually that means a lot more, like, when it's the, the face is up against some dastardly heel, but, like, Kane has been so sympathetic that it's just, a, it's a weird feeling at the end. Yeah, I mean, the reunion is nice, but like you said, this has been, like, basically, you know, China and Triple H have been apart for, like, two months, you know, if that. So it's kind of strange that it's like China's, you know, team corporate all the way. And now all of a sudden, you know, she goes from hating Triple H to, you know, pretty much eight weeks later. Hey, we're back together with no real explanation whatsoever. So, yeah, it's again, it's nice to see them back together in DX. But by the same token, it's a little abrupt and doesn't really make any sense that they would reconcile 
so quickly. But I will say I do I love this not so much this moment, but what it sets up later on. I'm a I'm a big fan of I guess like the the total you know package of it together. But yeah, admittedly it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense right here you know from from a storyline perspective. But hey, I mean hey, you could pretty much say that about probably a fair majority of the storylines in the Attitude Era. Hashtag Vince Russo. So from there, we go backstage where Kevin Kelly is trying to shed some light as to who the referee will be for tonight's main event. So let's take a listen to what happens from there. Well, Michael, a little clarification, if we can, on this entire situation. Who will be the referee? Who will be the guest referee for the main event tonight? The biggest match in WWF history. We know the big show Paul White has been arrested, taken away by authorities. Michael, I want to correct you a little bit. You said, oh, mankind should be the referee. He's been taken away to a local hospital. There's chaos. There's confusion back here. We're trying to get some clarification, and hopefully we'll be able to do so. Uh, Mr. Mr. McMahon? Maybe I can help you out a little bit. It just so happened that I have in my bag, my athletic bag, the best-looking referee shirt. You know what? I'm going to be the guest referee. What? What? I told no you more controversy. <laughs> Excuse me, i got to go get ready. Yes! So there you have it. After weeks of building up the Mankind Big Show feud over who will be the special guest referee in the main event of the biggest show of the year, neither of them will actually be the ref, and instead, Vince McMahon is stepping in to fill the void. And by the way, William, as an actor yourself, you want to talk about line readings? Did you enjoy Vince's incredibly subtle delivery when he says, I'm going to be the guest referee? (laughs) What's great is he talks about, I think he says, I've got a referee shirt in my duffel bag. Apparently he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I point that out later on, too. (laughs) I just love that you're right. The delivery is great. I'm going to be. It's fantastic yeah because he's talking in his normal voice before that but then when it comes to that that one thing talking about the referee he's like he just lowers his voice and he's like i'm gonna be the guest referee even it's like a little bit of a rhyming cadence too so yeah really really strange line delivery but you know subtlety is not vince's strong suit i imagine so from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Women's Championship, Champion Sable versus Challenger, Tori, and yes, for those of you scoring at home, after Sable tells us that this is for the women who want to be her and the men who come to see her, she asks us all an important question. Are you ready for the grind? So yes, we finally have a name for Sable's lackluster dance, where she just swivels her hips around a couple times. Had to debut that on the biggest stage of them all, clearly. And as for Tori, she's wearing a full-body catsuit that's airbrushed with stripes to make it look like the body of a tiger. At least, I think that was what she was going for. Basically, picture giant Gonzalez crossed with Battle Cat, and you'll get the idea. Or, I guess you could picture Tony the Tiger's sister, Tori the Tiger. Either way. And folks, I know this will shock you, but Jerry Lawler is in full-on, creepy old man territory during this match, because at one point, he proclaims he's unable to take his eyes off of Sable's ass, and he then says, quote, Look at those cute little cheeks! No no, no clever innuendo like we're used to getting from him. It's just like a, an old perv being like, oh, a nice caboose. You know, really. Just, yeah, that's, that's, that's what it is. So as you might expect, the match isn't pretty, let's just say. 
quite sloppy, as evidenced by a badly botched spot where Tori tries to bridge up from a Sable pinfall attempt, but she doesn't quite make it, and both of them fall back down to the canvas. However, at one point, Sable actually does hit a crossbody from the ring apron down to Tori on the floor, so yeah, props for trying something, I suppose. And back in the ring, Tori went for what appeared to be a flying forearm, but Sable ducked, causing Tori to accidentally knock out referee Jimmy Corderas, so Sable then went for a Sable bomb, and we got another horrendous botch, as I think Tori was supposed to block it by landing on her feet, but instead she fell right on her ass, and then simply punched Sable in the stomach while she was sitting on the mat. I mean, yikes. So Tori then bent Sable over, and she appeared ready to deliver a Sable bomb of her own, but, well, let's just pick it up from there. So yes, with Tori about to hit Sable with a powerbomb, Nicole Bass made her WWF debut. Now, in case you're wondering who the hell Nicole Bass is, she gained prominence by appearing on the Howard Stern Show, mostly being mocked for the fact that she's a 6'2 female bodybuilder who looks manly, har har har. And of course, because Vince Russo is a huge Howard Stern fan, he couldn't help but bring in another member of Stern's whack pack. And I say another because Hank the Angry Drunken Dwarf and Crackhead Bob also made an appearance on a May 1998 episode of Raw. I can't believe I'm actually researching these things, but hey, welcome to my life. So anyway, Nicole Bass entered the ring and proceeded to press slam Tori, dropping her face first down to the mat, and from there, Sable nailed Tori with a Sable bomb. Referee Jimmy Corderas recovered. He made the count, and yes, that was enough to give the victory to Sable, meaning that she is still your WWF Women's Champion. And please, allow me to review this match in a way that the tiger suit-wearing Tory would surely understand. Not great, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, William, what did you think of this one? All right. I actually was I was surprised by this. Oh. And the reason I say that is that it is sloppy. I give them a lot of credit for trying to really do a lot of spots in this match. Like... They could have easily filled this time by doing a bunch of nonsense. You know, like just the typical Attitude Era women's match. Like, let's just get down to hair pulling and just rolling around and that's it. Instead, they really try to do almost, dare I say, chain wrestling at one point in this? Like, they, they really, they really try that. And I give, I, I actually give them a lot of credit because 
what we've always heard about WrestleMania 14 is that Sable did not, like, she was so into protecting herself that, like, Luna really had to carry the match and do everything in the world to make her look good. Right. And what's great here is, like, you know, Tori ain't got it. She doesn't, she's not the veteran here at all. So this is Sable having to actually, like, kind of suck it up. You're going to have to wrestle. You're going to have to take some bumps. She takes that. She goes for that apron splash, which I'm sorry. Like, if you're wrestling somebody who's green and you're going to go for something like that, that's a pretty ballsy move. Yeah. So as easy as it would be to really just just trash this thing, I'm not just because I really admire the effort that was put into it. I hate the Nicole Bass finish because it's like, damn it. It just, it, I would have liked to have seen this actually have, like, a real ending to it, but... You know, it's fine. I get it. It's going to further along the storyline a little bit, but I actually was a little bit surprised by this one. Yeah, and on that note of the ring apron splash, like you said, Tori doesn't really catch her when she comes off for that splash. So, yeah, you, you make a good point there about kind of like trusting yourself with someone who's who's obviously quite green. But, yeah, Sable, once again, the champ. And, again, this is another thing I had no memory of. I didn't remember, you know, Nicole Bass, of all people, debuting on what is literally the biggest stage for the WWF, like, like I did not remember her, you know, coming into the company during WrestleMania. So another another nice little surprise. Well, maybe not nice little surprise, but it was at least a bit of a surprise in this match. I was kind of like, how is Sable going to retain her belt here? Because, you know, I felt pretty confident Tori wasn't going to win. So now we know. And so once that match concludes, we go backstage where China has now rejoined Triple H, Road Dog, Billy Gunn, and X-Pac. And speaking of X-Pac, he's about to face Shane McMahon, but before that happens, Triple H has some words for the boss's son. X-Pac, it looks like your chances of regaining the European Championship have greatly increased because China's come home. I'll tell you what, China's come home and DX is one big house again, stronger than it's ever been. Shane, I don't care if you're the boss's son, you better bring everything you got tonight. Because X-Pac is handing you your shiny corporate ass. DX is whole, and there ain't nothing stronger. Shane, get ready for some pain. So you heard it from D-Generation X's leader himself. DX is reunited, and no one can stop them. And with that in mind, we then head back into the arena for our WWF European title match. Champion Shane McMahon, accompanied by Test versus Challenger X-Pac. And amusingly, when X-Pac is walking to the ring, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe attempt to jump him from behind, but X-Pac quickly dispatches both of them. It appears that Shane had thought up sort of a first line of defense there, but it didn't quite work out for him, so Pac simply heads to the ring once the Stooges are incapacitated. And early on, Shane tries to run away from X-Pac, but eventually, Pac catches up to him and spin kicks him in the face. From there, Shane exits the ring and tries to leave, but X-Pac once again catches up to him, and he throws Shane back into the ring. However, when Mike Kyoto wasn't looking, Test took that opportunity to pick up X-Pac and throw him groin first into the ring post, which is a move that I have to say I certainly would not want to take. And Test, by the way, appears to be wearing blue jeans with a weight belt over them for some reason, which may somehow even be a downgrade from his guns don't kill people, I kill people shirt. Looking like a complete asshole out there wearing weight belt, wearing jeans with a weight belt of all things. And back in the ring, Shane actually scoop slammed the weakened X-Pac, then he went for his own version of the corporate elbow, but X-Pac moved out of the way. 
However, Tess then jumped up on the ring apron to distract referee Mike Kyoto, which allowed Shane to hit a low blow on X-Pac. I have to say, so far the storytelling of this match is actually pretty good. They're showing that Shane is clearly overmatched, but all the interference is allowing him to gain the upper hand, so pretty good stuff. And speaking of Tess's weight belt, it then comes into play as he hands it to Shane, and the boss's son then proceeds to whip X-Pac with it several times right in front of Kyoto. And yet... No disqualification. I feel like those four words might as well be the theme of tonight's show. And yet, no disqualification. So Shane goes for another belt shot, but X-Pac backdrops him over the top rope, and then, when Pac goes to the floor, the Mean Street Posse make their presence felt by trying to grab him, but Pac easily dispatches all of them before tossing Shane back into the ring. Eventually, X-Pac managed to hit Shane with a top rope superplex, and he went for the pinfall but Tess grabbed X-Pac's ankle and pulled him out of the ring. And again, no DQ from Kyoto. And then finally, just about a minute later, after X-Pac hit a Bronco Buster on Shane, Tess snuck into the ring behind Kyoto and hit Pac in the face with the European title belt. Shane slowly crawled over to make the pinfall, but it only got a two count. So finally, Tess appeared to just say, Fuck it, because instead of interfering behind Kyoto's back, he then just simply stepped over the top rope and went after X-Pac, but Pac knocked him down to the mat with a spin kick. And from there, yes, X-Pac set up Test for a Bronco Buster, and even better, X-Pac's pals Triple H and China headed to ringside to provide some backup, so let's pick it up from there. So as you heard there, Triple H and China headed to ringside, seemingly to provide backup for X-Pac. However, once Pac hit Shane with an X-Factor, China started distracting referee Mike Kyoto for some reason, and then 
Triple H snuck into the ring, kicked X-Pac in the stomach, and nailed him with a pedigree. He then dragged Shane on top of Pac, China jumped down from the ring apron, Kyoto made the count, and yes, that was enough to score the three count. Your winner and still WWF European champion, Shane McMahon. And after the match, Triple H and Tess proceeded to continue beating on X-Pac until the Road Dog and Billy Gunn ran down to the ring, but Hunter and Tess were able to take both of them out as well. And at this point, as Michael Cole said, it really does appear as though Triple H and China have done the unthinkable, they've abandoned DX and joined the corporation. I will mention that one other thing happened which I didn't play in the clip there. Eventually, Kane comes down to ringside and chases everyone away, but that wasn't as noteworthy compared to the bigger picture, where it appears that D-Generation X, as we know it, is pretty much dead. So, William, what did you think of Shane vs. X-Pac and Triple H's shocking swerve to join the corporation? Uh, this is a heartbreaker, because this match is arguably as hot a feud as the main event. It was huge. Yes. This thing, the, the heat this thing had was really, really good. I mean, it's it's kind of underrated when it comes to WrestleMania builds, how good this was. And to have it play out like it did, you know, is always just one of those things. Like, if I would like this WrestleMania so much more if X-Pac got this win, but... Yeah. Unfortunately, he doesn't. And the turn by Triple H, it's a little confusing. Like, I mean, I, the motivati- the motivations behind it, I guess, like, you know, I, I, what's wild is, like, how lost in the shuffle Triple H is going to end up being because of, of the aforementioned, like, mega thing that's about to happen in WWF. So it's interesting. It's interesting that this is where the beginnings of the game really start. This is it. Mm-hmm. Because Triple H, after tonight, will not really be a true face for uh man it may be up until he tears his quad i think i think you're right yeah i mean it's a long time this really sets into motion like the real rise of triple h so on the one hand it's necessary to into a degree it's just again we're just like okay all right so we're having him join the corporation okay all right awesome it's such a but it's so deflating it's so deflating by the yeah. end of it yeah i think that's why i kind of have I think this, for me, this does work, like the Triple H turning on Xbox, because going in, I assumed, I remember when I when this pay-per-view was on back in 99, I assumed, you know, a, a lot of the matches I wasn't totally sure how they were going to play out, but this one I was I was 100% sure Shane McMahon's definitely losing that title, you know, cause the way they built this up, I was like, Xbox is obviously going to win the title back, because no one wants to see Shane win, but the way they did it with Triple H turning his back on DX, it was... For me, the like you know, the, I remember it. I I felt heartbroken by it because I was like, oh my god, like this is this is DX and DX has basically you know just been killed while they're still a hugely popular faction. And I think retroactively, I have fonder memories of this too because it does launch, like you said, the Triple H heel turn, which ultimately you know does not right away. Obviously, it doesn't put him into that next stratosphere, but it does. You know, by the end of the year, he's he's on that upper level with the main event guys like Rock and Triple H. So, you know, I, I think it is, for me, retroactively watching this, it is an effective turn because it really is unexpected. And granted, you know, a lot of the turns are unexpected and they go nowhere. But this one, it does work for me in the sense that it is sort of the, you know, it, obviously Triple H has been a heel before, but this is kind of a different, this is a different type of Triple H heel. He's not the blue blood snob. Obviously, he's not a DX heel because he's joining the corporation now. So it's it's a different layer to the Triple H character, and again, this is kind of like the launching point for where, yeah, like you said, it's a good point, because I think he probably is a heel until that return in, like, January of 2002, 
or whatever it is, I think, right? So it's almost almost three straight years of, of Triple H being a pretty effective heel. Some some liking his heel work more than others. Let's just say that when he starts uh, sort of running roughshod over the company. But this worked for me. This this did work for me retroactively. I, I liked the heel turn quite a bit. So from there, we continue on to our next match, and it is a Hell in a Cell match. The Undertaker, accompanied by Paul Bearer, versus the Big Boss Man. Now, as a reminder. This is only the third ever Hell in a Cell match on pay-per-view, with the previous two being Undertaker vs. Shawn Michaels at Bad Blood in October of 97, and Undertaker vs. Mankind at King of the Ring 98. Big shoes to fill, let's say. So will this match live up to the hype? Uh, well, I, I guess we'll see. Now, before the match begins, William, I have to note that there is an infamous blunder that actually gets edited out on the WWE Network here. So while the cell is lowering from the ceiling, Michael Cole informs us about the after show on the Home Shopping Network, but he may have accidentally revealed a spoiler when he did it. And don't forget, immediately following WrestleMania, as you see the hell in a cell, the ominous cell making its way down over the ring on the Home Shopping Network. It's the show after the show. Post-game comment. We'll hear from the new WWF champion. You'll have a chance to buy some exclusive merchandise right after WrestleMania on the Home Shopping Network. In case you didn't catch the noteworthy part there, Michael Cole just said we'll hear from the new WWF champion, so apparently there may be a title change in the main event, maybe? I guess we'll have to stay tuned and find out. But just as a reminder, Michael Cole is still employed by WWE today in 2019, so just putting that out there. But anyway, William, as I've stated in the weeks leading up to WrestleMania, I actually think the build-up to our Hell in a Cell match here has been pretty fantastic, with The Undertaker doing all sorts of bonkers stuff to torment Vince McMahon, including dressing up as Kane to ambush him, showing up at Vince's home in Connecticut, burning an Undertaker symbol on his lawn. It's all really great stuff. And of course, the big boss man, as Vince's head of security, has been appointed as the man to try and prevent Taker from continuing these crazy antics. Totally on board with that. Unfortunately, though, well, at some point they actually have to have a match, I suppose, so we might as well get into it. And yes, when The Undertaker comes to the ring, we do get the in-arena debut of the new Ministry of Darkness theme song. And in case you're scoring at home, this first version actually features Taker doing a lot more talking than the version which ultimately ends up being used more regularly. With this one, we actually get a bit of a monologue at the beginning where Taker is saying, Accept the Lord of Darkness as your savior. Allow the purity of evil to guide you. Frankly, I can see why they cut that down. A little bit wordy is all I'm saying. And speaking of Taker, his outfit tonight is a bit strange. So, you know how female wrestlers sometimes have those tops where there's a hole cut out right in the cleavage area? Yeah, just picture that and you'll kind of get a feel for what Undertaker is rocking tonight. Strange fashion choice for the biggest show of the year, that's for sure. So the referees close the cage door and padlock it shut, and so with that, we are officially underway with our penultimate match of the evening. And right off the bat, William, I have to note the inherent problem with this whole thing. Who are we supposed to root for in this heel versus heel match? The Lord of Darkness or the head of security for the evil owner of the company? Well, I'll tell you, man, the crowd doesn't know. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. They choose neither, quite frankly, because they are like, it's actually kind of sad how quiet they are right from the start of this match. Honestly, though, I mean, I guess I can't say that I blame them too much because, I mean, with these guys, the offense is also going to be pretty slow-paced, which certainly doesn't help keep the crowd interest, interested, I should say. You know, lots of punching and kicking. And it also probably doesn't help 
the taker does his, you know, Michael Myers zombie sit-up spot several times within the first few minutes. Because I feel like that spot's effective when you build to it later in the match, but no, he basically just does it right from the start. So kill that spot immediately. Now, William, as we've seen in previous Hell in a Cell encounters, this is a very dangerous match. And early on, Michael Cole astutely points out one of those dangers to us by saying, quote, This isn't your traditional steel cage. You can get a finger caught in there. To which Jerry Lawler rightfully takes him to task by saying that Mick Foley got thrown off the damn thing in the past, which may be a bit more concerning than a potential finger bang. Or, well, you you get what I mean. Whoa. Finger bang? Or finger snag and what, yeah. Whoa. (laughs) However you want to word it. So after a few minutes of rather lackluster action, shall we say, we finally get an interesting spot where the boss man pulls out a pair of handcuffs, complete with a ridiculously long chain link in the middle for some reason. He then puts one of the cuffs on the Undertaker's left hand, and he attaches the other cuff to the cell, so Taker is pretty much trapped. From there, boss man pulls out his nightstick and starts hitting the helpless Undertaker with it, and then, when he hits him in the face, Taker falls to the ground and the handcuff immediately breaks off, freeing The Undertaker from his trap in literally a matter of seconds. I'm guessing that wasn't supposed to happen. Also, when The Undertaker goes to the ground, we can quite clearly see him do a blade job on camera, so, uh, (laughs) whoopsie. (laughs) And yes, when Taker gets up, we can now see that his forehead is bleeding, and then when The Undertaker regains the momentum and goes on the offensive, he picks up the boss man. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what he says when he picks Bossman up and throws him face-first into the mesh cage, and Bossman, of course, then also does the honors by blading as well. And no, the fans still do not care. And eventually both men head back into the ring, and when they do an exchange where they trade punches with each other, you can actually hear the fans just start to openly boo the match, and I'm kind of starting to feel bad for those guys right now. So then, The Undertaker picks Bossman up into tombstone position, but Bossman wriggles free. He pushes Taker into one of the turnbuckles, and then Irish whips him across the ring to the opposite side. Bossman goes for a clothesline, but Taker ducks, and from there, he does indeed pick up the Bossman for a tombstone, and this time he hits it. He crosses the Bossman's arms, and referee Tim White does indeed count the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the Hell in a Cell match, The Undertaker, in less than ten minutes, by the way, probably one of the shorter Hell in a Cell matches they've ever done on pay-per-view. And then, as soon as the match is over, The Undertaker looks up toward the ceiling, he raises his arms in the air, and nothing happens. Well, at least not for a little while. It takes some time, but then eventually, Gangrel, Edge, and Christian are lowered from the ceiling in harnesses, and holy shit, was that ever an eerie sight? It is. Uh, it is, man. Like, when you know what's coming in two months, you're like, oh my god. Like, That's exactly is, Oh, That's exactly the point I was making, too. And also, another scary thing is the fact the brood are lowering themselves down. They come out of the harnesses, and then they have to put themselves back in the harnesses, which, yeah. uh, you know, I would not want to do. But anywho, so basically what the brood do is they lower themselves down on top of the cage, they remove the harnesses, and they walk toward the center of the cage where it takes far too long for them to bust a hole in the roof, and then they proceed to lower an object down to the Undertaker, who is still standing in the ring over the fallen big boss man. And from there, well, I might as well just play for you what happens next, since it's a rather uh, infamous moment. 
Undertaker holding a noose. Okay, so let me set the scene for what you just heard there. The Brood lower a noose through the top of the cage, and then all three of them proceed to get back into their harnesses and be raised right back up to the roof of the building, except for Edge, who appears to get stuck. And they quickly actually do a zoom in toward the ring so we can't see the rest of what happens, but I'm assuming they eventually get Edge back to safety. But back in the ring, The Undertaker puts the noose around the neck of the big boss man, who is still down on the mat after taking that tombstone. We then see Paul Bearer standing near the side of the stage, where he's pushing the button to raise the cell up to the ceiling, and when he does that, yes, the boss man is also pulled up to the ceiling by the noose around his neck, flailing around in midair until he just stops moving. So yes, it appears that The Undertaker and The Brood have literally murdered the big boss man live on pay-per-view. And eventually the lights just cut out. Yeah, that's, that is the appropriate reaction. Uh-huh. And eventually the lights just cut out, so we don't see what happens next, but presumably they have to bring a coroner to remove the boss man's body, I'm guessing. And also, I have to quickly mention here... Just, again, I, have to, I, I hate to keep going back to Michael Cole, but several times he asked Jerry Lawler if hanging the boss man is, quote, symbolic. I, it's the best. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best how he, he gets on this symbolic train. Yes, several times. To which I say, no, Michael Cole, I think this is rather literal. I think it's a literal hanging. Uh, I don't think The Undertaker is much for metaphors in this case. Call me crazy. But as you heard at the end of the clip there, I also included a little bit more of Cole's commentary after the hanging because he immediately pivots into hyping how awesome the WrestleMania Rage Party was. the best transition material on the planet. (laughs) Yes. 
It's just, it's so amazing because he's freaking out about the boss man being killed, and then two seconds later, well, what a show we had last night! It's like, <laughs> like, what kind of a disconnect is that? My God! <laughs> so, okay, so William, what did you think of the, uh, first of all, the Undertaker Big Boss Man Hell in a Cell match, and then the subsequent on-camera death of a performer? Alright, so, to unpack this first... This feud is nonsense. I've always been, and, and I'm going to try and keep this a minimum because on season four, we really just, we all, we opened up a pretty big can on this match mm-hmm. and went into it. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to try not to just repeat all that, but this video is hilarious because it's Vince, 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 Vince. And then in the last 60 seconds, boss man, like it's so right. tacked on again in the spirit of getting things right. This needed to be Kane, a face Kane versus a heel undertaker. Yeah, that's like, you have literally the brother who took, like, 80 tombstones last year. He got set on fire and still came back. And and, and you're not going to have him face, you know, Lord of Darkness? You're, you're right. not going to have him? You're, you're going to get you're gonna get the fake cop? To, yeah. <laughs> you're going to get him to help you? I mean, it's it's so funny that this would end up being. But then, like, shout out to Jason Keesler. He nailed it. Like, this is sneaky one of Taker's best entrances him coming yeah. out with that super shredder look with Paul Bear beside him to that music as it's pumping through. Great entrance. Yes. Terrible match. Just, this thing sucks. I mean, <laughs> this is just the worst match, man. I mean, this is, sadly enough, this is the piss break. <laughs> but that's what's hilarious. This is the piss break between the last one and the main event. That's what's kind of funny is that, Taker found his way into one of these matches, but there's there's absolutely nothing noteworthy from the the match itself here. Like it is, it's this isn't necessarily a hot take, but Undertaker's not a good wrestler during this time period. He's not really good. He's Agreed. a great spectacle. He has a few good spots in matches, but unless he's in the ring with somebody who can like actually go like go like in terms of like has like a pretty wide array of moves. They're, it's not going to do well. Like, it's just not going to happen. And Bossman is really proof of that because, let's face it, the Bossman's repertoire is, was never really substantial. And no. it hasn't really gotten better <laughs> through all the incarnations <laughs> between uh, WCW and now. So that's what just amounts to, like, this sudden, all right, fuck it, just Tombstone, let's get out of here. And then the thing afterwards just takes way too long, and it's just, like, exactly like, oh, we're, we're, this is what we're doing. This is what we've done. We've we have hung a man. We have we've, <laughs> we've killed off a wrestler. So I, the the crowd, if, hilarious enough, like Philadelphia, which can we've seen from like the Roman Reigns Royal Rumble, like they know how to not like something and tell you. This is even worse because they give you nothing for yeah. most of this. So wow, like this thing is such an abysmal dud. Agreed. I I will say I thought the. As terrible as the noose effect was, I thought it did look pretty effective. Obviously, like they're, they're, I think Bossman's just wearing like a harness. He's not actually being hung, clearly, but I, I think they have like a harness under his, his flak jacket or whatever. Right. I thought it was, it did look effective. Would you agree with that, or do you think it was just like garbage all around? I, I just, what do you do? I mean, like the look of it, yeah. I mean, like you, you obviously you didn't kill him. You made it look like it was real cool, right on. But why, like? What like I've never seen somebody I've never even seen in a movie where well we're just gonna hang him to knock him out and then we'll go take him <laughs> out back and beat the shit out of him or whatever. Right. Like, what 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 is the goal otherwise? And when you hang a man, that's the end. Like I right. just <laughs> the cho- I just don't get the choice. 
Yeah, on that note, when you do a, a spot like that, Bossman should not be on TV for, like, weeks after this. And I haven't watched Raw yet, but I feel like... I, I don't know if he's back the night after, but I think he's back very quickly from this spot, which really makes no sense. Like, you have to give that dude, like, probably at least a month-long vacation. I mean, uh, realistically, he should be dead. But, I mean, from a storyline perspective, if you're going to say he survived, he should be off TV for quite a while, I would say. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I t- totally agree with what you said. Match was, was terrible. Probably probably the worst Hell in a Cell match they've ever done. And, again, it was didn't even go 10 minutes, which I guess we can be thankful for. But, yeah, and also... I think the fans probably at this point were conditioned to, you know, think of that there was going to be like a big spot during the match based on the first two Hell in a Cell matches. We obviously get no big spot during the match. I guess you could say a bit of a spot after the match. But I think that also probably lended to the fans, you know, kind of sleepwalking through it because they probably knew, you know, Undertaker and Bossman aren't getting thrown off the cell. There's no big bump coming. So, you know, they're just kind of sitting on their hands the entire time and rightfully so. So, Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely a huge dud all around, but hey, maybe maybe go watch the post uh, the post match festivities if you want to see a man convincingly convincingly hanged on live TV. And so, at long last, it is now time for our main event of the evening, and it is now a no disqualification match for the WWF Championship. Champion The Rock versus Challenger Stone Cold Steve Austin, with Vince McMahon acting as the special guest referee. And before the match begins, the aforementioned Michael Cole stands in the ring, where he then announces that the man who will be calling the main event in his place will be good old Jim Ross. Man, that one, that had to be a tough announcement for Cole to make, huh? Folks, here comes the man who's going to be replacing me during the biggest match of the year. By the way, Jim Ross actually did an interview with WWE.com in 2006 about this, where he said, quote, I was really apprehensive about WrestleMania 15. I think both of the guys that were in the main event that night independently went to Mr. McMahon and requested I do their match. I don't think it was necessarily a knock on Michael Cole, who was doing the play-by-play at that time. It was a personal compliment to me because I was in a position to help facilitate them by bringing them to the WWE roster. So there you have it. Jim Ross is commentating the main event tonight because Stone Cold and The Rock personally requested it. Honestly, can't say that I blame them. And at this point, as you could probably guess, it seems as though the semi-heel character that JR has been portraying on television over the past few weeks is more or less dead, because really, who wants to boo Jim Ross anyway? So once JR takes a spot at the commentary table, Howard Finkel introduces the special guest referee for tonight's match, Vince McMahon. And yes, William, as you said, that clip earlier where he said he had, quote, the best-looking referee shirt in his athletic bag... Well, he must have lost it between then and now because, yes, he walks to the ring wearing a cut-off black T-shirt that is in no way a referee shirt. I think he actually had to pull a Mick Foley and he should have spray-painted some white stripes on it. Now, however, though, before the competitors in the main event are introduced, someone else shows up on the scene to switch things up a bit. Thank you. 
been, man. We just can't have a WrestleMania without the Heartbreak Kid, now can we? Now, I'm a little disappointed. After 10 years of being with this company, I had to buy a ticket to get in this place. But I'm, I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to hold that against you. In fact, what I want to do is get down to business with you. See, Vince, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. You have got to read that WWF rule book. Now, now I know you're a busy man. You've got so many things on your mind. But priorities, Vincent, priorities. Had you taken the time to read that rule book, you would see that it states that there is only one man who can appoint an official at WrestleMania. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. And that one man is not you. Huh? But I'm going to give all these people one guess on the one guy that gets to make that decision. I think we got it. Now, in case your Whistler 2000 isn't working, what they just said is the one man that can make that decision is the Heartbreak Kid. Oh, no! McMahon doesn't like that. So what I would like for you to do for me now is take that Jack LaLanne physique of yours. Jack LaLanne? <laughs> Get the hell out of here, and don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. The owner is seething. And, uh, if you have, like, I don't know, some idea that you or your corporation are going to have anything to do with this main event, you and your corporation. Well, I might let you come down, but the corporation is barred from ringside. Wow, that's big. That is big and that is crucial in this matchup. And if I see just one of their narrow asses breaking this sheriff's rules, pal, you and I, are going to have a little fight of our own out back. So anytime, anytime you want to try me, you just let me go. But in the meantime, start to stepping and hit the bricks, McMahon. So yes, as you heard there, Shawn Michaels interrupted the proceedings to tell us that only one person can appoint an official at WrestleMania, and that would be the commissioner, which he just so happens to be. Uh, Frankly, I'm not sure how the 
owner of the company gets outranked by the commissioner, but sure, okay. So HBK then goes on to remove Vince from the referee position, and he tells him that all members of the corporation are barred from ringside in a no-DQ match. Okay, then. And also at this point, I'm assuming that most of the fans in the crowd figured that Shawn Michaels himself would be the special guest referee, but no, he and Vince just head backstage together. And so, after six weeks of build-up as to who the special guest referee at WrestleMania would be, Mankind, The Big Show, Vince McMahon, it turns out that tonight's ref will actually be Mike Kyoto. So that's right, they hyped up the special guest referee angle every week on Raw since mid-February, only for there to be no special guest referee at all. Even for Vince Russo, that's pretty extraordinary. And this kind of reminds me of something which happened just a few weeks ago on Raw, back here in the present day, when Seth Rollins and Kofi Kingston challenged each other to a title versus title match, and it ended with them teaming up to face Sheamus and Cesaro. The WWE over-promising and under-delivering, then, now, forever. (laughs) But anywho, enough of the extracurriculars, because it is now time for your main event of the evening, WWF champion The Rock versus challenger Stone Cold Steve Austin in the first of what will end up being three head-to-head matches they have at WrestleMania. And when Stone Cold emerges from backstage, I have to note how weird it is that he's wearing a t-shirt on his way to the ring, which is certainly not something we're used to seeing from him. Typically, he's wearing one of those black vests, but tonight he's rocking that shirt where his arms have turned into snakes for some reason. And, well, there's a reason he forgot it. He has said that he forgot the vest. He kicks himself to this day because he forgot the vest, and which blew my mind that the costume or whatever doesn't have an extra one, but yeah, he literally forgot his vest. Yep. Uh, funny enough, I'm actually going to play that clip. Uh, not now, I'll play it at, at the end of this segment, but I do actually have that clip from Austin's podcast where he talks about what was going on. So so yes, like you said, there is a, there is a backstory to there not being a vest. But yeah, it looks looks really weird to see Austin wearing a shirt. So anyway, the match finally gets underway, and early on we get that Attitude Era specialty where both men exit the ring and start brawling through the crowd. And holy shit... It sure looked like security dropped the ball on this one, because at one point, Rock and Austin appear to be completely surrounded by fans. And with all those hardcore ECW fans in Philly at the time, there's a fair chance they were putting their lives at risk by being so close to so many of them. And funny enough, they eventually make their way back over the barricade and back to the ringside area, where Austin immediately throws Rock over another guardrail into a different area of the crowd. You would think they would have learned their lesson the first time, but no right back at it amongst the fans. And then, because this is the Attitude Era and the ring just isn't cool, they brawl up the aisle, where Austin attempts to hit Rock with a pile driver, but instead, the Great One reverses it and backdrops Stone Cold onto... I actually don't even know what you'd call it. It's basically like a metal pillar lying on the ground that has a light fixture on it. I'm pretty sure Austin has done a similar bump to this before. Might have been during his match with Dude Love at Over the Edge 98. And I have... No idea why he continues to do this, because it looks like there are about a million different ways that he could land in the wrong position and fuck up his back or his leg, but sure, why not? So after some more brawling near the stage and down the aisle, we make our way back to ringside once again, where Austin puts Rock on the Spanish announce table, Stone Cold then stands up on the guardrail, drops an elbow onto Rock, and... the table doesn't break, so they both slide down to the floor. Whoops. But then, of course, ever the professional, Stone Cold simply 
does the exact same spot all over again, and this time the table does indeed break. At least he's not a quitter. So mercifully at long last, Austin finally tosses Rock back into the ring. Before re-entering, though, Stone Cold stops to adjust the brace on his left knee, which proves to be a mistake, because when he rolls back in, Rock nails him with a rock bottom right in the center of the ring. The People's Champ goes for the cover, but Austin kicks out at two. Now, remember, folks, this was back during a time when guys weren't kicking out of each other's finishers 6,000 times at every WrestleMania, so kicking out of the rock bottom actually meant something here. I think this is what starts that, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it very well may be. Jim Ross actually says that no one has ever kicked out of the rock bottom before, and I don't know if that's true or not, but at the very least, it's certainly incredibly rare. So Rock then decides that he needs to take things up a notch by bringing a steel chair into the ring, but Stone Cold manages to take it from him. He swings the chair, but Rock pushes Mike Kyoto into his path, resulting in Austin absolutely killing Kyoto with a chair shot. I mean, he does not take it easy on the poor guy. Ref or no ref, you will get a concussion tonight, sir. And hey, actually, William, would that be considered a best of luck spot now that I think I of it? I did label that as well in my notes, so yes, sir. I'm catching on. I think I'm catching on to the best of luck spot. So Rock then proceeds to start nailing Austin with chair shots, first in his leg and chest, and then eventually, yes, he does hit him with a chair shot to the skull, since this is 1999. While this was going on, referee Tim White had come down to ringside to check on Mike Kyoto, so Rock yells at Tim White to enter the ring. He counts the one and the two, but again, not the three, as Austin manages to kick out. And Stone Cold actually does a really great job here, because he really kicks out literally like the last millisecond, so fantastic near fall there. So Rock continues to go on the offensive, including hitting Austin with a Samoan drop, but that also only gets a two count, and apparently Rock wasn't very happy with the count, so he hits Tim White with a rock bottom, taking out yet another referee in this match. However, when Rock turns around, Austin nails him with a stone-cold stunner. He goes for the cover, and yes, our next referee, Earl Hebner, starts running down the aisle, and Earl then counts the one, the two... But no, Rock kicks out before three. And it was actually fun to hear the fan reaction here, too, because they completely bought that as the finish. But no, I'm afraid we must continue. And after that kick out, Vince McMahon walks down to ringside, now dressed in a business suit for some reason. Apparently, he felt the need to change clothes over the past 20 minutes. Also, remember how Shawn Michaels earlier said that all corporation members were banned from ringside except Vince? Suddenly, that wording is starting to make sense. It's almost like they planned it or something. So Vince enters the ring, and he proceeds to knock out Earl Hebner with one punch, so we have lost yet another referee. And by the way, William, I hadn't seen this match in a while, but as I said earlier, this was kind of where it started reminding me of WrestleMania X7 with Rock and Austin in the ring. Vince McMahon comes into the ring. You know, that, that's, I'll just leave it there, but th- there were some parallels. Let's just put it that way. Definitely. So now both Rock and Vince are putting the boots to Austin, but then we see that our next referee is making his way down the aisle, and wouldn't you know it, after all those shenanigans, the man who comes out from backstage is Mankind. Yes, it appears that Mick Foley actually will be the special guest referee after all. I'm glad we had to go through all those ref bumps to get there. So anyway, Foley enters the ring and proceeds to quickly dispatch Vince and toss him out to the floor, leaving Rock and Austin all by themselves. And from there, well, let's take a listen to what happens next. Where's Mr. McMahon? 
So yes, as you heard there, The Rock hit a rock bottom, and then he went for the corporate elbow, but Austin moved out of the way at the last second. He then nailed Rock with a stone-cold stunner, and yes, for those of you scoring at home, Rock did indeed do his patented reverse somersault sell of the stunner, with his feet literally hitting the top rope before he crumpled to the ground. Mankind then went down to the canvas, and he counted the one, the two, and the three your winner, and the new WWF champion for the third time, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Fun fact, William, this also marks the first time that someone has won the WWF title at two straight WrestleManias. Somehow that had never happened until now, but now we've made some history. And after the match, as you might expect, Stone Cold asks for some beers, and he proceeds to chug them, first by himself, and then, strangely, with Earl freaking Hebner, and Hebner gets so into it that he actually climbs up on the second turnbuckle and starts posing for the fans, too. So mark that one down, folks. The biggest show of the year features the guy who screwed Bret Hart getting his own celebratory moment. There's a fun life lesson for you. So eventually, Austin exits the ring, where Vince McMahon is now waiting for him. He yells at Stone Cold that the belt belongs to him, so Austin motions as though he's going to hand the belt to Vince, but instead he punches the chairman in the face. He then rolls Vince into the ring where, as you might expect, he hits him with a stunner, and then for good measure, he pours beer all over Mr. McMahon, places one foot on his chest, and triumphantly raises his new belt high for the fans. And that is pretty much how we go off the air, aside from the usual recap video they used to put together that highlighted all the noteworthy moments from the show. So, William, what did you think of Rock versus Austin and all of the additional extracurricular activities? So, this is the be- the, the, This is far and away the best match on the show, the best part of this show. Yes. This is the conclusion of the best WrestleMania build. When you go back and you look at where this starts from breakdown on all the different you have austin going directly for the belt but then he gets sidetracked he has to fight the undertaker to even get into the royal rumble you have this amazing subplot with mankind and the rock feuding for the title changing over the title it felt as big almost as rock and austin and then you have the royal rumble the shenanigans happen there then saint valentine's day massacre this is an amazing build Yes. Like, I, and I, there aren't many times WWE gets this close and like and knocks it out of the park. They did it with Daniel Bryan. The Kofi one was a shorter one. Like it kind of comes up and out of nowhere here. The most recent one, but other than that, like you don't get builds like this that pay off this well. This is pretty much also like with the exception of like the like in subsequent months. Like this is the end of the real true like best Austin run. Like and I know he his appearance on Raw has been sparing as it's been sparingly there over the past few months and stuff. But this is a tremendous payoff from the night after WrestleMania last year in 1998, March 30th, 1998, all the way up through here. It's a great calendar year of storylines and in the WWF. So 
All the stuff afterwards is is fine. You want to see him. You want to see him celebrate. Have eighty beers. Pour one out on Vince. Have a good time. The Hebner stuff. Eh, whatever. I mean, we're all having a good time tonight. So, um, but overall, yeah. I mean, just an absolute treasure. And they. And this isn't even their best effort. They're going to do so much better a month from now, and then obviously a few years from now when they do this match again. So, I mean, it's only going to get better with these guys. Yeah, totally. I mean, like you said, this is the highlight of the show, 100%. This is the best match on the card. The culmination, you know, Rock versus Austin, it's all fantastic stuff, you know. Yet, like you said, going all the way back to breakdown when Austin loses the belt, you got the, all those things that are set in motion. You got the Zamboni, you got the, the hospital attack, you got the bang 316 where Vince pisses his pants. There's so many moments that basically lead us up to this and of course in the middle of that you have rock going from face to heel at survivor series and again that feud with mankind like you were saying basically it's it's a huge culmination this this match is a huge culmination i think everybody going in knew austin was going to win and guess what that's not always a bad thing as we just saw at wrestlemania 35 i think pretty much everybody knew becky lynch was gonna win going in still loved it I think a lot of people also kind of figured Kofi Kingston was going to win. Still love that, too. Predictability when it comes to WrestleMania is not a bad thing because you want the top guy to win at the top show of the year. And again, I think this is, you know, great culmination and really good match, too. In terms of, you know, the the three Rock Austin WrestleMania matches, I haven't gone back and watched X7 in a while, but I, I remember that being the best of the bunch. I actually did just watch the one at WrestleMania 19 recently for the WrestleMania Salvation podcast, which was good, although somewhat marred by the fact that Rock is basically wearing Austin's vest for about five minutes during that fucking match, but that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other issue. But this was, yeah, really good, really good capper to the show. Anytime it's Rock Austin, obviously I am 100% on board, as I think most Attitude Era fans are. But that actually segues me into my, my other question. So we both love the match. Both love the celebratory stuff afterwards. What was your verdict on WrestleMania 15 as a whole? Would you say recommend, in the middle, thumbs down? I mean, overall, like, I mean, is one match enough to, to reverse a thumbs down? I don't know. I guess, like, it may be to put it just a thumbs in the middle, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not a thumbs up. This show's pretty terrible up until that match. Yeah, for me, I would say about the same. It's like, uh, I, WrestleMania 15, you know, going into this, I expected... I expected it to be worse, actually, because I think this is usually on the list of, like, when you when you talk about the worst WrestleManias, WrestleMania 15 is usually up there with, like, you know, 11 and 9 and 2 and all those shitty ones. But this one, instead of being, like, you know, an F or a D for me, this was just, like, a C, C minus. You know, it's mostly mediocre. It's nothing too offensive except for, except for the Hell in a Cell match, which is obviously quite offensive, including the aftermatch festivities. But for me, this is, like, this is definitely not a recommend. Obviously, you know, the main event, total recommend, but the show as a whole, I guess you could say it slightly exceeded my expectations because my expectations were that it was going to be, you know, god-awful, but I would much rather watch this show than, like, than, you know, any of those other WrestleManias, whether it be WrestleMania 2 or 9 or 11 or any of the ones they mentioned as being the worst ever, so, you know, again, not a good show, but not a terrible show would be my verdict, so again, you know, like, probably probably about a C-minus I would recommend, if you watch anything, watch the main event. Maybe maybe the European title match, too, because that was kind of fun, and you get the Triple H turn. But, yeah, that's that's about it in that regard. So, yeah, that was WrestleMania 15. And right before we wrap up here, I just have a few more quick notes from this show. So, WrestleMania 15 ends up doing an estimated 800,000 
pay-per-view buys, which is up from the 730,000 buys for WrestleMania 14. And not only that, but that 800,000 number, as of this point, makes WrestleMania 15 the most purchased pay-per-view in the history of the WWF up till now, topping the 767,000 buys for WrestleMania 5, the show where the mega powers explode. And additionally, in the Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer notes that the show did 1.5 million at the gate, making it the largest gate in North America since WrestleMania 6 in Toronto. So needless to say, I think we can call it a success, maybe not necessarily from you know a creative perspective, but obviously from a financial perspective, hugely hugely successful show for the WWF as most of them have been lately. So with that in mind, William, are you ready to move on to Monday Night Raw? Yeah. Excellent. Then that is what we'll do after a quick break. So stay tuned and we will be right back. Let's talk about the t-shirt at WrestleMania 15. At that time, I was going through a sloppy ass, messy divorce and my mind was frazzled. And it was, man, all I could do to pack my bags and get ready to head over to Philly and work against the great one, The Rock. And just by chance, as I was packing my bags, I forgot to put in my trusty black vest with the silver writing on it. And I'll tell you what, when I opened up my suitcase at the building that night and realized that I would forgot to pack my vest, I was mad as a fucking hornet. Here you are. The biggest stage of all in a high-profile match, Rock as your opponent, and I got to go out there in a rinky-dink-ass T-shirt. Now, don't get me wrong. The T-shirt I went out, it was cool in the gang, but you never, ever want to walk out in some chump change gear rather than, you know, your trademark stuff that people expect you to be in damn biggest star in the business at the time, and I'm walking to the ring in a T-shirt. I kicked myself in the ass over and over and over again about that particular night. But that's the story. Divorce, brain was smogged, forgot to pack my vest, had to wear a T-shirt. And we have returned. Now, one quick note before we go any further. Nitromania podcast host Adam and I will be attending Money in the Bank this Sunday, May 19th, since it will be taking place in Hartford, Connecticut, just a short trip away from Raw Attitude Podcast headquarters here in Boston. So keep an eye out on Twitter, at Raw Attitude Pod, because I'm sure we'll be posting some pictures and live-tweeting the show and all that good stuff. All right, so with that out of the way, William, what do you say? Are you ready to dive into Monday Night Raw? Real quick, if you wear a Hurricanes jersey there, did they get all pissed off? <laughs> yeah, because they used to be the the Whalers. Yeah, yeah, that was so. I don't know if you saw that this year when they did uh they did Whalers Appreciation Night, and it was so just it just felt like such a backhanded thing that the Hurricanes were doing. They they had they changed their logo for the day back to the Whalers, and it was just sort of like you know what, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as of right now, the Bruins and the Hurricanes are facing each other in the playoffs, so. You know I'm an AAF guy, so I will not be cheering for the Hurricanes in any regard. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, the Bruins are up two zip as we're recording this, so uh, hopefully they'll they'll be able to keep it up, I suppose. Unless you're, you're not a Hurricanes fan, so that's okay. City of Champions for you guys. I know we had the we had the Red Sox in October, we had the Patriots in February, and well, the Celtics fucked it up because they got eliminated. But yeah, the Bruins they're down yeah. to four teams left, so you know we'll see. Yeah, they're getting there. All right. All right. So, getting into Monday Night Raw, it is 
Monday, March 29, 1999, and we are live from Continental Airlines Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, now called Meadowlands Arena in the present day. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 15 episodes of Raw, 8 episodes of SmackDown, and a fair number of pay-per-views, including King of the Ring 2001, No Way Out 2012, Extreme Rules 2014, and three separate SummerSlams, 1989, 1997, and 2007. So we open the show with a video package highlighting the rivalry between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon over the past eight months, culminating in last night's WWF Championship victory for Stone Cold at WrestleMania. So many amazing moments in this video. The Zamboni, the hospital, the beer bath, just to name a few. Great stuff. And from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... Is my sign on TV? I have Deborah's panties. Bring back Todd Pettengill. I'm hung like a horse. Xbox smokes ass. I'm on welfare. <laughs> WCW, WCW worst choreographed wrestling. I like lasagna. <laughs> Vince is on the sauce. Former Nitro Girl with an arrow pointing downward. And by the way, yes, it was a man holding that sign. I have wet dreams. My girlfriend can't wrestle, but you should see her box. And perhaps most alarmingly, I like rape. And somehow in 1999, a security guard saw that sign and said to that guy, yeah, sure thing. Come on in. Also, by the way, that fan picked the right night to bring that sign, because I think we could say that rape is at least mildly hinted at on this show tonight, but I suppose we'll get into that a little bit later. So, William, were there any signs you noticed that I happened to miss? No, no. I mean, once again, like, I, I it's this game I play where I just, like, you know what, I'm not going to pay attention because I'd rather you read them off because they're so much funnier when you just kind of just put them out there like Xbox smokes ass. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's so much better just hearing somebody repeat the signs versus just trying to try and scribble down as furiously as you can. Golly, it I, I mean, I always wondered about signs, like, you know, what's the art of it? Like do you do you try and do you try and stow away some poster board and a marker and then make it once you sit down or whatever, you know? Yeah, I wonder if that guy maybe like brought in the sign, like maybe it said I like rap when he brought it in and then he's like, Oh, gotta add a little extra E to that right there. There you go. So, could have, could have yeah. snuck it in. And so we officially kick off the show with Stone Cold Steve Austin coming to the ring, holding the WWF Championship belt, and still wearing that t-shirt where his arms turn into snakes, by the way. I think the man really needs to splash <laughs> an extra vest. vest. Yeah. Can't, still can't get the damn vest. <laughs> get the, get a friggin' vest, get it overnighted to you, a FedEx it or something, Jesus Christ. And we also get a rare stone-cold botch here as he goes to stand on the second turnbuckle to pose, but his foot slips, and he accidentally drops the title belt on the ground. So maybe he might still be a little tipsy from last night's celebration, so I'll yeah. allow it. All the all the close-ups on his face, he looks really worn. I mean, really worn down <laughs> to where it's like, when we get to, you know, the finale of the show, where like in the extra bit where it's just like, it's like, man, he, he really was running hard, as he says many times in his pod. <laughs> Really looks it. Yep. He, he actually openly references it here. I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute, but he does reference it in his, his opening promo here. 
So yes, Stone Cold grabs a mic, and he proceeds to say something rather strange. He wants Vince McMahon to come out from backstage because, right now, he's going to relinquish the belt. Austin says that after he finished celebrating last night, there you go, he took one look at the title and decided that it wasn't worth it, so he's going to give it up. And sure enough, this does indeed bring out Mr. McMahon, and yes, Stone Cold proceeds to hand over the WWF Championship belt to the chairman. Vince celebrates the fact that Austin has finally cracked under pressure, but then Stone Cold cues up some footage on the Titantron. Specifically, it's from the episode of Raw the night after Austin lost the belt at Breakdown in September, where Vince takes the Smoking Skull title belt and brags about putting it, quote, on my mantle in one of my homes. So you see, Stone Cold is not actually relinquishing his reign as WWF champion, but rather he's looking to trade in the usual WWF title for his own custom belt, which is in Vince's possession. And with that in mind, let's pick things up from there. I told you you could have that belt back, but you can rest assured, Vince, I am the World Wrestling Federation champion, and there ain't a damn thing you can do about that. Stone Cold Steve Austin ain't through, not by a long shot. Now, what I'm telling you to go call one of your little butlers, go down to Greenwich, Connecticut, and bring that damn belt back because that's the one that I want. Greenwich, Stone Cold wants the custom-made belt, the belt he had custom-made when he won the WWF title. And if you don't go get that damn belt, you got two hours, son. If you don't get my damn belt, I'm going to beat your ass in front of everybody here. First of all, let me remind you of something, and that is the championship belt that you want is on my mantle, and I must be honest with you, every morning when I get up and walk by that mantle, it reminds me that I own a piece of stone coal, and the answer is no, you're not going to get your championship belt and there's no reason for me to give you that belt it's mine well if you want me to beat his ass give me a hell yeah wait a minute no 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 no, no. Wait, 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 wait just a moment I'd like to remind you you may be the WWF champion and it sticks in my craw yeah would you lay one hand on me without sufficient physical provocation and you know what the contract reads You'll be fired on a spot. Right! I'm right! I remember! <laughs> well, he is right. That's what the contract states. It's up to you, Austin. Hit me with that other piece of footage I got. What? <laughs> That's last night at WrestleMania, King. Last night at WrestleMania. All right, cut the footage. I believe that is sufficient physical provocation, so that means... Oh no, he's right! Oh no, wait a minute! That means within a 24-hour period, your ass belongs to me, and according to my little watch right here, it means you got two damn hours to get my belt back, or I'm gonna stomp a mud hole in your ass and walk it dry! Damn rattlesnake! And that's the bottom line, cause Stone Cold sets up! Captain King, that's it, it's in the contract, Mr. McMahon. 
Vince, you know I can be a real nice guy sometimes, or I can be a real mean some bitch. So you got it, son. We're gonna do things the hard way. Two hours. Your ass belongs to Stone Cold Steve Austin. So as you heard there, Stone Cold has given Vince until the end of the night to bring him his smoking skull belt, or he's going to whip his ass all around the arena. However, the cocky Vince then reminds Austin that his contract states he can't put his hands on him without provocation or he would be fired. So Stone Cold cues up footage from last night at WrestleMania where Vince is putting the boots to him. Well played. So now, having outsmarted Vince once again, Austin climbs to the turnbuckle to pose for the fans, but when he turns back around, the chairman nails him in the face with the championship belt. Vince then runs up the ramp, only stopping to quickly flip off Stone Cold before he runs right back through the curtain. And that is where our opening segment concludes. So, William, what did you think of the opening Austin-Vince showdown? So let's unpack some things here. First off, one thing I want to note about the location. They don't ever say New Jersey. They say in the shadow of New York City. They never, mm. for whatever reason, I, I, which really blew my mind because I was like, they've had a number of shows here. I don't know why they're they're... I don't know why they're trying to fool the fool people to be like, oh, it's we're not actually in New York City, but we want to treat it that way. I, I did not understand that choice, but it's interesting. I just when you go throughout the night and they come back from break, they will never call it New Jersey. They call it in the shadow of New York City. All right, so now this this is brilliant writing. Okay, this is brilliantly set up, and mm-hmm. as much as it's so easy to just kick Russo while he's down. There are moments like this that, like, I don't know if he gets all, if he gets what, what percentage of the pie he gets credit for, but whatever he did, I give a lot of credit to him for if, if this is truly something that he put together. Cause what's so smart about this is by saying belt and not actually saying title, you don't really catch on at first. Like, you're really left wondering, what are we doing? How is this happening? Yeah. Why is this happening? And then that's when they slowly pull it back. Now, this this isn't going to happen every time. I mean, wrestling wrestling opening segments of, of Raws can sometimes just boil down to just excessive talking. But something like this where we're slowly revealing something to the audience is really, really cool. And I just think that's something that, that needs to be acknowledged right off the bat with this. Number two, wrestling logic is awesome. Wrestling logic when it comes to laws or stipulations is really, really fantastic. And by fantastic, I mean, like, it can be, it's whatever you want to make it to be. This little rule, it says, because you put the boots to me last night, I have 24 hours to, you know, just basically just kill you. And I don't get in any trouble. Is awesome. It's some, (laughs) yeah. it, It reminds me of the first time I recorded with you for that May of 98 Raw yeah. Right before Over the Edge. It's the same thing where, like, Barney Fife and company cops are with Stone Cold, and he's like, hey, I'm not a lawyer, but isn't that obstruction of justice? Yeah, you know what it is. Let's let's put these guys in cuffs. The last thing I'll say about this segment that's brilliant, the best Raws set up something in segment one that's going to pay off by the final segment of the night and is something that can be easily referenced and questioned be hypothesized about this is really good stuff 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, giving Vince Russo credit, because I was actually watching ahead the next week's episode of Raw, and I made in my notes to make sure that I noted to give Vince Russo credit, because there actually is, you know, for all the terrible swerves that Vince Russo is known for, there's a really great one next week that I forgot had ever happened, so I definitely marked that down too. And like you said, the whole thing where they're talking about the belt and Austin's relinquishing the belt, it's like, oh yeah, so he's relinquishing the regular belt. He just wants a smoking skull title, but he's still going to be the champion, obviously. That's good stuff. And what you were saying about Austin being provoked, by Vince, essentially. I like the fact that, you know, he, he turns that around on him with the whole thing, showing the footage from last night. And then at the very end where Vince is like, well, fuck it, he's got me. So I'm going to hit him with the belt again because, you know, <laughs> he's, he's kind of got me on the legalese here. So fuck it, I'll just hit him again and run away and hilariously flip him off at the top of the ramp. So great stuff there. Great stuff all around. And yes, I, again, you know, these, these opening Raw promos, we, we get pretty accustomed to them in the Attitude Era where it's like, you know, 15 minutes setting up the show. But I mean, when it's the night after WrestleMania, and you got Austin and Vince. I mean, come on. No no complaints from me there on that one. And like you said, it sets up the events that kind of come into motion uh, right off the top of the show. So, yeah, definitely no complaints on my end either. All right, so after our first commercial break of the evening, we quickly cut backstage where Vince is in an office with Shane, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and, yes, his daughter, Stephanie McMahon. So Vince asks Stephanie to get on the phone and tell someone to bring the smoking skull belt to the arena, and so she does. However, Vince meets a bit of resistance from Shane, who says he shouldn't be allowing Stone Cold to boss him around. Perhaps a little bit of dissension within the McMahon family? I guess we shall see. Now, fun fact here, William. As you said, we're in East Rutherford, New Jersey tonight, which, according to Google Maps, is about a one-hour drive from Greenwich, Connecticut. So, yes, it actually would be perfectly feasible for someone to bring the belt from Vince's home to the arena, just in case you were wondering from a geographical perspective. Right on. Okay. And from there, we go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is a women's tag team match. WWF Women's Champion Sable and Jacqueline, accompanied by Terry Runnels, versus Ivory and Tori, who is once again wearing her giant Gonzalez catsuit. And by the way, when Terry Runnels walks to the ring, she is actually licking one of her cigars in what I think was supposed to be an attempt at being sexy, but just came across as kind of weird. Oh, and by the way, remember how Terry burned Ivory's face with a cigar last night? Well, tonight, Ivory's not even wearing a bandage on her face anymore, so clearly she must have those Wolverine healing powers. (laughs) So early on in the match, Ivory was taking it to Jacqueline, and she ended up knocking her down with a clothesline, followed by Cesaro, eat your heart out, an airplane spin. Ivory then tags out to Tori, and we proceed to get... 12 straight seconds of Tori and Jackie just awkwardly staring at each other. I'm not sure why, but I think it's because Terry Runnels was a little bit late on her spot, but eventually Terry starts attempting to light her cigar, and yes, I say attempting, because her lighter quite clearly is not producing a flame. But finally, Ivory runs over toward Terry, who then proceeds to run up the entrance ramp, with Ivory chasing her all the way backstage. So yes, that left Tori by herself against Jackie and Sable. And you would think that would work to Jackie and Sable's advantage, but when Jackie turns her back, Sable enters the ring and nails her own partner with her women's title. And Tori then uses that advantage to pin Jackie with a backslide. So congratulations, Sable. You just handed yourself a loss for no apparent reason. Your winners of the match, Tori and Ivory. And then after the match, Tori motions to Sable as though she wants to fight her again right now. And, well... 
Let's just say that this segment then takes a turn I was not expecting. I don't know. 
It's I'll gonna happen. I'll call the cops. That's it. I knew it was gonna happen. Don't call the cops. No. Don't call the damn cops. You oh, saw wait, what he I'm did. Sorry. The... Yeah, get it, Dan. You saw what he did to the boss, man. The damn demonstration last night. Who knows what he's gonna do to her? I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. People are looking for it. Could not have gone far. She's got to be in the parking lot somewhere. They'll find her. I know they'll find her. I don't know. Okay, so I know that was a lot to take in, but allow me to explain what just happened there. The Undertaker, Paul Bearer, The Brood, Viscera, and Midian headed to the ring. Strangely, no acolytes, though. I wonder where they could be. Taker told Sable that he wanted to see what she's got, which resulted in Sable doing the grind for him, which actually struck me as kind of funny for some reason. However, it fails to amuse the dead man, as the Undertaker then grabs Sable by the throat, and from that point on, he literally has his hand on her neck for the remainder of the segment. So yes, Taker is choking Sable for more than two full minutes. Hashtag, it was another time. But anyway, apparently the point here is that Taker is once again trying to get Vince McMahon's attention, this time by taking his quote-unquote meal ticket hostage, So we then cut backstage where Vince, Shane, and Stephanie are in an office. Vince tells Shane to keep an eye on Stephanie, and Vince then starts walking toward the ring. After taking his merry time getting there, you can actually hear Paul Bearer say, where's he at, a few times while they're waiting, Vince finally shows up at the top of the ramp. He asks Taker what kind of man he is, but then, almost immediately, Vince realizes he's made a mistake. He yells out, Stephanie! and runs back to his office, where we then see that Vince's security detail has been knocked out. Shane is by himself, and Stephanie is gone. Yes, somehow in the span of about one minute, Shane went from guarding Stephanie to somehow completely losing track of her. Well done. So Shane picks up a nearby phone to call the police, but for some reason, Vince tells him not to do that. Why? Your guess is as good as mine. And so... That is how we wrap up the segment. So, William, what do you think of the Ministry of Darkness taking one woman hostage and presumably kidnapping another one? I mean, it's you nailed it when you said it, it, this took a turn because I was like, oh, did not see that coming either. And, yeah, like the fact that, like, I, I it's, it's hilarious to me that Tori had enough sense to get the hell out of there, but Sable's like, why? Why not? Why? This seems like it's a good time. This looks like a party. Uh <laughs> The the fact that Vince says he's going to snap her head off, I'm like, that's just hilarious. Just also thinking about the fact that it's going to be Brock Lesnar's wife in like, you know, six, seven years. So it's <laughs> yeah. just enough more fuel to the fire for their rivalry. The the, the way this comes off is so funny. Like Vin, uh, Vince McMahon with his spidey sense <laughs> running back, like figuring out that he's been had and running back there. The boss man thing is hilarious. It's one of the funniest bits. Like, don't call the cops because of what happened to the boss man last night. Huh? But yeah. please file that away. Like, it'll be these little details are going to be important to revisit in a few weeks or so. Still a few weeks away, but whenever, like, when this all kind of moves to its next level, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> How funny, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But oh, anyway, that, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. No, no, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Don't call the cops because of what they did to the boss man last night. But he's not a real cop. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's supposed to kind of be a cop, maybe? Uh, no, not really. Uh, but yeah, it's funny because they... So, the Undertaker takes Sable hostage and says that she's Vince's meal ticket. I was like, 
Are they trying to reference, like, the Vince Sable angle from literally last summer that was completely dropped? Remember that? Like, how they were hinting for a while that Sable got rehired because Vince was, you know, had the hots for her or she performed some sort of favor for him. But that's literally, that has not been referenced in, like, probably eight months. So I I was just kind of surprised by that one. But then, yeah, like you said, Vince is just immediately like, oh, I, I left Stephanie alone, <laughs> and he just runs right back to where he came from. But again, they, they don't reference it here, I suppose. Maybe maybe it's uh, figured out in the coming weeks. But yeah, Shane is there as though uh, he's just standing around like, oh, Stephanie's gone. I mean, nobody beat me up. I'm just kind of standing around. So that didn't seem to make too, too much sense. Maybe it will in the coming weeks. But I'm surprised there, there weren't more questions for Shane on Vince's end, like what the hell were you doing when you should have been guarding your sister? Vince really dialing up the acting, too. Like, this whole night, he is going to run a spectrum of emotions, which we don't always get to see the full spectrum, but to see, like, you know, loud, like, you're fired, Vince, in some scenes, but then just, like, really, like, sad and despondent Vince in others. Yeah, we we get quite a bit of depressed Vince on this show, so (laughs) not used to seeing that. And so we then go back into the arena where Degeneration X's music plays, and X-Pac comes out all by himself. Last night, his longtime friends, Triple H and China, stabbed him in the back and joined the corporation. So what does he have to say about it? Let's find out. Turn the damn music off. You know, one year ago tonight, I came back to the World Wrestling Federation. I came back because I got a call from a friend. He said, kid, DX is falling apart. Please come help hold this thing together. Well, it's been a hell of a ride. Along with the New Age Outlaws, we've kicked ass and taken names for a year straight. But unless you've had your head buried in the sand, you know last night, that all changed. You know, we've got a lot of important choices to make in life. And last night, you made yours. But tonight, I make mine. And D-Generation X will not die. X-Pac and the New Age Outlaws will come out here each and every week and say, suck it! And raise hell! But now, I'm talking to you, Hunter. That is your name. But tonight, you're not Hunter. You are the hunted, pal. Because tonight, we will fight! Your ass is grass, and I'm gonna smoke it! 
So there you have it. According to X-Pac, Degeneration X will continue to live on, with himself and the New Age Outlaws carrying the mantle. He then challenges Triple H to a match tonight, and once again he ends with that, uh, great line about how Hunter's ass is grass and he's going to smoke it. That is actually his catchphrase. He's going to take your ass and he's going to smoke it. All right then. So, William, what did you think of X-Pac's promo here? Well, I mean, I, what I like is that it's the same thing that harkens back to segment one. Like, we're one year later with basically storylines that began the night after WrestleMania last year, which is really cool. We Remember, we had Vince and Austin do the, the whole, you're going to be the corporate champ, you're going to do things my way, no, I'm going to do things the hard way. And it's funny to see where we're at a year later where it's now like, now you're I'm going to make you just go get my belt. Now with X-Pac, and he references, he references it, very very well that's like you brought me back last year you said you needed a friend and i helped you rejuvenate degeneration x and now like i i mean xbox one of those guys that like if he sometimes just like would slow down his promos would be so much better but like the one thing that like that he did so well is like you could always really dial into what like when you can dial into his emotions real well he sells exactly what we are all feeling after what happened in that match last night with, you know, Triple H doing the turn. I think in terms of his emotion, he's right there. But I just think sometimes he gets way too ahead of himself. And then he ends up falling back in just the, the worst catchphrases that I swear, like, he's been <laughs> he's been holding back for years. Like, oh, man, this will be great. I'm going to drop this and everyone's going to be all in on it. It's like, yeah, you know. Maybe, maybe not. It's mostly laughable as time goes on, pal. But again, like, hey, I, I give him the credit because if I guess if you're ranking feuds, this has got to be near the top because it's just got so much heat and emotion only after not even 24 hours having elapsed. Not too bad overall. Yeah, I agree. We don't really get to see Xbox do many solo promos. So this was definitely. A uh, pretty quality one. I hadn't even thought of the parallel. And like you said, he mentions it in this where it's, you know, one year ago, he was back in the company, his first night back in the company. And now here we are one year later and DX is completely split. Although he's saying again that DX is going to continue. But yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to see X-Pac get some solo promo time. Now, I have a whole lot to say about this, the DX breakup and how they handle it on yeah, Raw tonight, yeah. so I'll, I, I'm gonna, we can, I suppose we can get into that a little bit later, but as for just the promo itself, it was fine, but when we get into, you know, Road Dog, Billy Gunn, Triple H, the other sort of parties involved in this, this, you know, DX or former DX, uh, let's just say, let's just say I have some thoughts, and we'll get to those in just a little bit, but yes, f- fine job for Xbox promo here. So we then cut backstage, where Vince and Shane are in their office, and they get interrupted by a phone call. Vince picks it up, and sure enough, it's The Undertaker who tells Vince that Stephanie is, quote, sugar and spice and everything nice. Oh, Taker, if only you knew then what we all know now. You'd probably take back that statement. And we then go back into the arena for our next match, the newly released from jail Big Show Paul White versus Test. And I was actually quite shocked by what happened in this match. And here's a quick synopsis of literally the entire thing. Test enters the ring. Show immediately goes after him, chopped to the chest, big boot, choke slam, your winner in literally 30 seconds, the big show. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Test's first ever televised loss by pinfall or submission, and it was a total squash. So once the match concludes, Big Show grabs a mic 
and he then proceeds to impart a warning to Vince McMahon. The chairman once told Big Show that everything was going to change when he came to the WWF, and now Paul White is determined to make him eat those words. Now, by the way, not to state the obvious here, but three out of four segments so far tonight have revolved around Vince McMahon. So Stone Cold tells him to go get his belt, The Undertaker abducts his daughter, and now the Big Show is issuing a warning to him as well. I'm just saying, we may be coming close to the point where it starts getting a bit excessive. But anyway, William, what did you think of Big Show squashing Test and then calling out Vince? This is excellent because I know you were critical about how he got jobbed out first match to Austin. Mm-hmm. And I and, and I and I think there's there's some credence to that. However, what's really great about wrestling is that it doesn't take much to basically hit with for lack of a better phrase the reset button on it. Doing stuff like this instantly like okay, all right, you take this guy serious. Now, the one thing like is that 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 gets all kind of messy with this is when Paul White was brought in, he's brought in literally right at like the 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 apex part of this angle. So, mm-hmm. I'm not sure they had a clear idea of what the hell they were going to do with this guy. You know, the easiest thing was like, well, just, you know, we need a heater for The Rock and the corporation. Cool. I think it was great, though, that what they did last time was like, all right, let's flip him. Let's get out of this. Let's let's send him on his way and whatnot. I, I like this a lot. I like this because Raw's need these more more times than not. They need them. And I like that even nowadays when we're watching Raw, we're starting to see jobbers. Not all the time, but they're starting to bring out... Uh, and I noticed it on the women's side, they brought out some no-names that basically get squashed by talent. That's great. That's great. I think it's... The funny thing about the test, I had no clue about it. And it seemed like nobody really cared at the same time. So it didn't seem like it hurt test really that much in the end. I really like this. I like this. I The promo, man, bless his heart. He really thought <laughs> that last word was going to take off. Yes. He thought... And, and you could... I, I, I can see it now. Like he, it comes to him like in his rental car, the gigantic rental car that he has to rent to get to the arena. And he's thinking, "Oh wait, wait, wait! Austin's got the la- the 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 bottom line. What if I have the last word?" Yes. I, I could see him all. He's going around to everybody, like rehearsing it, and they're all kind of giving the same, like kind of, yeah, maybe that'll work. And he believes it, and you can just tell that he thinks this is going to take off, and the crowd just doesn't do anything with yeah. it at all not yeah. at all music by the way wow man wow really aren't hitting our, on all cylinders yet with our big show music are we yet <laughs> yeah oh. well hey funny funny you mentioned that because in one week's time he does get a theme change there we go <laughs> yes the the one we all come to know and i don't necessarily want to say love but the the one we basically associate him with in his early time with the wwf that's coming up that's coming up next week but yeah, the promo, it seems like they're giving Big Show a ton of promo time. Like we, we mentioned in the, the first part, the Sunday Night Heat part, where he literally talks for like three and a half straight minutes. It's kind of like, you know, he should be, I feel like, you know, quick hitters, maybe getting in, you know, when he finally gets around to having a catchphrase, kind of get him in there a little bit. But like having him talk for this long, especially because like kind of when he talks, at times he's a little bit like, unintelligible and he's kind of like you know spitting all over the place uh so yeah the the less promo time for big show the better but you know now that they've turned him face it seems like by the time by the time the night is over the crowd definitely seems like they're on his side so maybe maybe that's what uh, inspired the wwe to flip him about uh, 57 times over the next 20 years but yeah yeah what are we? What are we gonna do with Big Show? Just, just to flip him heel, flip him face, whatever. Like yeah. to give him credit, like he is a guy who's like, all right, just tell me what you want to do. Who do I have to get? Who do? Who am I putting over? 
is it a face I'm putting over? Okay, I'll play heel. Is it a heel? Then I'll be big baby, whatever. And it, I, I, I give him credit for being a guy who's like, I'll be as flexible as you need me to be. Yeah, you, what do you need me to do? Eat a tainted burrito and then shit all over the place? Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, this year, I mean, this, this 99 year is like, is truly like, a combination of highs and deep lows. And it's crazy, like, how his career, like, when we did ECW, and you're seeing, like, the the biggest show taking place. Pun intended. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. I mean, he's at his largest. He looks like he's just, you know, it doesn't look like, actually, he has long to live. Uh, Sad. I hate to say it, but he just looks like, like the toll of ECW really, like, piles up on him. And so that's why, like, I always think it's neat by the time we get to, like, the late 2000s, how he figures out, figures out, A, how to take care of himself, B, how to, like, work his own style on the mic where, like, he can cry instantly, which just becomes a great meme. But then (laughs) just, like, he figures out how to be the best version of the big show, even without being, like, this dominating, you know, giant that we all kind of, I think we all thought he was supposed to be, but he's not. But I just get, I give that guy a lot of credit because he's, he like Mark Henry's one of those guys that you know he stuck around long enough where he figured out some he figured out where he fit he figured out what fit in terms of you know promo work moves look all that yeah and I haven't seen him lately but the last time I saw him he was in pretty friggin good shape I think he lost a ton of weight so it's kind of funny because like now his career is basically you know winding down but and now he uses that time to get into the best shape of his career go figure yeah, yeah. but. So there you have it, Big Show calling out Vince McMahon. Oh, and uh, speaking of Vince McMahon, yet again, we then go backstage where Vince and Shane are now with Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Ken Shamrock. So Vince has apparently put Shamrock up to the task of finding Stephanie, and he promises to do so. Shamrock, by the way, wearing MMA gloves, track pants, and a WrestleMania 15 t-shirt, so he kind of looks like the world's most jobbingest man tonight. Not, Not the best look. And after commercial break, we see Shamrock walking around backstage asking (laughs) random people if they've seen Stephanie. Now, unfortunately, the way he words it is, quote, the way he words it is, quote, you've seen a young girl wearing a blue shirt? (laughs) Just say Stephanie McMahon. Like, come on. What are you doing? Exactly. Say that. And people will know. But like when you say it that way. Have you seen a young girl wearing a blue shirt? If you asked me that same question, I'd probably tell you no, because it sounds like you're sounds like you're trolling for underage tail, quite frankly. What what a task force, by the way. We have a task force that includes Briscoe, Patterson, and Shamrock leading the way. Like, yeah, this is this is who should be conducting the investigation. Like th- these two buffoons and just the world's dumbest man. Yeah. <laughs> Briscoe and Patterson last seen in their two-man horse costume at the Rage Party. <laughs> they can't find a way into the building. How are they going to find her? Yeah, exactly. Not not effective. Not effective. So, yeah. And, again, Ken Shamrock, with, with the phrasing there, have you seen a young girl wearing a blue shirt? Just, just you know, come on. First of all, you're stealing Jerry Lawler's gimmick, which is one thing, but that's a, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship, Champion Hardcore Holly versus Challenger Dr. Death Steve Williams, who is, of course, accompanied by Jim Ross. And speaking of JR, he immediately joins the Spanish commentators, even though he doesn't speak Spanish, and he informs them that he's doing so because Michael Cole still has his commentary position and he wants his damn job back. And, of course, one of the reasons JR gives for not being allowed to commentate Raw is, quote, 
this McMahon conspiracy. So yet again, we must mention Vince McMahon. Good Lord. But anyway, as for the match, this is, believe it or not, Dr. Death's first ever match on Monday Night Raw. The only other times he competed on Raw in a WWF ring were in his two Brawl for All fights, with the one against Bart Gunn obviously not working out too well for him. Also, I should note that Dr. Death and Hardcore Holly are both wearing plain black tights, so they kind of look like tag team partners here tonight. And as for the match, surprisingly, for a hardcore match, this one took place almost entirely inside of the ring. Eventually, Holly nailed Dr. Death with a DDT, and he then finally rolled out of the ring and grabbed a table. He went back into the ring and set it up, but Dr. Death then picked up Holly into slam position. Unfortunately, when he did that, Holly's leg accidentally hit referee Tim White in the face, knocking him down to the ground. Dr. Death then power-slammed Holly through the table, and he went to pin him, but there was no referee. And that allowed Al Snow to sneak into the ring, where he then hit Dr. Death in the head with a friggin' frying pan, as though this was a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Snow then yelled at Dr. Death that no one was allowed to beat Hardcore Holly for the title except for him, and he then put Holly on top of Dr. Death. Tim White eventually recovered, he made the count, and yes, Holly scored the pinfall. Your winner and still WWF Hardcore Champion, Hardcore Holly. And I suppose the obvious question that came to my mind here is, what exactly was the point of the ref bump? It's exactly. a hard, it's a hardcore match. There's no exactly. DQs. Yeah, Al Snow could have just run in at any time and hit Dr. Death with a <laughs> frying pan, and Tim White would just have to count it. So, <laughs> I know logic's obviously not a strong point of the Attitude Era, but I mean, come on, people. And, oh, by the way, William, you remember how earlier I said this was Dr. Death's first ever match on Raw? Let me guess, last match? You are correct. Yes. It is his first and his last match ever on Raw, and yes, you witnessed it here. Steve Williams is basically done with the WWF, aside from one more shotgun Saturday night match against Tiger Ali Singh, after that, he gets cut loose. Now, in case you're wondering, according to a shoot interview Dr. Death does in 2001, the reason why he was released was because he needed more time to rehab his lingering hamstring injury, and also because he refused to work matches in FMW, the Japanese promotion with which the WWF had talent exchanges around this time. He says he was initially booked to work a triple threat match at Backlash with Snow and Holly, but obviously he gets released before that can happen. But folks, if you think this is the last we'll ever see of Steve Williams, well, fear not, because he eventually ends up in WCW toward the end of the year, alongside Ed Ferrara's Oklahoma character. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's so terrible. Anyway. Yep, it's garbage. I can attest to it. We yeah. <laughs> we covered it in season one. That's right. Yes, you did. That's right. It's truly terrible, and it's sad and all that, especially the fact that... that Steve Williams has to do it, you know, because, I mean, clearly Jim Ross is his friend. Who, by the way, who looks worse? Like, the the Jim Ross on the Spanish commentary stuff is fantastic. Because, yes. it, I, for one thing, I didn't know Evil JR extended another week after Mania. I really thought Mania was like, okay, we moved on from this. Clearly now, after this, he'll be he'll be back to being normal, good good old JR instead of evil old JR. Um <laughs> And I, what I think is hilarious is that Jim Ross has the nerve to like go to the referee, like, wait a second, he got hit with a frying pan. It's like, dude, it's it's hardcore rules, Jim. Okay, it's hardcore rules. You're the greatest commentator of all time. How have you, of all people, <laughs> how come you're having trouble with this? Yeah. But yeah, I, I I'm 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 glad it's moving on. I hate the fact that it's going to pop up in WCW, but you know, whatever. 
Yeah, and this match was was just kind of okay. The one thing that actually struck me as kind of funny was the fact that they actually give a name to Doctor Death's Power Slam finisher. So I was like, oh, Oklahoma. Oh, the Stampede. Oklahoma Slam. Oh, the Stampede. Yeah. yeah, that was it. Then that that's that was always its name when he did it in other feds before this. Oh, it was so okay. That's, yeah, yeah. So like it, that was because I mean I I've seen a little bit of Steve Williams before before this um and i definitely remember seeing the magazines as a kid like he was another guy like who always looked bloody every photograph the guy looked like he was just split open guy looked like he was a real tough sob for real on the legit side back like when he was doing uwf i think or i w i I forget all the different groups he was in before the before wwf but a a truly a legit tough guy yeah well just ask jr because you know he thought he was gonna (laughs) win the brawl for all (laughs) right that's right Whoops. So we then go backstage again where Shane informs Vince that The Rock's match is up next, and he asks Vince how to proceed. Vince says he doesn't give a damn about The Rock right now, and he tells Shane to go accompany him to the ring instead. Once again, there you go. Depressed Vince. And when we come back from break, sure enough, your former WWF champion, The Rock, is parting the curtain alongside Shane McMahon. And by the way, Rock gets a huge pop from the East Rutherford fans. As I said in part one, I personally don't remember the exact moment when Rock officially turns face, but in the eyes of this crowd, he's already there. And actually, as a quick side note, William, I was reading, uh, you know, I always read the the episode, excuse me, the um, editions of The Observer leading up to whatever week this is, and they say that the initial plan for the WWF was to keep Rock heel until SummerSlam, but basically they couldn't not, they couldn't ignore the crowd reactions anymore. So let's just say they turned him quicker than that. But yeah, apparently that was the idea. I mean, with the mega event, well, I keep I I say mega event. It's not that, but like the 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 right there or the left turn that the storylines are about to take with this really kind of seismic move that happens. It just was inevitable. You had to do it. You just had to do it, and it ends up setting up like the pilot for SmackDown is like a who's who type of main event, you know for for that initial pilot that they'll film here real soon. Are you going to be doing that, by the way? Yes, I will. That's going to be a bonus episode. Nice. Okay. Got to do it. Got to do it. So anyway, Rock's opponent tonight is badass Billy Gunn, who is showing no sign whatsoever that he was at all affected by Triple H turning his back on DX last night. Billy comes to the ring showing off his abs and flexing to the crowd, and he even grabs a mic and happily tells Rock to suck it. I mean, would it have been asking too much for him to look maybe a little bit despondent about Triple H's heel turn? Because remember, Hunter and Test kicked his ass last night too, but here he is tonight acting like it's no big deal, which just kind of pissed me off right from the start. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And additionally, while the Rock Billy Gun match is going on, Shane McMahon makes his way over to the commentary table, where he says that he is deeply concerned about Stephanie, but he doesn't want to talk about it any more than that. Although... For someone who is so concerned about his sister's abduction, Shane sure is cheering on The Rock quite a bit throughout this match. I guess maybe he just needed the distraction. And speaking of the match, I thought this was actually a really solid five-and-a-half-minute encounter between Rock and Billy, not to be confused with Rockabilly. The finish came when Mr. Ass went for an O'Connor roll, but Rock blocked it by holding onto the top rope, and then, when Billy stood back up, Rock nailed him with a rock bottom. And from there, Rock also hit the corporate elbow for good measure, and that was enough to pick up the one the two, and the three. Your winner is The Rock. So, William, what did you think of this one? So the commentators like to say that, like, the, the crowd is cheerily chanting Rocky, and they are trying to say, oh, they're chanting Rocky sucks. No, we're not stupid. We know we know what they're chanting. 
Yeah, and and the Rock is doing his best to try and hold on to it. You can tell, like, I'm still a heel. I'm still a heel. Well, at the same time, like, he can't help but, like, when he does that rock bottom special and he he pops off that rope and he does that crotch chop and nails that perfect Mm -hmm. people's elbow, I mean, dude, I mean, knew what he was doing and the crowd ate that up. I'll tell you, I remember playing No Mercy. That was always the best way to end a match was, like, if you had the rock, try to do the rock bottom special. It was, like, hit the rock bottom and then go for that people's elbow afterwards. Yeah, I mean... This is awesome. I mean, like, and and it and it's going to fit in nicely. You know, keep trying to keep him strong for obviously where he's going to be by the end of the night. This is excellent. Again, like, I mean, I don't think it necessarily hurts Billy Gunn. Although, like, I agree with you. Like, I, I don't know if he was now like thinking in his head. Well, now I'm now I gotta start. I gotta start trying to build up Billy Gunn star power for if this is a singles push or what's happening post DX. It's not really thinking it all the way through, though, where it's like, dude, you got to carry on a little bit of what happened last night for this to even, you know, like your buddy is X-Pac. Like you should be at least a little bit heated that your buddy got turned on like that by your other friend. So I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, I'll touch on the same thing when uh, when Road Dog comes out later, too. But yeah, Billy Gunn just basically doing the same thing he usually does. Let's get ready to not let's get ready to suck. Excuse me. Coming out and doing the if you're not down with that, I got two words for you. Just Completely, no mention of the DX, not split, but no mention of, you know, Hunter leaving DX, no mention of Hunter beating his ass, which would be obviously a perfect time when you're getting some promo time to mention that. And then for The Rock, uh, like you said, the, you know, huge crowd reaction. I was wondering, you know, again, because I only have, like, I know he's, the face turn is coming, I just don't know when. In my head, I was like, damn, what, like... How are they going to keep this guy a heel? And then later on in the night, we find out how they how they go about keeping him a heel. Spoiler alert, yeah. we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, good good solid Monday Night Raw match here between these two. Obviously, they're not going to get you know a ton of time. But uh, Rock versus Billy Gunn, hey, that's that's good stuff right there. And I was going to say you can never go wrong with Rock and Billy Gunn, but then again, you know, wait till SummerSlam '99 and we'll talk. But <laughs> but so far so far good stuff. And after a commercial break, it is now time for our next match, and it is. Ken Shamrock versus Gangrel, who gets his awesome burn and ring of fire entrance as though he was Johnny Cash. So both men keep the action in the ring for a while, but eventually they roll to the floor and Shamrock just starts beating the crap out of Gangrel while yelling at him to tell him where Stephanie is. And yes, for the second night in a row, we have a corporation versus ministry match, and again for the second night in a row, the crowd does not appear to care very much when two heels are involved. In fact, throughout this match, you can see the fans looking off to the side at something that's happening off-camera, which I'm guessing is most likely a fight in the stands. And shortly after that, it's time for Shamrock and Gangrel to go home, and I know that because you can hear referee Teddy Long loudly tell them, quote, let's go home, guys. Very helpful. So Shamrock hits Gangrel with a sloppy-looking Hurricane Rana, followed by a belly-to-belly suplex, and yes, you probably know what's coming next. Shut up! 
So, yes, as you heard there, Shamrock locked in the ankle lock on Gangrel while yelling, Where is she? Gangrel doesn't tell him, but he does tap out like a bitch, meaning that your winner of the match is Ken Shamrock. And then, no sooner does Gangrel tap, than the lights go out, and we then get that red hue covering the ring, and sure enough, we can see Edge and Christian run out from backstage. The lights then go out once again, and when they come back on, Shamrock is covered in blood. However, in an interesting twist, instead of the brood being gone when the lights come on, Shamrock has managed to grab a hold of Christian, who he proceeds to lock in the ankle lock. And William, as you teased in part one, the visual of the blood-covered Shamrock maniacally wrenching Christian's ankle and screaming like a madman is pretty goddamn awesome. Oh, oh man, this is so good. I just, first of the setup of it, the fact that Vince is like, I need you to go basically just beat the hell out of Gangrel to get some answers. We're not, But we need to do it in a match to, to make it, you know, legal and everything. So yeah. I'm gonna, it's just this slow beating that he just gives Gangrel the whole time. And dude, like, the fact that, like, after all these bloodbaths, like, if this is such a good payoff because we, everybody's reaction's been basically the same. Like, oh my God, I've been bloodbathed. Shit. And like they yep. run off or whatever. Shamrock's unfazed by it. It's so good. So yes. good. It's fantastic. Uh, my one quibble here is that, I mean, if Gangrel, they, they have Gangrel tap out, but like literally seconds after he taps out, Edge and Christian are in the ring. So it's like, did you have to job out the brood again? Did you have to job out a brood member? Why couldn't Edge and Christian just run into the ring and get the DQ instead? You know what I mean? But right, yet again, right. yet again, Gangrel, the you know undead vampire, who I would think would not be too susceptible to pain because he'd be, you know, an undead vampire. He he taps out. He taps out anyway. And also Christian. Christian kind of looked a bit like a puss, too, where he initially is just, as soon as the, the ankle lock goes on him, he's just like, she's in the basement! She's in the basement! <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's still, it is an amazing visual, though, because you get that, like, Ken Shamrock with the crazy eyes just wrenching the shit out of Christian's ankle. It's, it's awesome. And after a commercial break, we do indeed cut to the basement where we see Shamrock searching for Stephanie, but so far to no avail. And from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental title, champion the road dog Jesse James versus Goldust, who is accompanied by the Blue Meanie. And yet again, just like Billy Gunn earlier, the road dog is showing no sign whatsoever that he was at all affected by Triple H's heel turn last night. He does his usual ladies and gentlemen routine with no mention of Hunter whatsoever, even though Triple H attacked him last night. I swear, if you somehow missed X-Pac's promo from earlier, you'd never even know that anything had even happened to DX. So bizarre. But anyway, no sooner does our Road Dog Goldust match begin than Ryan Shamrock walks down the ramp. It appears as though she wants to try and reconcile with Goldust, but the Blue Meanie cuts her off and tells her that he doesn't want to talk to her. And honestly, if you're Ryan, you probably could have picked a better time to talk to Goldust than during his friggin' title match. I mean, come on. So yes, the Blue Meanie manages to scare Ryan away, and she proceeds to walk right back up the ramp and head backstage while Meanie repeatedly yells, Bye, skank! And then, once again, Jerry Lawler decides to go all creepy Uncle Jerry on us. So he references the Blue Meanie sticking his tongue out at Ryan Shamrock to taunt her, and the King then says, and I quote, She's not the kind of girl you stick your tongue out at. In, maybe, but not out. <laughs> <sighs> Can somebody, can somebody hose him down or something? Good lord. 
And at one point during this match, the meanie gets up on the ring apron, and Road Dog actually brings him into the ring, where he then proceeds to work over both Goldust and Meanie, because they're both pathetic jobbers, apparently. However, Meanie eventually rolls back out to the floor and grabs the Intercontinental title, and, well, let's pick things up from there. Road Dog off the rope, Goldust catches him with the right hand. Look out now, setting him up. Road Dog's ears ringing after that one. Curtain call. Curtain call on the way. Road Dog in trouble. He reversed it. Ah! Road Dog with a great counter. And Meanie just hit Goldust with the belt. I know. missing I now know who I am and very soon you will know too very soon and you will never ever forget the name of So what you heard there was Goldust going for his curtain call finisher, but Road Dog escaped before he could hit it. Road Dog then bounced off the ropes, where the Blue Meanie hit him in the face with the Intercontinental title belt behind the referee's back. And by the way, in that clip I just played you, you can hear Michael Cole say that Meanie hit Goldust with the belt, which is obviously not the case. Cole actually says that twice, in fact, but it's obviously Road Dog who the Blue Meanie hits with the belt. But anyway, from there, Goldust then does indeed manage to hit Road Dog with the curtain call, and that was enough to pick up the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and the new WWF Intercontinental Champion, Goldust. And if you're scoring at home, this is Goldust's third Intercontinental title reign, with him having last held the belt from April to June in 1996. And after the match, as you heard, Goldust grabbed a mic and proceeded to tell us that he now knows who he is, and pretty soon, we all will too. Now, honestly, I don't remember if this statement ever actually amounts to anything, but I suppose we'll find out. And meanwhile, this night isn't working out so well for the remaining members of DX, as Billy Gunn lost cleanly to The Rock, and now the Road Dog loses his Intercontinental title as well. 
not good times. So, William, what do you think of the match and our title change here? And not 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 great on either talking point there, to be honest, because this belt has felt so irrelevant since Triple H had to basically give it up. It really has. Like, I mean, yeah. there hasn't been any really like good substantial champion. When they had it on Shamrock, that was pretty good, and it would have been cool if Shamrock had kept the IC belt as like a really strong heel facing a face Triple H at WrestleMania. That's how I would have redone it because it would have been a good quest for Triple H to get back to the belt that he had to give up after having that awesome match with The Rock. But being that, obviously, that didn't happen. The, you, you went through that bizarre flip-flop they do with the belt where it comes away from Billy Gunn and the Val Venus type of feud with Goldust where it ends up on Road Dog. Like, it, what it amounts to is, like, it just doesn't feel important here at all. The right. fact that Goldust has it, it's just like... Like, I, I hate to not be excited, but I, I really wasn't. And the promo baffled me as well because I was like, whoa, I don't remember what this is supposed to pay off at all. Because I know I know he's going to be going over to the other side soon because I know when season one started for us, there he was hanging out. Yep, it's true. I, I don't want to spoil too much, but I'm pretty sure his last Monday Night Raw appearance is the, uh, the night after Over the Edge. So he's only got about two months left on our timeline, let's just say. But yeah, I'm in the same boat there. The match was nothing special. I was actually surprised because I didn't remember Goldust getting another intercontinental title reign and again it's like the road dog is hugely popular he's hugely over but you know he defend he successfully defends the title against four guys three guys excuse me including Goldust the night before and then one night later Goldust is somehow eligible for a title shot and he wins so it's like that doesn't exactly make a ton of sense to me it kind of reminds me of that sort of booking where it's like you know the pay-per-view there's no title change on the pay-per-view but on the free tv we give it away for whatever reason so right, right sure whatever but yeah very very strange decision and again i have no idea about this gold dust angle but i'm guessing most likely nothing comes of it don't know for sure but i feel pretty confident saying that so we then go backstage again where ken shamrock has now managed to find stephanie mcmahon in the basement of the building and when we get a close-up on her face we see that she has the undertaker symbol painted on her forehead and at first stephanie appears rather reluctant to accept shamrock's help which is understandable, since he's still fucking covered in blood. Eventually, however, she does agree to go with Shamrock, and they walk off together. And by the way, props to Stephanie here, because she convincingly manages to look absolutely horrified throughout this segment. I actually thought she did some pretty quality facial acting here, William. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I would. Because I, it, it lends towards what exactly happened here. <laughs> and it's never actually stated what happened there, because she's too distraught, basically, but... Yeah. And on that note, after a commercial break, we cut to Vince's office, where the chairman shares a hug with his daughter as Shamrock, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Shane look on. And like I was saying, Vince asks Stephanie what they did to her, but she's too traumatized to say, so Vince can only retort with, Those rotten bastards. <laughs> but meanwhile, all I could think was, if you abduct the boss's daughter, why would you just leave her unattended in the basement? She could have just gotten up and walked away at any time. She wasn't even tied down. So, I mean, come on. Isn't that just kidnapping 101 right there? I mean, come on. <laughs> so we then go back into the arena where it is now time for a WWF Tag Team Championship match. Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, accompanied by Deborah, versus challengers the Legion of Doom, who are accompanied by Paul Ellering. And if you're scoring at home, this is the first time Hawk and Animal have wrestled together as a tag team since the episode of Sunday Night Heat, which aired before SummerSlam, 
when they somehow lost to too much. And yes, Hawk was indeed drunk as shit during that match. Thankfully, though, not tonight. It appears that he has finally conquered his demons, and all it took was getting dropped 30 feet off the Titantron. Small price to pay. But anyway, this was a pretty short match with LOD controlling the majority of it. Eventually, though, Hawk clotheslined Jarrett out of the ring, and that left Owen alone with the Road Warriors. And sure enough, Animal then hoisted Owen onto his shoulders. Hawk climbed to the top rope, and yes, they hit the Doomsday device. However, Deborah then proceeded to distract referee Tim White, which allowed Jarrett to grab his trusty guitar. He smashed it over Animal's head, Owen covered him, and then Jarrett instructed Tim White to turn back around, and of course, when he did, Owen was easily able to secure the three count, giving the victory and the successful title retention to Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart. Those crafty bastards. So, William, what'd you think of our tag team title match here? Shocked that LOD has a tag team title match in 1999. Had no clue. Could not remember them. Like I, I thought the Titan, I thought the Titantron incident was about the end for LOD. And the fact that you know when they popped up, they did with a bit with Briscoe and Patterson. Now they're back doing this. It was like whoa. And then with them just jo- getting jobbed out, like and just it's the typical Jeff Jarrett Owen Hart match. I was like, oh, okay, well. There goes that, I guess. Well, it's funny you mentioned that about not remembering too much about LOD, because we, we actually were saying in part one that the tag team division's a little bit weak in the WWF at this point in time, but you know now you get the LOD back, and that should at least give the roster a bit of a shot in the arm, you would think, right? Right. Because they never paid it off to with them getting the belts back. They never paid it off. Like, a year ago, they do the LOD 2000 thing, and it's... They're huge. Like they, they have that. They have a. They just destroy the Bariquas the night after WrestleMania mm-hmm. 14, and it seems like you know they they have the screwy, dusty finish of sorts with the uh, with the Outlaws to where they don't quite get the belts, but like they're right there to get them, and they never do it. They never get them back. So it's 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 kind of frustrating. Yeah, but I mean, well, at least they're back now, which means you know exactly what I'm going to say next, don't you? Yep. Go ahead and say it. Yep, it is their final Monday Night Raw match in our timeline. Now, admittedly, like you were saying, LOD's run during the Attitude Era, not exactly the greatest. Hawk gets his mohawk shaved by the New Age Outlaws. They reunited for that less-than-stellar run as LOD 2000. And, of course, we had the aforementioned Drunk Hawk storyline, complete with draws throwing him off the Titantron. Fun fact for you here, though, William, Hawk and Animal will eventually have one final match on Monday Night Raw, and it's on May 12th, 2003. On that show, they make a surprise appearance and face the World Tag Team Champions, Kane and Rob Van Dam. And this particular match is, shall we say, rather infamous. Do you know why? Do you know about this match? No. I was trying to think. I don't have it. What is it? Okay, so basically what happens is, Hawk takes a choke slam from Kane, followed by a five-star frog splash from RVD, and he takes the pin, and Hawk then immediately pops right back up to his feet. And I recommend that you seek out that match just for the part after the finish where you can see the usually restrained Kane just staring Hawk down like he's saying, what the fuck are you doing? You just no-sold two finishers. It is... It's vintage Hawk, but, like, I, I don't know if they were planning on, you know, running with the LOD any longer than that, but I think pretty much Hawk doing that kind of kind of killed their run immediately. And unfortunately, though... Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I mean, I just... I was just saying that is... Un- that. That's unfortunate they, they, that he did that. Yeah, and even more unfortunate because Hawk actually does end up dying about five months after that match. But of mm. course, in 2005, we do get 
another rebooted version of LOD in the WWE with Animal and Heidenreich. And and truthfully, I wasn't really watching much of the WWE at that point, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that that was terrible. It would have been better if they called him Hockenreich, just to really go all in (laughs) with it. Just like, just, because Heidenreich's just one of those dudes where like, it was quickly like, oh crap, what do we do with this guy? Because he sucks. Like, he's not very good. And I'm, I'm almost positive though, you can find the match, man, and maybe that's what you tack on to the end of this. If, I don't even know if it makes for good podcast material, but you got to watch Doink versus Heidenreich at the Golden Corral. Oh. you got to find this because, uh, like, this happened. Like, this is, it's this fat, very conservative Doink who finds a way to antagonize the crowd, taking on, like, Heidenreich dressed up basically as nails, and they, they go across <laughs> The best part is they're they're doing this garbage fight, and they decide to take it across the street. So they have to stop traffic and walk as they're holding each other across the street to continue the match. So good. <laughs> well, if that's what you want as the final clip for this show, I can play that as the final clip from this show. If if you can, I I don't know what you're gonna play from it. You I don't know. You'll have to you have to do some work just kind of watching to see what is really podcast worthy, but. You gotta see this thing if you haven't. I'll see if I can track it down. Definitely, but uh, but getting back to LOD, the point here is that since they're no longer going to be represented on the Raw Attitude podcast, but of course they're one of the most legendary tag teams of all time, and I haven't done this in a while. I feel it's only right for me to send the Legion of Doom to Wrestler Heaven. Soon we have seen one title match here tonight and another one right around the corner. The Natural Disasters challenging Hawk and Animal, the Legion of Doom, for the World Tag Team Championship belt. That's right, me, Gene. As we said before, the Legion of Doom will never be closet champions. We will face all challenges like we've done in the past. And now we got the biggest team in the World Wrestling Federation history, the Natural Disasters, almost a half a ton between them. Well, that's okay with us, because we're the champs, and we ain't gonna start losing now. Right, Hawk? Well, Mean Gene, you know what makes us sick besides everything? Typhoon and Earthquake, they make us real sick. You see, they want to throw their weight around. Well, that's okay. We want to throw your weight around, too. And when we're done with you, and we still got the belts... Your tongues will be hanging out like dead deers. Ah, man, those LOD promos. So subtle and nuanced. So anyway, we then cut backstage where a limousine pulls up to the building, and we can see that the driver has Stone Cold's smoking skull belt in his possession. He takes the belt and runs inside the building, and then we go to break. And when we come back, Vince McMahon is in his office comforting Stephanie, along with Shane, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe and Ken Shamrock, so let's go ahead and pick it up from there. Good job. I want to thank you. 
I want to thank everyone of you guys. Thank you. I want to thank you. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you. Who is it? I want to thank you. Mr. McMahon, I have the belt. God, thanks. All right, Abdul, thank you. I want to thank everyone. Kenny, I'll always, always be indebted to you. Always. Here you go. Here's Austin's. Here's Austin's belt. I don't give a damn about Austin's belt chain. This night is over, okay? In terms of trauma, in terms of what's happened to your baby sister, this night is over. Let's just end it, okay? Let's just end this. What I want you to do is go take this championship belt and give it to Austin, wherever he is. If he's in his locker room, just give it to him. Just end this night. Just end this night. Your family has been through enough, okay? And all I'm going to do now is... Stephanie, come on, baby. You okay? Okay. I'm going to take your baby sister home, all right? And again, thank you. No problem. Thank you so much. Come on, guys. Yes, sir. Thanks, Dan. We'll take care of it. Just give it to well, we're given the title. Okay, what's that? That's what we're gonna do. Okay, go get the rock. This night is over. After what they did to my sister, okay. go get the rock. You go get the champ and bring him back. Okay. This night's over, huh? I don't think so. Hurry up! So what you just heard there was the limo driver delivering Stone Cold's smoking skull belt with an exhausted Vince McMahon telling Shane that he just wants the night to be over. Vince and the Stooges then exit with Stephanie so they can go take her home, leaving Shane and Shamrock alone in the office. But as you heard there, Shane is not at all content for the night to be over because he's still pissed off about what the ministry did to Stephanie. He tells Shamrock to go find the rock, and that is how the segment concludes. Very interesting. Shane going against his father's orders here. I guess we'll see if that ends up working out for him. And from there, we cut back into the arena where it's time for our main event of the evening, X-Pac versus former D-Generation X leader and new corporation member Triple H, who was accompanied by China and, of course, the aforementioned Shane McMahon. Hunter even enters to no chance in hell, so in case you doubted his credentials after last night, let there be no question at this point. And by the way, William, I can't get over the amusing coincidence of Stephanie McMahon making her on-camera debut right at the time that Triple H goes corporate. I mean, talk about intersecting paths. Good lord. Oh, yeah. So anyway, as for the match, it was pretty solid, but only ended up going for about four and a half minutes, mainly because I'm guessing that we may see a longer match between these two at Backlash. Just a hunch. Just a hunch. So Triple H was in control in the early going, but X-Pac would eventually reverse the momentum and hit Hunter with a spinning heel kick to the face in one of the corners, which of course knocked Triple H down in perfect position for the Bronco Buster. However, before he could hit it, Shane McMahon grabbed X-Pac's foot, so Pac then turned his attention to the boss's son and started chasing him around ringside. Shane then rolled into the ring and X-Pac went after him, but he was quickly met by a clothesline from China. And surprisingly, Earl Hebner actually noticed the interference, a true rarity for WWF referees these days, and he called for the bell, giving the disqualification victory to X-Pac. 
Unfortunately for Pac, though, that didn't signal the end of his punishment because China nailed him with a low blow, followed by Triple H hitting him with another pedigree. And at this point, I was wondering when the New Age Outlaws were going to show up, but instead, the lights went out, and yes, Kane emerged from backstage, seeking revenge on Hunter and China for last night's betrayal. So Kane immediately knocked down Triple H with a punch, but then China appeared to start talking trash to him, and that provided a fitting opportunity for Shane to slide a chair over to Hunter, and when Kane turned around, Triple H nailed him with a chair shot to the skull. Hunter and China then walked up the ramp, but Kane quickly did his Michael Myers sit-up routine. Kane left the ring and charged off backstage after them, but in the meantime, Shane McMahon was hiding behind Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler at the commentary table, and we'll touch on that in just a moment. But for now, William, what'd you think of X-Pac versus Triple H and the post-match shenanigans? I think they, they did a good job of just like, okay, we know this is going to be part of a bigger feud later, so let's just kind of tease out like a a shorter version of what this thing's going to be great chemistry with these guys. Like, and obviously the emotion really adds another element to it. Xbox really good. Like I, I, and I was having a conversation with Charlie where we were talking about like his match with Bret Hart back in the day, like, you know, many, like six years before this, like you yeah. could see, you could see this guy really does have the chops and, and it's, I don't think it's any coincidence that, like, as time goes on, like, he becomes sort of the... He is the guy you're going to be paired with when you first come in. Chris Jericho is where I'm going with this. There's no, I mean, so you can get broken in and understand the WWF style. Like, X-Pac is such a good worker. We joke and make fun of a lot of the things that he says, but he's an awesome worker. And it's really good. I think it's a, this is a good feud. If Triple H is turning heel, this is a great feud to really help get it over. The Kane pops, this is more evidence that Kane should have been wrestling Undertaker the night before. It would have been a perfect, perfect, uh, you know, just reflection of the previous year where you have the roles reversed in a Hell in a Cell match. It would have been perfect. And I just think, like, it's just a shame that Kane is accumulating, he's really getting all this momentum. And what's amazing is that he's basically doing it on his own. Like they're not doing him any favors with what they're with how they're setting him up. They they just keep they make him look pretty dumb throughout this run of like late ninety eight into ninety nine. I like where it's headed. Of course, we know where it's kind of headed with him and X Pac at some point, and it and I that only lends to to help you know Kane's popularity as it goes on. I think like it's 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 a cool pairing, even in just these respects where it's now just Kane coming out and saving X-Pac, you know. I think that's a really good little wrinkle to add to this feud. Yeah, and on that note, spoiler alert, we do get the first uh, Kane and X-Pac match together next week, so be on the lookout for that. But yeah, regarding uh regarding X-Pac, Sean Waltman 123 kid. I'm glad you mentioned that match with Bret Hart that he has with him in 1994 when he's the the 123 kid because I remember being so into that match when I was a kid. I still actually remember there's a part where X-Pac kind of knocks Bret Hart down. It might just be like a hip toss or something. And they get a shot of Bret's face where he just kind of does a little like, huh, okay. Like, like he's like, oh, I didn't know this guy was that good. You know, he just with that yeah. little look on his face. It's probably best best Sean Waltman match of his career. I, I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say. It's really good. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true, actually. And that's actually funny, too, because I was mentioning how, like, I've been reading, you know, the, the Wrestling Observers for each week here. There is one, like, note in the Wrestling Observer at one point where Meltzer calls X-Pac the best worker in the big two companies at this point. So he, he thinks quite highly of him as well. So definitely, I mean, again, this match with, with uh, Triple H only gets about, you know, four minutes because they're obviously wanting them to go a little bit longer at the pay-per-view. And truthfully, I don't remember 
how much time they get at the pay-per-view. I don't really remember if it's a good match or not, but I am looking forward to seeing it because I'm sure, like you said, those guys have fantastic chemistry. It's, it's it's really physical from what I remember, like just to keep it short. I think it's a really physical match, and it should be. That's exactly what it should be with this type of feud. And those two guys, obviously, they know, they've known each other forever, and they, I think there's a little bit more of a trust factor to be more physical when it's when it's your friend in there, I would assume, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yep, good, st- good stuff on the horizon for uh, X-Pac and Kane. And like you said, that's another one of those that could seemingly be one of those, oh, two guys randomly thrown together. But it does, it works, I think, very well. Much more so than just, you know, generic two guys thrown together. They definitely take it and make it their own, which is, which is fantastic. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. So, okay, as I mentioned previously, when Kane heads backstage, Shane McMahon kind of hides at the commentary table and stays around near ringside. So we pick things up from there, with Shane now in the ring, holding a microphone. And as we heard earlier, Shane wasn't simply content to just hand over the smoking skull belt to Stone Cold like his father said to do, so he tells Austin that if he wants his belt back, it will be around the waist of The Rock. And sure enough, the People's Champion then comes out from backstage with the smoking skull belt. So The Rock runs down Stone Cold for a bit, bragging about the fact that it took two stunners to get the job done last night, until... Austin's music hits, and he charges down to the ring. After he and Rock brawl for a while around the ringside area, they make their way back inside the ring, where Shane also attempts to join the fray, but unfortunately for him, Austin hits Shane with a stunner. However, that provides an opening for The Rock to grab the smoking skull belt and nail Austin in the face with it. Yes, that would make the second time tonight that Stone Cold has been hit in the face with the title belt. What are the odds? So Rock starts putting the boost to Stone Cold, and then some other corporation members emerge from backstage to help out. So yes, Triple H, Test, and a still-covered-in-blood Ken Shamrock come to the ring and take turns beating on Austin. And it was at this point that I realized that the big boss man is actually not on Raw tonight, so thank Christ for that, because it would have made no goddamn sense. Uh, Tune into next week, though. But anyway, so the corporation is putting a beating on Stone Cold, so let's pick things up from there. Shamrock in there now, pounding away on Austin. Oh, look at that. It's four on one, the champ. There's Shamrock now. Wait a minute. Uh Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Seven feet, 500 pounds. Wait a minute. It's showtime for the big show. So, yes, as you heard there, with the corporation beating on Stone Cold, the big show emerged from backstage and headed to the ring. 
Austin and Paul White then proceeded to clear the entire corporation out of the ring, and I couldn't help but think of how forgiving the Big Show is, since Stone Cold literally hit him with three chair shots to the skull and pinned him on Raw just a week ago. I guess he's willing to let bygones be bygones on that one. And we then went off the air, with Big Show drilling Triple H with a choke slam right as we were fading to black, which I couldn't help but think was not the best use of one of your freshly heel-turned guys, but whatever. So, William, what'd you think of the Rock Austin brawl and the subsequent Big Show ass-kicking? So, th- this is this is a great payoff, because it's like, okay, Austin's won... The, the culmination of his storyline is winning the, winning the title back at WrestleMania. But now they've found a way, a really good way, to keep this going, which is simply that... He's just got to get his belt back, which we've seen this. Like, you know, Sean and Razor basically did this with the two Intercontinental titles. You know, a version of this same type of storyline. This is a good one to kind of add here for Rock and Austin. What I really like is that it's this is the first time... Like, you definitely don't get this very often, but in particular with Rock and Austin, I think this is the first time they really acknowledge that, like, they really like working with each other because they both throw out... Like, they both throw out the, you gave me a hell of a fight. And the Rock says, "I kicked out of your stunner," and you know, like it—it's kind of neat because it's—it's—it's it's, it's sowing some seeds for later. It's or it's—I guess I should say—it's it's laying some groundwork later for when these guys are going to have some memorable matches down the road. I think it's great that they're going to continue this onto the backlash because I know a lot of people are not high on the WrestleMania 15 match, and. I think Austin himself is critical of that match, and I think it just kind of added a little bit more pressure to be like, okay, we'll get a second crack at this. Let's really make this work. And these Raws that are going to build from here are fantastic. I think this is a great, great way to end the Raw after Mania because it's not like we're having to start over completely fresh. Backlash, I always... Charlie and I used to talk about, like, Backlash was such a cool name for the pay-per-view right after Mania because it was a way... It was a good name for a show that's supposed to carry over storylines. You know, it, these, this is the backlash to the WrestleMania outcomes. And it's like, okay, cool. And so I, I just love where we're off and running with this. It's a good use of Big Show again, although it's a hilarious look. I'm going to come out in my big jeans, <laughs> take, care, take care of some business. But yeah, I, I, this whole night of Austin, like I, throughout the night, they cut to him in the back and he's just sitting there and he just looks just like, God dang, man, just had a few too many last night. And it's, or, and then it's a combination of that and like, hey, man. You ever see a movie called Citizen Kane? I need you to cut a few <laughs> holes in the floor. I want you to get down low and film the rattlesnake. God dang, kid. Come on. And <laughs> it's hilarious. Like, this whole night is just some great, just stone cold kind of... Now, I'm not going to say he's phoning it in, but it's like, God dang, man, he's got to get home and <laughs> i got to replenish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have to have a match tonight, unlike The Rock. He can just kind of uh, come out and kick a little ass, or at the end, get his ass kicked for a little bit until the big show shows up. But yeah, like like you said, good use of the Big Show now as a babyface that, you know, he gets that rub of being the one to save Austin's ass, which is pretty huge. I mean, that's that's a pretty uh, a pretty big rub they're giving him the night after WrestleMania. Yeah, it's it's good stuff for um for the Big Show. Good stuff for The Rock, like you said, continuing this on to Backlash. When you mentioned the WrestleMania 15 match, it was during that when I was watching it, I was like, "Huh, we didn't get the camera spot." So, was oh, oh, that yeah. Yes. Oh, I love backlash. that spot. Yes. So good. So good. That It's like it's finally a payoff to The, the Rock insisting on doing commentary during his own match. Yes, which, which he does many, many times. But yes, it, it's just kind of funny because I was like, huh, I could have sworn that spot was in there. But no, so that, that actually makes sense that it was at, that's at Backlash. So one more thing to look forward to. And honestly, I don't remember 
too much about the Backlash match other than that, but obviously, you know, Rock versus Austin, I'm definitely looking forward to, to watching it when I get around to it in a few weeks. So is, do you remember much about that match? Is that a, a quality one? I think overall it is better. And I, I agree with the the consensus that it is a better match than the Mania one. A lot of the Mania one, like they just are kind of walking around out in the in the crowd, you know, yes. just doing a lot of those spots. Like those those typical, we'll walk five steps and I'll give you a knee lift. We'll walk a few more steps and I'll punch you, and then you'll take over. And the and they just kind of do that for a bit. Where the backlash one is, it seems a little bit more controlled. It's definitely very physical. It they you you adding in that camera spot is just fantastic it's a great great use of it it's got a really cool ending that i feel like is this cool kind of culmination point on the last you know 14 15 months of story storytelling so yeah it's a it's a really good match i'll be honest like beyond the camera spot i don't remember a a super ton of spots from it so that's what i think will make it fun to kind of go back and revisit is just to see like okay how does this one add up like with you know, they, they had The Rock. They had the match at uh, D-Generation X. They had a, a match the, on the go-home of WrestleMania 14. Uh-huh. And then they really don't touch each other for a bit, it seems like. They don't come back into it until the night after Survivor Series, where they kind of they, they have their first kind of foray at each other. So the fact that, like, they're... It, it's, it's an interesting kind of culmination for the last, like, for them, it would I guess it spans more like... 20 months worth of brawling that they've been doing since, you know, December of 97, stuff like that. It's good stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. How it goes back that far. And yeah, actually, you're right, because the night after Survivor Series, we do get Austin versus Rock, but then they kind of, uh, I think the that's the match where The Undertaker interferes and basically hits Austin in the head with a shovel. Yes. So then it's yeah. like, okay, we're doing Austin and Undertaker for a little while, too. But now they're finally they're, they're finally back in each other's orbits. And it's good that we're not just getting the one and done at WrestleMania, that we do get another match between Austin and Rock. So definitely high hopes for that. Definitely looking forward to it. And so that is the end of Monday Night Raw, right? Well! Not if you're watching on the WWE Network, because we then get more than seven minutes of extra attitude, which shows what happened after this episode of Raw went off the air. So with Austin and Big Show still in the ring, the corporation regroups and appears ready to make another attempt at attacking them, so Stone Cold picks up a chair. And when they see that, the corporation seems to rethink their strategy entirely, so they all head backstage, except for The Rock and Shane, who hang around on the entrance ramp. So Stone Cold then has a few beers thrown to him, and he grabs a microphone. He invites The Rock to come into the ring and share a beer with him, and the reluctant Rocky agrees. He enters the ring, they shake hands, and yes, they do indeed chug a beer together. But of course, Rock then tries to clothesline Stone Cold, so he ducks, and Austin hits him with a Stone Cold stunner. And after being down on the ground for a few moments, Rock staggers back to his feet, and at this point, it looks like Big Show was trying to swoop in and grab Rock for himself, but Austin basically cuts in front of him and hits Rock with another stunner. I think Big Show was about to go for a choke slam on Rock, and Stone Cold didn't realize it, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And so perhaps as a way of making good, Austin then rolls out of the ring, grabs Shane McMahon, and tosses him into the ring, where, yes, Big Show hits Shane with a choke slam instead. So Stone Cold and Show then share a beer, and that is pretty much how we wrap things up. So, William, did you enjoy the little uh, extra attitude segment here? Except, like, when Austin's on the outside of the ring and literally his belt's right beside him. Like, yes. his belt's right there. <laughs> you can just go grab it. But I know, like, we have to we have to do business for the next month to keep this thing going. But I think it's – I feel like the Big Show is waiting for his beer 
for a long time before Austin gets it to him. <laughs> he's kind of just, I can tell he's, because Austin obviously like has like an entire case thrown at him before he gives one to Big Show, but I just feel like Big Show's kind of like, hey man, can I get a cold one? You yeah. Know? I, but these, uh, these are always fun, especially like uh, the the Rock Austin stuff. I love the fact that Austin is actually sincere. Like it's the one time the beer, like offering the beer, like seemed to be sincere. Now we don't know. Maybe he would have gone for the stunner anyway if the Rock hadn't have gone at him first. But I think it's so cool that like they they did that, and I'm sure they did that. They, well, they do do that plenty of times after Raws throughout the years. It's just really cool to see between those two. Yeah, I'm actually glad you mentioned that belt part, too, because I think it's actually worse than that, because there's a part, like, when Austin's on the mic, I think he actually says something to The Rock, like, you can leave your little belt back there, or something like that, as though, <laughs> as though like, he's like, oh, I don't care about the belt now that we're off the air. <laughs> so, kind of bizarre, but yeah, it's always, these little things with, like, Austin and Rock sharing a beer, they're, they're fun little time capsules where it's like you can see, you know, the stuff that you didn't see otherwise it's just you know sort of like sending the fans home happy but i think it's it's pretty fun stuff so they do do this every now and then it's not every episode of raw but it's like probably you know one out of every four or five in the attitude era so that's that's kind of fun but all right so that was monday night raw but we're not done yet so on that note let's take it to the wrap-up Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniacs. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. The WWF stands for women where we fucking. The ratings recap. Well, William, I have to say, this ratings recap segment is just getting bloodier and bloodier every time out. Yeah. Yeah. Last week, Raw trounced Nitro in the ratings 6.44 to 3.95. And this week, yes, it got even worse because Raw was victorious this time around 6.51 to 3.51, a difference of three full ratings points. And I know it sounds like I'm saying this a lot lately, but that 6.51 rating for Raw is, once again, the highest rating in the history of the show up to this point. Seems like they're setting a new record every week at this rate. And by the way, that rating is somehow even more impressive when you consider the fact that the Duke-UConn NCAA Championship basketball game was airing on the exact same night, and that put up a 17.2 rating, likely taking away some viewers from both the WWF and WCW. Hey, who knows? Maybe maybe Raw could have gotten to a 7.0 tonight if not for that if not for that game, I should say. But uh, I mean, spoiler: they they will eventually get there, just not tonight. But of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on Monday Nitro on this night instead: Conan defeated Vincent, Wrath defeated Kenny Chaos, Rick Steiner defeated Scott Norton, Booker T defeated Chris Adams to retain his World Television title. Chris Jericho defeated Jerry Flynn, and by the way, more on Jericho on our next episode. Buff Bagwell defeated Norman Smiley. Kidman and Rey Mysterio defeated Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko to win the WCW World Tag Team titles. And in your main event, Hollywood Hulk Hogan defeated Diamond Dallas Page. So, William, what do you think? Does that sound like an episode of Nitro you would have wanted to tune in to see? So just think about this for a second. Stone Cold Steve Austin is the WWF champion once again, and the guy who trained him loses a TV title match across the 
Yeah. Ac- across the shows. Oh, Chris Adams? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's wow. a good point. I didn't even thought of that. That's <laughs> so funny. But no, none of that sounds good at all. And I'm sure that DDP Hogan match was not spectacular whatsoever. Yeah, I didn't watch it, but I, I think that's probably a fair bet. <laughs> it seems like that would definitely be a ploy by WCW to try to like get some eyes on on Nitro instead, because that you have to know if you're WCW that, that Raw is going to be, you know, the night after WrestleMania, you're going to have a ton of people watching that show. So maybe they were like, well, you know, Hogan versus DDP, two of our top guys, maybe we can steal some people away. Uh, no, not in this case. Not in this case. But I also have to note there is one quality segment from this show and for my money it's the best moment bret hart ever has during his entire oh, WCW is this tenure a, we were yeah i know okay i know where you're going are you gonna play it oh i'm gonna play it yes but Perfect. but first i have to give a little bit of an explanation because on this night nitro was live in toronto where bret was obviously greeted as a god since the canadian fans love their fellow countrymen he's even rocking a toronto maple leafs hockey jersey to really play up to the crowd And by the way, William, in case you're scoring at home, this would be the first Nitro to emanate from Canada in the almost year and a half since WCW signed Brett. So good job capitalizing on that momentum. So Brett comes out and cuts what's essentially a quasi-shoot promo where he says he came to WCW to earn a reputation, not to lose one. And fittingly, he also mentions how the company is freaking out over the ratings. And that was obviously before that 6.51 for Raw was announced. So Brett says he can't get a match against any of the top competition in the company, so he then proceeds to call out Goldberg, who does indeed come to the ring. And let's take a listen to what happens next. So here we are at zero hour in Canada. Defense for the spear that we've ever seen. 
What a great move. That's what I call being prepared. Okay, go ahead and respect that. Hey, Bischoff. And the WCW. I quit. So in case you at home are not familiar with this segment, Goldberg immediately spears Bret Hart, but surprisingly, both Bret and Goldberg are then down on the canvas, with Goldberg seemingly having been knocked out. So Bret sells the spear for almost a minute and a half before rolling over, covering Goldberg, and counting his own pinfall. Bret then removes his Maple Leafs jersey, and we see that he was wearing a steel plate around his waist the entire time. So yes, Goldberg essentially speared himself into unconsciousness. Pretty genius move by Brett there. And then for good measure, Brett grabs the mic again and proceeds to quit the company. Now in truth, the quitting angle here was done so Brett could take a few months off to have surgery on his groin. And I have a fun fact for you here, William. Brett is only supposed to be out for a few months, and he was actually booked to do The Tonight Show with Jay Leno on Monday, May 24th, to hype his return to WCW. Yeah. The only problem there is that WWF's Over the Edge pay-per-view occurs one night before that scheduled appearance. Needless to say, both the interview and Brett's comeback plans end up getting scrapped, and this appearance night, this Steel Plate segment, actually ends up being his last WCW appearance until September. Boy. But I suppose that whole, the -the over-the-edge thing is for a later date. But regarding the steel plate angle, William, uh, do you think this is as awesome a moment as I do for Bret Hart? It's, I mean, there are two great Bret Hart moments in WCW. This and the L Dandy promo. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, that's it. And that's sad, but that's all Bret Hart has. And it's, I I hate saying Goldberg kind of gets his revenge on Bret because he ends up, you know, ending his career basically at the end of the year <laughs> Yep. <laughs> to kind of come back to this segment. But yeah, man, um, Brett and WCW, it's a sad tragedy, man. Just a real sad tragedy. It absolutely is. Well, minus the part where he's making $3 million a year, but everything else is, right. is pretty sad. Yeah, exa- <laughs> true, exactly. But And on that note, do you actually mind if I segue into this week's excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds? By all means. They actually touch quite a bit on the Bret Hart-Goldberg angle, so here's a quick excerpt. Quote, The Bret Goldberg angle was one of those things that could have led to monster business if anyone in the company had even the slightest clue. The backstory, obviously, was that WCW had dropped the ball on Bret literally since the day he'd signed his contract. Despite being paid almost $3 million a year, he had been booked into oblivion. In the months leading up to this show, Kevin Nash made it clear that he didn't think Brett was a draw and that his contract was completely unjustified. And now for just one second, I'm going to skip ahead to a section of the book that describes what happens after the Steel Plate segment. Quote, Regardless of the ridiculous notion that Brett would come to Nitro with a Steel Plate under his jersey so he could knock out Goldberg, some people in the company actually thought this was real. Part of that had to do with a loud argument between Brett and Eric Bischoff backstage right after the segment, with no cameras present. Most everyone in the company, however, knew it for what it really was, another lame attempt to work the boys. End quote. So so just so we're clear, they do this awesome angle where Brett knocks out Goldberg, and then Brett and Bischoff get into a worked argument backstage in order to try and convince the locker room that Brett went rogue with the steel plate, legitimately knocked out Goldberg, and actually quit the company. So given that this 
is where their mindset is right now, suddenly those plummeting ratings are actually starting to make a lot more sense. I mean, sweet Jesus. But so on that note, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. So William, overall, what were your thoughts on this episode of Monday Night Raw? Excellent Raw after Mania. Really, really good. It sets up some, a few new things, but mostly it's just carrying over feuds that we thought culminated at WrestleMania. It's excellent. I just I think I can't say enough how the setup with segment one paying off in the last segment of the night is really well done. You've got a good X Pac Triple H feud that's brewing. The rest of the stuff is your typical kind of raw filler. I mean, what are we doing with with Sable in the women's championship? Doesn't matter. Is the Intercontinental title mean anything? Well, they did a title change, so that means something, right? Whatever. It doesn't mean a, a, too terribly much. The rest of it is, is is pretty whatever. I mean, obviously the Vince thing is another interesting wrinkle now, where it seems like the son is going to take over for the for the father and. It'll take the storyline to some interesting places, but I think overall, man, this is a good Raw. Very solid Raw. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. Definitely a thumbs up from me. Certainly much more of a recommend, I would say, than WrestleMania 15. There's a lot of good stuff there. The continuation of the Rock-Austin feud, I mean, can't complain about that. The elevation of the big show. I do have, uh, again, just to go back on a couple of the complaints I have, is the fact that, you know, Triple H turns heel. DX is literally the most popular faction in the company by far, and yet he turns heel. We don't get a promo from him where he explains why he did it, and the last image of the show is the freshly heel turned Triple H getting choke slammed. So again, you're not making him look very strong right off the bat either. You're kind of just lumping him in to be, you know, one of the other guys in the corporation. I mean, there's no reason why, you know, Tester Shamrock couldn't have been the one taking the choke slam at the end there. And also, uh, again, going back to the DX thing, so X-Pac is saying DX is going to continue, and yet, like, he and the Outlaws are completely separate throughout the entire night. Like, if X-Pac had come out and done that promo with the Outlaws, I feel like it would have made a lot more sense, but there's, if you just watch the show, they don't, there's there's no connectivity whatsoever between X-Pac and the Outlaws on this show, when it seems like you would want to have them together as, like, a showing of unity one night after that, so whatever. And then again, Road Dog beat three guys last night, one of whom was Goldust. So obviously Goldust gets the title shot one night later. Strange decision. But on the plus side for my money, this one show did more for Ken Shamrock than pretty much anything they've done for him since he lost the Intercontinental title. Because he looked like an absolute badass. Basically, Vince appoints him to be, you know, the one guy who can find out where Stephanie is. And he he tortures, you know, two guys with an ankle lock to do it, gets covered in blood, doesn't matter, he still finds her. It's, I don't want to say it's out of character. It's not out of character, but it's definitely, you know, a, a surprising elevation of Ken Shamrock after, you know, not really doing anything with him for the past month and a half. So that was really, really good to see. I don't think they continue with it, but, you know, it's, it's nice to see that sort of like one night bump for Shamrock. I mean, I, I don't remember the specifics around it, but... I don't think we have too much longer with Kenny. Yes, I think he's out actually right after SummerSlam. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's not a lot left. I mean, when things definitely take a turn, and it, it's interesting how things kind of get shuffled around. Like, man, he is just a guy who just kind of gets left out hanging here. You know, like he really, even even Triple H. Like, I mean, that's why like his whole thing is really funny because it's like he he does this big heel turn, but then like. This is the problem with deep stables is that you can quickly and very easily be absorbed into that and just become just another number in the whole group. Yep. And that's exactly what happens to him here. And it's going to get worse 
for a, a short period here before it'll get better. And so it, it's it, there's still some things they, that, that they definitely need to work out. Like this isn't all perfect by any means, but I'm curious, like if they really just gave like if they if the DXing was just kind of a punt because it, it feels like I've, if I remember right, like going forward, like I don't think it's really much of a group other than just like a loose, loose affiliation, if anything. Yeah, I think you're right about that, too. And then my my just my last note here was that pretty much, as I said, everything revolved around Vince McMahon tonight, which in this case I did think worked pretty well with the overlapping storylines. But they obviously see that as their path going forward, and I'm sure once that 6.51 rating came in, they were probably like, oh, people people love watching the McMahons, clearly. So that's that's where they're going for better or for worse. Again, for now, it's working, but... You know, there there will come a time when the over McMahonization of the product will start seeping in. The culmination, in my opinion, being WrestleMania 2000 in the main event. But that's a that's a whole other thing. That's a whole year away. And before we wrap up, William, I do have some excerpts here from this week's issue of the Wrestling Observer. If you'll indulge me for a moment. So Dave Meltzer has a few more notes on the Bret Hart situation, as he says that Kevin Nash. Flat out does not want to push Brett, but Eric Bischoff gave the go-ahead for the steel plate angle, which put him at odds with Big Sexy. So again, you gotta love WCW. You pay a guy $3 million a year just to do nothing with him. Wish I could be so lucky. Well, real quick, <laughs> I, the Luke Harper thing doesn't sound like it's too far from that. Oh yeah, that's a good point, actually. So he, he's now gone, right? He, he pretty much, I, I, he gave his walking papers, I think. He he asked to be released. He wasn't fired, right? Yeah, but like they're not going to do it. <laughs> they're uh, they're oh. going to, they're not going to do it. I don't think the last I checked. And if they reverse course, then I, I, I you know, I, I stand corrected. But I, I don't think they are. I think they're, they're kind of being dicks about it. And they're doing the whole Rey Mysterio will add some time on to the back end because you were injured. So it's just sort of like, you're going to end up paying this guy to really do nothing just so he doesn't go to AEW. It's like, you, you, got, you guys just don't learn. None of you guys really learn anything. Which is why I was shocked that they didn't try to, to you know, bring Ambrose on a little longer, too. Because, number one, I think that, that AEW pay-per-view, I think, is in Vegas. And Ambrose lives in Vegas. So it seems to me like that's an obvious fit right there, oh. at least for that show. Yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe that's been announced. I don't know if that's been announced yet. But no, I, I think, think you're for, right. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and again, I don't know. I mean, they've just, in my opinion, they misused, Ambr- misused Ambrose horribly for quite a while. But that, that's a whole other story. So in, in our next bit from the Wrestling Observer here, Meltzer reports that the Headbangers are reported to be splitting up with Mosh segueing into, well, a rather interesting character. More on that in the coming weeks. While the plan for Thrasher is to turn him into a sadistic evil clown with Bruce Pritchard as his manager. And now, in case you're doubting this one, Pritchard actually did confirm this on his podcast last year, but spoiler alert, it never actually makes it to television. But could an evil clown have worked in the Attitude Era, William? I feel like it could have. Yeah, it could have. I mean, that would have been, I mean, the the easiest name, because I remember when when I trained for a bit, like, there was this fat guy who wanted to do it, and he was going to be called Chuckles with a Z on the end. I was like, that's a perfect (laughs) 2000s name for an evil clown is Chuckles. Yeah, well, you got to have the Z at the end, like Hardy Boys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, th- apparently he was going to be like I think the the rumor. I, Meltzer basically is just saying that you know Thrasher is going to be an evil clown. I think what Pritchard said, if I read the notes correctly, was it was going to be something like DTK, like Doink the Clown. I don't know if they were going to spell it out like that, but it was going to be Clown with a K 
or some some crazy shit like that. And Pritchard was basically going to be his mouthpiece. So, you know, could could headbanger Thrasher have been a uh, a convincing evil clown? I don't know. But uh, one thing I will say is uh, fuck Bruce Pritchard. There we go. And William, I've spoiled this on the show before, but this is the week when the WWF pitched the incest storyline to Ken Shamrock and Ryan Shamrock with Ken thankfully shooting it down because he didn't want his son having other kids making fun of him at school for his dad fucking his sister. Can't say I blame him. But I got a, I actually have a fun fact for you here, William. Do you know what the name of Ken Shamrock's firstborn son is? Ryan? That is correct. So I know that sounds like a joke, but it is actually true. So like while they're doing this angle on TV where Ken has a sister named Ryan Shamrock, in real life, he currently has a 10-year-old son named Ryan Shamrock while this angle is going on. So go figure. Now also, the New York Times is reporting this week that the WWF is expected to sign a lease for a restaurant in Times Square. So apparently the chain Planet Hollywood currently owns the space, so the WWF will need to pay them $8 million up front, plus $2 million per year for the location, and it's estimated it will cost another $4 million just to renovate it. But certainly, though, for a WWF-themed restaurant, I think we can all agree it'll be worth every penny, right? There's, there's no way that can fail. By the way, quick, quick side note, I have a WWF New York shot glass, and I have no idea how I got it because I never went to WWF New York. <laughs> I think somebody might have bought it for me as a joke, but I was like, I was looking at it. I was like, when the fuck did I get a WWF New York shot glass? <laughs> so bizarre. And finally, the ESPN show Outside the Lines aired an episode on pro wrestling this week, and they actually got sit-down interviews with quite a, quite a few big names in the industry, including Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Hulk Hogan, The Rock, Mick Foley, and several others. And speaking of Vince, once again, if you watch any of the interviews with him around this time, you really do get the impression that Vince McMahon and Mr. McMahon are not all that far apart. It really tends to come across as an arrogant dick in these interviews. Oh, and by the way, William, I have to note that there is one part of the interview where Vince defends the violence in the WWF by saying, unlike other shows, there is no portrayal of murder when we pretty much got a portrayal of the big boss man's murder at WrestleMania 15. So, nice one, Vince. But yes, if you get a chance, definitely Google that Outside the Lines story, because it's a nice snapshot of where wrestling is at this point in time. It's about, about 45 minutes, so it's, it's pretty good length. But so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I mean... Come on, we just gave you more than five hours of quality content here. I think, frankly, both of our podcasts deserve a five-star rating at this point, don't they? Do the right thing, people. doesn't even have to be a written review. Just, just give us five stars. And, of course, before we wrap up, William, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude podcast about the New Blood Rising podcast as well? Yeah, man, we're uh, going through Season 5 from Sting to Hogan, taking a look at WCW shows that are going on uh, from roughly 1990 through 1994. We're also in between shows. We've started releasing, I funny I teased this on the WrestleMania portion, but now we can talk about it here, 
called uh, Perfect Tens, where each of us will take one match and just kind of go for it, just break it down, like piece by piece, talking about why this match to us is a perfect 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, why this match is absolutely perfect. I just dropped one, which was Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect SummerSlam 91. Charlie's going to be doing one real soon. It's going to be Bret versus Owen at WrestleMania 10. Mm. And then we may have we may be able to drop another one before we get to Wrestle War ninety two in our proper season five, but we'll see. You can find all this on Twitter at New Blood Pod and on Facebook, New Blood Rising Podcast. How fitting that the first two have Bret Hart in them, which which makes oh, yeah. it just all the more sad when you know because Bret Hart still even at this juncture in nineteen ninety nine where we are, I'm sure he could still put on a fantastic match, but WCW just completely has him on ice. But I, I definitely yeah. agree with you. The first one you did, I listened to the uh, the Brett versus Mr. Perfect from SummerSlam. Awesome show, awesome one man show. Which, of course, as as a one man show, typically, you know, I, I always have a lot of respect for people who jump in there too because it's it's not easy. It's tough to do. It is not. No, it's not easy because you're you, you sometimes you get a you find yourself getting a little lost and you're like, all right, I got to get back on the road here. Can't get too far off this thing. I mean, you're smart in how you you have yours very structured. It's very structured to where like it's a it's a nice just succinct journey. Like from beginning to end, we cover everything we need to, and we're done. Yeah, well, for me, I know if I start rambling, I'll I will completely just get off tracks. So that's why I tend to script everything because I know if I if I have to like you know ad lib or something when I'm doing it, I'll probably be like ah fuck that sucked. So, it, but it's it's awesome. You obviously you guys can do that really well, but I'm kind of like uh, I'll just I think I'll just script out everything. No, it's a good it's a good policy. Good policy. Yeah, and I was gonna say on that note, by the way, this is my longest uh, scripted episode ever, forty pages in words. So, wow. finally wrapped it up. Forty pages, twenty four thousand words. So, good times, folks. Good times. But so I have nothing further really to add about this episode. Now, William, obviously. As is the custom, a guest host always gets to pick the clip. So would you like to stand by that clip of um, the, the Golden Corral match there? Yes, definitely. Like, it, seek it out because uh, it, it's worth it's worth every bit to watch the whole thing. Absolutely. Beautiful. So I will play that again if I can find it at the end of the episode there. I'm sure I'll be able to find it. So once again, huge thank you to you, William, for taking so much time to watch these shows and to come on and record this episode because, I mean, it really it's, – it's a huge time commitment. I know that. So I'm always grateful when somebody comes on and completely kills it as you do every single time. So really, thank you so much for coming on and, and spending so much time on this. Absolutely, man. I appreciate the invitation as always. Fantastic. Always glad to have you. Always glad to have you. So with that being said, enjoy William's clip, and I will catch you next time. Don't knock this 
Come on, come here. 